The City in the Autumn Stars Being a continuation of the story of the Von Beck family and its association with Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, and the cure for the world's pain. The Second Chronicle, in which is recorded a confession of Manfred Von Beck, sometime Captain of Cavalry in Washington's Revolutionary Forces, Deputy of the French Commune, also former Secretary to the Saxon Embassy at the court of the Empress Catherine of Russia, and Confession, chiefly relating to certain strange events in the city of Marienburg during the winter months of the year 1794. As edited, translated and prepared for the press by Michael Moorcock. For David Hartwell with respect and affection. The direction of this new force, liberated by the love, vanity and inspiration of a sharp little shop assistant, was through the spirit of the times to a personal power that both were content to wish as large as possible, without as any limitation or detailed idea. The spirit, since it was the age of reason, was love of mystery. For it cannot be disguised that the prime effect of knowledge of the universe in which we are shipwrecked is a feeling of despair and disgust, often developing into an energetic desire to escape reality altogether. The age of Voltaire is also the age of fairy tales, the vast cabinet de fay, some volumes of which Marie Antoinette took into her cell to console her, it is said, stood alongside the encyclopedia. This impression of disgust and this impulse to escape were naturally very strong in the 18th century, which had come to a singularly lucid view of the truth of the laws that govern our existence, the nature of mankind, its passions and instincts, its societies, customs and possibilities, its scope and cosmical setting, and the probable length and breadth of its destinies. This escape, since from truth can only be into illusion. The sublime comfort and refuge of that pragmatic fiction we have already praised. There is the usual human poverty of all its possible varieties. There are all the drugs, from subtle, all-conquering opium to cheating, cozening cocaine. There's religion, of course, and music and gambling. These are the major euphorias. But the queerest and oldest is the side path of magic. At its deepest, this magic is concerned with the creative powers of the will. At lowest, it is but a barbarous rationalism. The first of all our attempts to force the heavens to be reasonable. 
William Belitho, Cagliostro, and Serafina. Twelve Against the Gods, 1929. Preface This account, first published in Heidelberg in about 1840, was printed and written anonymously. Only recently, through the records of the Vernon family, has the authorship been traced to Manfred von Beck, who was born in Beck in 1755 and died in Marienburg in 1824. Having in his youth been involved in a number of scandals and dubious adventures throughout Russia, Asia Minor, America and most of Europe. The narrative, mentioned in passing in Carlyle's German Romance, 1824, does not seem to have had much public distribution, and today's Count von Beck, to whom I am indebted for much more help than is evident here, points out that his ancestor issued instructions for it to be printed only after his death. This accords with the references in the text. The account is in the nature of a confession, and if readers' fiction might well qualify as a romance, though it does bear resemblances both to the classic picaresque and to the gothic novels then fashionable. The Grail itself, of course, has been part of the family's coat of arms for over 300 years, and their name is inextricably bound up with the German versions of the myth. There is, for instance, a legend, mentioned in many sources, that the von Beck family is fated to keep and protect the grail, and seek it out if it ever becomes lost. Manfred von Beck's reputation as a young man, he was frowned upon by many, might suggest the story was a hoax, either written by himself or someone who had known him well. The reader must judge that. However, before making a final assessment, it might be worth consulting the records of the present count, which have not yet been made available to the public, either in Germany or elsewhere. These records are currently in preparation. This somewhat modernised version of Manfred von Beck's confession is adapted from an English edition published in London by D. Omer Smith of St. Paul's Churchyard, 1856, revised and expanded by Michael Moorcock, who acknowledges, as always, his enormous debt to Prince Lobkowitz, and, of course, to the von Beck family itself, which has entrusted him with many documents covering the last four centuries of its history. The Publishers Chapter 1 In which I take my leave of Paris, romance, and the radical cause. Were it not for that terror which captured France in 1793 and which at length caused me to flee Paris, 
I might never have discovered an exquisite love, nor ventured to the city in the autumn stars where, with wits, sword, and the remnants of faith, I fought again for the world's future and lost my own. The day Tom Paine was jailed on Robespierre's specific order, I determined at last to put my revolutionary ideals behind me. Even as I pleasured sweet Madame F., whose bad news was incidental to her visit, I planned my impending flight. Tom imprisoned meant I had lost my final ally in the assembly. My own name would now inevitably appear on a warrant issued by the Committee of Public Safety. Indeed, a boisterous mob of enragés could already be on its way to my lodgings with the intention of offering me its familiar choice. Tumbrel to the guillotine, or rotten hulk to the sane's bottom. Well, clearly it would be prudent for me to spend the new year of 94 abroad. As soon as was seemly, I dressed in the disguise held ready for that moment, packed all I owned into two leather saddlebags, made hasty courtesies to my mistress, and hurried through Paris's dawn alleys to the certain mews in the Rue de la Ancienne Comédie. There, for two francs, I redeemed my feckless manservant's nag from a sleepy ostler. More silver got me a saddle and harness, which had seen far better days, and this I settled on the poor beast as she shivered and fumed in the stable yard's chill. I fancied I now looked the image of some medium-rank revolutionary officer. My customary silks and lace were abandoned or hidden. I was engulfed in an old black coaching cloak, while the crushed Kevin Cooler bicorn rested on my uncombed hair. To this I had added a coarse muffler of greyish wool, greasy dun-coloured breeches, cheaply finished jack leather boots, and I had pinned a tricolour cockade to my hat. An antique cavalry scabbard sheathed my own good semaka and sabre, and this was tucked into a blue, white, and red sash of doubtful cleanliness. I must surely pass as the typical servant of the committee, and I intended to claim that identity if anyone stopped and questioned me. Should disguise and argument fail to persuade my suspicious zealot, then I would resort to two large Georgian flintlocks settled in my greatcoat's gun pockets. I could not help but despair the progress of my career and the collapse of our political dreams. In the previous year, France had executed her king and proclaimed a true republic. But now the mob's passing whim had discovered the only law, as Robespierre himself would soon discover. I felt cruelly betrayed by the revolution by men I had embraced as brothers, by circumstance, and, as always, 
by God. Being no admirer of despotism or privilege, I had first celebrated and then served the revolution, becoming at last a deputy in the parliamentary assembly. When, however, the bloodletting grew unjust and excessive, I, like pain, lifted my voice against the nightmare of a hypocrisy and falsehood, that degenerate orgy of revenge and animal savagery. But, like pain, I was a foreigner, and next encountered sudden antagonism from the very comrades whose own rights and liberty I had lately championed. They claimed the mob performed identical crimes as the aristocrats, yet not so prettily disguised. To me, this justified nothing. Their argument was in itself illustrative of their impoverished and perverted souls. Such was the substance of my statements to my fellow deputies when my doubts grew to a new kind of certainty after I witnessed their September days. Those days when the beast in all its horrid barbarity stalked our streets wearing Liberty's cap and wiping his bloody chops on Liberty's flag. The first I saw of it was beneath a brilliant late summer sky when six coaches full of captured priests were set upon in the Rue Dauphine. The rabble sliced off hands stretching from windows in search of mercy, then hacked the occupants to pieces. The same day, a Carmelite convent near Rue de Volgerard was likewise attacked. Its inhabitants murdered and thrown into a well. Prisons were invaded and their defenceless charges slaughtered. The murder of innocents continued. Drunken some temperists dragged young and old, mad and sane, into the jail's courtyards and impaled them on pikes. Were not stabbing prisoners to death in their very cells where they awaited trial. Those frightful savages split their victim's head with hatchets. I grew used to seeing heaps of horrid mutilated corpses. Other bodies were displayed in the street for public amusement. Crones dragged to the pavements the still limp cadavers of young boys, jerking these lifeless partners in a further parody of human illusion, the figures of a hideous erotic dance. At La Petite Force prison, the Princess Le Lambelle was stripped, humiliated before the crowd, then repeatedly raped. Her breasts were cut off and while she still lived, she was again subjected to indecencies of every description, her tormentors constantly sponging blood from her skin so the mob should note its aristocratic whiteness. When the lady at last expired, her private organs were amputated, impaled on a spike by the same gallant who ripped out her heart, 
roasted it on the stove of a nearby wine shop and ate it. Everywhere in Paris similar barbarities were practiced, distracting me almost to madness. My wretched brain could not encompass all that horror, the cruel destruction of my idealism. That month alone, 1,500 persons were tortured and killed by wine-swilling rogues and harlots who in coming weeks proudly exhibited swords, spears and axes crusted with innocent blood. Even that perhaps I might have ignored had the tribunal voiced its outrage. Instead the mob was praised. Marat and Belaud Varenne encouraged it. Oh, it performed a public duty in slaying the nation's enemies. By force of will, I yet remained in the assembly, passionately arguing a return to our cause's original virtues. But even born Frenchmen were howled down if they offered such pleading. A native of Saxony... I had been invited to join the revolution by Anarchasis Klutz and my Jacobin friends. With Klutz I had renounced lands, title and family loyalty, following him to Paris where we were welcomed as brothers and immediately made citizens. Elsewhere in Europe, of course, my enthusiasm was not so well received. Having cried out for the rights of man and shown my wholehearted support of that most violent upheaval in the body politic, there was now every chance, should I travel beyond France's boundaries, I would be immediately arrested. I had so thoroughly committed myself to the revolution that, even when I came to understand the evil we had created with our miserably naive philosophies, I continued to deceive myself of Robespierre's humanistic claims. I appealed for the abolition of the death penalty. Let it not punish either the weakest peasant or Marie Antoinette's capet, the queen. Those who had never before known power, I reasoned, were the first to fear the loss of it and suspect all of trying to steal it. Given the moral superiority of our cause, we should not descend to the methods of our predecessors, but must show the world we return to our stated moral purpose. This plea was resisted by the self-same gentlemen who were very soon would impose fresh tyrannies upon the people in the name of the corrupt directorate. Thus my departure was no hasty dash from danger, I saw no joy in martyrdom, nor satisfaction in last speeches from the scaffold. My plan for escape had been exactly drawn. Muranberg was to be my final destination. In that tolerant city, I had money and old friends. There was no 
lovely a city in which to weather out a social storm. Like Venice in her singularity, Mirrenberg, moreover, had an enlightened prince. But to reach her, I would have to cross half the rest of belligerent Europe. I had no other reasonable choice. I was unwelcome in Saxony, wanted for treason in Russia, had bad debts in Vienna, and was branded libertine in Genoa and excommunicated in Rome. Well, as a Protestant born, I was not unduly alarmed by this. And as a known Jacobin, an intimate of Robespierre, I could not expect to enjoy a leisurely and uninterrupted journey. Well, thus I rode with many a weary glance at what I prayed was an unremarkable pace into streets which were now rife with random violence. Ghastly fog gave Paris an appearance of spectral unreality, as if she herself had become a bloodless cadaver, greatest and final victim of the terror. In time, cold morning sunshine dispersed the fog and sharpened the texture of the stones, revealing the filth and verminous rubble which Egalité had left untreated and which Fraternité ignored. I was glad to find the iron gate standing open, my way unchallenged by three drunken national guardsmen who wished me a cheerful bonjour, citizen, with a hiccup and a yawn. Without pausing, I waved my passport and travelling documents, well, none fully ordered, and some bearing only poor facsimiles of the proper seals, and entered the ill-tended highway with its thin snow and black etioliated trees. As Parisian cobbles gave way to the Dion Road's frost-hardened ruts, I could at last spur to a smarter trot, more in keeping with my heart's rhythm. I had known terror and danger before, most notably when the Empress Catherine exiled me to Siberia from whence I escaped, spending two years with wild Tatars, learning their martial skills and daily forced to prove myself a good savage, as good as themselves. Yet that bloodthirsty democracy was the cruelest sport that ever Christians performed. I had lost all hope for the perfectibility of the world. My time in America, where I served with von Stauden, Lafayette and Wayne had shown me how soon the fire-eaters became the fire-men. As quick to dampen the spirit of liberty when it threatened their interests as they were to ignite it when it served them best. Since my departure, events in that first great modern republic had proven more melancholy still, with half the leading spirits dead in jail or exiled. I heard they planned to choose a monarch, and General Washington was proposed. 
Were they bent merely upon replacing one King George with another? Well, if so, the tyranny of autocracy would at least be given an honest name. My horse, an old country hunter, sniffed at the air and grew almost lively as we left the city's stink. But I enjoyed only the mildest sense of release. Louis himself had reached the Belgian border before being caught and brought back. And the king, moreover, had the advantage of aid from my acquaintance, the Baron de Corf, Russian ambassador of France, whereas I remained a wanted criminal by the Muscovites on their suspicion of my involvement in a murder plot against Catherine. With every friend in France either dead, emigrated, imprisoned, or too prudent to be associated with a suspected royalist, I had begged with pain and a few others that the Queen be exiled rather than beheaded. I had only my own poor wits for an ally. The Parisian fashion for wholesale slaughter was had spread by now to the provinces, so I could not count myself safe from democracy until I had at least a country or two at my back. I had begun to regret my earlier decision to wear beneath homespun and tarred leather my fine shirt, silk breeches and within my boots, elegant shoes. Born into an age which regarded it as no minor heresy to go about improperly adorned, I was deuced uncomfortable. I had dressed well and presented a good figure throughout the turmoil and shared this quality, if no other, with Robespierre, whose coat was always impeccably cut, even as he lifted a lace wrist to urge on his tide of barefoot arsonists and whores turned into harpies. Paris faded into the mist. My few fragments of illusion faded with her. Rousseau, Voltaire, Descartes, even Paine himself, by now seemed little more than foolish, over-hopeful prattlers, whose notions bore no relation to the world as she really was. All I retained of Rousseau was his warning that blind following of his theories must inevitably lead to the substitution of the tyranny of dictators for a tyranny of kings. Well, Louis had ruled merely by the will of God. Robespierre chose to believe he ruled by the will of the people. This moral conviction allowed him to condone, participate in, and initiate deeds for which no biblical justification existed. Like a good many fierce revolutionaries who failed to influence reality as thoroughly as they had dreamed, he had a knack for calling old pots by new names and proclaiming the result a triumph of the Enlightenment. To abolish God, I thought, was one thing. But to replace him with oneself was quite another. I could only guess at the heresies, blasphemies and distortions of nature yet to come. No longer did I see the decline of the Romans 
merely as a result of ancient ignorance. That decline now seemed proof of the lasting desire for slavery. To shape, therefore, my new direction, my discarding of a moral wardrobe gone rotten, I fostered a determination to follow our old Von Beck family motto to do you the devil's work. Handed down from father to son through generations of our people. At last I had the interpretation which in the past had always baffled me. Now I knew it meant I should indulge myself in all those impulses which hitherto I had dismissed as base or ignoble. If Rome must be the model of our modern world, then I would turn from that narrow stoic philosophy which had brought me to my present pass. I had my well-developed taste for fine clothing, and had always enjoyed good food and wine as well as lechery. But to my hedonism, I would marry a new loyalty. To my own person alone. Renouncing my quest for justice and human dignity, I would seek instead the comfort of riches. Gold was both a reliable mistress and a tangible friend. Well, a few years in Muirenberg, I reasoned, enjoying her various delights while increasing my fortune by fair means or foul, I would return to my own Saxon estates, purchase my respectability, and retrieve from my father my birthright. I would not go cap in hand to Beck, I would buy her back, enrich her, installing model farms and dwellings so that at least my own people would be happy. Once rich, moreover, I would again travel easily about Europe, for while in the public eye a poor radical is a dangerous rogue, a rich radical is merely an eccentric gentleman. The loyalty I had given to liberty would now be set to work in the cultivation of mammon. I had a little money with my friend, the Helvetian philosopher, Frederick César de la Harpe of Vaud whom I had met in St. Petersburg while performing my office as secretary to the Saxon ambassador. Lausanne was therefore my first destination. But to reach that city I must navigate wild mountainous country whose brigands were reputedly so poor they would murder a traveller for the hair on his head. However, even before I began that stage of my journey, I must pass through the village of Saint-Croix, where there were usually a strong garrison of the National Guard, primed to expect the likes of me. As the miles passed, I found my disguise to have been well chosen. The only close attention it drew was fearful or respectful. I had learned during my sojourn in Muscovy and Tartary that the art of achieving congruity with one's surroundings lies not in dressing exactly as the common man, 
nor yet as a superior's. It is best to be one who communes between the two. An unimaginative, carping civil servant, a scribe, courier, or what have you, all would be in the mould of those for whom the vulgar people go in awe, but which the aristocracy treats as invisible, or as a despised necessity. If one swims towards the middle of the human stream, one may fairly be expected to be carried on a current of preconception and insensible habit. Thus with my inferiors I showed impatience and a condescending self-importance, while to any superior met on the high road, military commander, important provincial communard, and so forth, I saluted with servile cheer and obedient respect, earning their immediate contempt, which was always to my advantage. One never looks closely at that which one neither fears nor admires. So, I crossed France. Adams, remote from any town, I was most easily able to wave my sheaf of forgeries and requisition my needs from folk who blushed to hear my accusatory snarls of royalist, and who served me their inadequate best with trembling hands. My name was Citizen Didot, and my business, I instructed them, was secret or important, enough to impress them without informing them. Should I share a table with a priest, I glared, while a lieutenant would receive my camaraderie and dislike me for it. A captain, it need scarcely need be said, received my cringing admiration. Winter made bad roads worse, and the going was slow, but the seeming absence of pursuit consoled me. Perhaps France was so taken up with her foreign wars and fears of invasion, she showed little concern for one Saxon traitor running for freedom. I now regretted deeply my decision to accept French citizenship during those early euphoric days. Agents of the revolution were in every country, furthering Clute's avowed ambition to take liberty abroad in the form of a conquering French army which would free all from their chains. Clutes himself would soon be guillotined with the other Hebertist radicals. But his logic of international liberation would provide the impetus for an imperial France to embark upon the rape of Europe. <laughs> Thus, one generation's idealist provides useful rhetoric for the next generation's greedy pragmatist. I shall not say that I foresaw the rise of Napoleon while I rode for Switzerland, but my family's reputation for second sight is famous throughout Germany, and my own gloom was enough to impart a certain accuracy to my prophecies. Switzerland drew near. Villages came fewer and lodgings were scarce. Close to Saint-Croix, 
I found shelter at last in a noxious farming house turned hostelry on a truckle bed, set over boards through which I observed and heard the constant movement of noisy outpourings of three thin cows, my own horse, two dray mares, and a pig, as well as a stable lad with a woman of uncertain age who set upon him halfway through the night and enjoyed him while he groaned and she grunted. Well, it soon became impossible to determine if they retained their duet or if the pig had joined them. The mingled stench of all these beasts became so overwhelming, I believe it was this which at last set me off to sleep. Next morning was blowing cold rain. My innkeeper, picking lice from beneath his belt, guessed the nearby river must surely flood by noon. He suggested I go by another road than that which led directly through Saint-Croix. I, however, grew steadily troubled at the prospect of another day in France and did not wish to risk suspicion by avoiding the garrison. I told him I would take my chances with the ford. He shrugged. There was heavy ice in it, he said, and if the current ran hard I stood a fair chance of being knocked from my horse. Ignoring him, I signed a paper in the name of the committee, assured him the state would settle as soon as he presented himself with the paper in Paris, and set off. Head down, with the stinging wind which, carrying frozen rain, threatened to lacerate both nag and self. The wind increased. The branches of bare elms waved like the limbs of drowning starvelings. I searched the sky in hope of an interlude, but the grey clouds raced on to be replaced by others. I shivered in my greatcoat and tried to spur the reluctant beast to greater speed. If her circulation stopped, I feared she would freeze a statue in her tracks. We went by a creaking windmill of ancient black wood and whitewashed stones. The sails complained and shrieked as they slowly turned, though they ground no corn. By about eleven on the clock we passed through Saint-Croix, a pretty little village of stone and slate and carved wood where, to my surprise, the garrison consisted of two or three dozing soldiers. I guess the rest had been caught upon other errands and I congratulated myself on my good fortune. I showed my papers and explained how I was on government business, keeping a rendezvous with a Swiss agent of ours. They innocently accepted all I told them and wished me luck in my work. The Swiss border was only a mile or two on the other side of the river. Now, snowy alpine foothills with their evergreens offered a modicum of shelter from the weather until I came at last to my ford. As, for, as foretold, slabs of ice tumbled and clapped, rushing in a foaming torrent all but obscuring the narrow causeway I must cross. With considerable cursing and some hesitation, I urged my poor steed knee-deep into the chilly tide. Water clawed my boots like the fingers of some furious arctic troll, 
and I was halfway across using scabbarded sword to push away larger slabs of ice before I heard a cry from the bank ahead. Peering through spray, rain and mist, I made out a group of mounted men amongst the pines. My attention was distracted long enough for a block of glowing ice to rake against my horse's chest, causing her to whinny and skitter in the water, and almost lose her footing on the causeway. Well, hold, gentlemen, I pray you, cried I across the wailing rain. I feared they would begin to cross before I had reached their side and thus risk all their wild lives. I shall soon have reached your bank, and then you can ford. But if you start on my horse or your own, likely none of us will get to our destination. Well, either they heard me and fell silent, or they had no more to communicate. They did, however, seem content to wait for me. My horse remained in her agitated condition, and I was soon obliged to dismount lest we both fall. Though the foam threatened to drown me, I nonetheless plunged into the deeps, then eventually found shallower waters which came only to my breast. With relief, I struggled at last into the calmer waters and stood gasping and quaking beside the muddy, root-knotted bank. I felt sure my breath must freeze in the air or turn solid in my lungs. Both my horse and I were shivering. It was a minute or two before I could give an eye to the dark figures who, seated upon the backs of big horses, regarded me with impassive concentration. They were soldiers by the look of them. Renegades were frequently found between borders when countries disputed by lifting the law against murder and dignifying its commission as a necessity of war. I put my hand to pocket and clasped the damp butt of a barker. The pistol was useless. If these horsemen were indeed thieves, my sword was my only defence. They continued to be patient. Several more minutes went by as they waited for me to catch my breath and straighten my back. I naturally became watchful, yet they tried to seem unwary and not a bit concerned by them, speaking aloud to myself and to them, commenting on the foulness of the weather and the need of a bridge over the river. Still they did not reply. It was only when I made to remount my horse that one of the riders broke away from the rest and advanced down the bank, keeping his huge horse to a calculated walk. This man had handsome, aquiline features, pale under a broad forehead and thick black brows. His long hair hung in pigtails about his face, and he wore a large bicorn on the back of his head, brim pinned so it would not lose its shape in the rain. From the gullies so formed, water poured upon the shoulders of his leathern cape, wrapping his body to the knees. From the cape protruded a dark sleeve and a white gauntlet gripping reins and pommel. 
His boots, too, were black, the tops turned over to reveal soft brown inner leather. The rider's thin lips pursed as he drew his horse in before me and looked me up and down. A good morning, citizen, I called with false good cheer. Do you plan to ford here? Tis, as you have seen, just possible. We've already crossed, sir, said the pale one, and proceed towards Nyon. Yourself? Well, on state business, citizen, I gave him my habitual reply. Well, then we share an honour, he said. He appeared to be quietly amused. Meanwhile, as this exchange took place, his men moved forward, positioning their horses so that they formed a barrier across the muddy road. I listened to the pines creaking and dripping. The air was full of their scent, mingled with the lushness of the forest mould, the warm stink of damp horse flesh. Citizen, said I, ignoring all these alarming signs, I thank you for you. I thank you for your courtesy in waiting to see that I crossed safely. I was reaching the conclusion that I had found St. Comte's garrison. Reins in hand, I trudged up the bank, my nag snorting as she tried to shake her mane free of water. The river crashed and howled behind me, and as I approached him, the pale man dismounted. He came stalking to offer me a hand for my final step up the road. His eyes were black as the devil's and full of that secret amusement, either denoting superior intelligence or chronic short-sightedness. Your name, citizen? Well, his tone was friendly enough. Dido, said I, carrying orders from the committee. Indeed. Then we're comrades. My name is Monsorbier. Now I placed him. We had met thrice before. Once in Metz, during some benighted Clutzian conference designed to bring revolution to Prussia and Belgium. Then, most recently in Paris, when Danton had, argue, had arranged for deputies to question officers of the National Guard. He was famous for his zeal at sniffing out royalists, but our earlier meeting was less likely to recall, for it had not taken place in France. Our earliest meeting had been in Munich, where, before either of us was a declared servant of the people. Both incognito, members of the same secret metaphysical brotherhood, we had been dedicated to scientific inquiry evolution of man's natural equality, rather than to the unpleasant practicalities of turning the world upside down. His name had been the Vicomte Robert de Monsubier then. Mine had been Manfred Reuter von Beck. For all his rather elegant sans-culottism, de Monsubier was as natural a son of the people as myself, 
blood flowed in his veins, blue as my own, though, like me, he had renounced privilege. Originally a follower of La Clause, he was now under the spell of Clutes and other extreme herborists. To him, Robespierre was a lily-livered conservative, and Marat was a feeble, weak-stomached, revolutionist manquet. I prayed the grime of travel and the stubble of my lower face would offer sufficient disguise. When next my fellow ex-illuminatus addressed me, I changed my voice to a wheedling whine. From where are your orders, citizen? he asked. Uh, from the commune, citizen. I'm commissioned by citizen Herbert himself. This, of course, to impress Monsobier. You have your documents. He stretched out a gauntleted hand. Silver drops of rain fell on the black leather of his cloak. Citizen, he moved his fingers. I must see your documents. By what authority, said I. By the people, said he, all full of righteous pomp. I held hard to my role. By which of the representatives are your own orders signed, citizen? I believe I must ask to see yours before I can reveal mine. They are secret. Or mine also. We are close to the border. Our enemies surround us on almost every side. Well, you might be a Prussian citizen, for all I know. I could only attempt to carry him in a rush, an attack of my own. What well, is you, citizen, has the accent? Not I. His reply was calm, still containing amusement. I'm true-born French. But you, citizen, secret orders, have both the voice and the demeanour of a German. I'll not be insulted. Is Lorraine Germany? I'm a loyal Republican, a revolutionist before ever you Aristos pulled off your calfskin boots to play at peasants as you played Arcadians under Louis. Aggression was my only rhetorical weapon. Monsauvier frowned. Why so insulting all of a sudden? Is it fear that makes you snap like an otter in a trap, citizen? Why are you afraid? A finger crooked and his five men dismounted, pulling muskets from their backs and readying them. Whereupon I swung up into my saddle, drove spurs deep into my poor mare's flanks and rode straight through them. The nag's hoofs slipped in the mud, her nostrils blubbered, her mane flew and Muskets shot off in every direction, their musket balls whippling, whistling about us. All missed. Well, pretty soon I had left the road and was galloping over deep leafy moss in the hope of evasion, of crossing into Switzerland without troubling the border guards. Monsaubier's voice was still too close as he yelled to his men to stop reloading and follow me. 
but their confusion had given me a minute's start, and I meant to use the old hunter to my advantage. One thing she was used to was a chase over rough ground. Thus I had the smallest chance of escape, and even should I be cornered I'd be able to choose territory more easily defended. With that in mind I had my sword unscabbarded, though its unique Tartar workmanship would identify me at once to anyone who knew aught of me. Suddenly I was out of the forest and riding up hill between snowdrifts, rocks and brush, blundering into depths which near drowned the horse, breaking through, galloping over virgin rain-spotted tracts of white, while behind came a floundering halloo. Like drunk English huntsmen, all ways in the saddle, legs sliding, bridles hauling up resistant heads, muskets going off, only Monsorbier himself rode at full gallop after me, his face against his horse's neck, his hair flying and tangling with the stallion's mane, his hat askew, a great pistol in his left hand, the harness in his right, a true rider with a horse to match his skill. Well, my own skill was equal, if not better. My nag, to my misfortune, was not. A pistol sounded in the frozen air, and I heard the ball hiss, saw snow start up and flint shiver immediately ahead. I felt relief that, with his pistol discharged, Monsoubier and I came closer to parity. If he drew far enough ahead of his own men, it would be worth fighting him in the hope of gaining a better horse as my prize. I heard him shout, Von Beck, I know you! This from a yard or two away. Why, I wondered how far it was to the border. Stop, traitor, you damned royalist! You'll be tried fair! He was near to pleading with me even offering me terms. He knew as well as I, however, that death was the only consequence of arrest in those days. So on I chased, risking all, driving my poor nag far too quick, hoping for some sign we were on Helvetian soil, where Monsorbier would follow only so far. We vaulted a frozen stream, careered through copses, came close to falling on a dozen hidden outcrops. Both mindless of the danger, while I panted and prayed the rush of air would dry my pistols, or that Monsorbier, now half a mile from his nearest soldier, would fall at the next jump, leaving his mount unhurt. Von Beck, you need not die, shouted my thin-lipped hounder of dukes and off went his second barker with a bang loud enough to stop my heart. And I'm demmed if powder didn't singe the sleeve of my miserable greatcoat. Zeus, thought I, it will be the worst end any man ever had to face to meet his mateka in a third-hand artois and a dirty neckcloth. Well, this consideration alone was enough to power the heels which rammed the rowels into my poor beast's bleeding flanks, and she was over a hedge so neatly trimmed I would swear it belonged to some Swiss Lansdorf. Though I rest in the fields, 
though the rest of the fields seemed too rich for that notoriously impoverished mountain folk, whose main industry was the export of mercenary soldiers to various courts abroad, especially to Rome. The Pope trusted them to guard him because, like hireling brigands everywhere, their firmest loyalty was to a full purse. Fanatic purpose is a mystery few Swiss can comprehend. They are not, as a rule, subject to fits of idealism. Their lives have been too hard for long centuries, so that, rich or poor, their main desire is for a warm hearth and a full belly. Only my friend La Harpe ever had any imagination amongst those mountaineers, and his was essentially a practical quality, not much coloured by excess. Next, I was sliding. With ears flat, back legs bent as if to squat, my horse bore us down towards a shallow valley brimming with unbroken snow. Some distance off through the sleep, I detected a single low thatched house from which gusted piney smoke. Another shot made me look up. At the crest of the hill stood Mont-Sauvier, reloading his second thunderer, and called after me, Fool! As if somehow I'd betrayed good taste and common sense by evading capture. My mare reached the valley floor, tried to stand in six foot of yielding snow, then keeled over with a groan and lay panting. She looked at the grey sky with unseeing, rolling eyes and enough steam issuing from her to power one of Trevethick's monstrous road engines. I disentangled my foot from the stirrup and peered back at Mont Sorbier, who now waved white and cried, Parlay! But the scarf was not easily visible amidst the general whiteness, so I felt free to assume I had seen nothing and dragged out one of my own pistols. The lock sparked, but the powder in the pan refused ignition, so I lost my best opportunity to rid myself of that troublesome foe. Truce, he yelled. We have something to discuss, brother. He was referring to older loyalties, but I was never much convinced of Illuminati advertisements and was contemptuous of his ploy. Henceforth, the world transforms herself without my help, I called back. Let me go, Monsormier. I'm no traitor, as you of all people must accept. Well, I have read the document of arrest. His breath poured in clouds, and I expected to see it in the captions of a political cartoon. He was hoping to keep me fixed until his men arrived, yet argument is one of my greatest temptations. Though I risked death for remaining where I was, I found myself replying, A mere restatement of the original tune, Mont Sauvier. Choose what you wish to believe. My reason for leaving France is that truths become altogether too malleable. I'll not revise my life and experience to accord with theory. Robespierre imposes only his disappointment upon a broken dream, and I refuse to be a victim of his dementia. Shall we guillotine the whole world as if she refuses to accord with your original optimism? 
You leave France in her moment of greatest need, like all the fine-talking fashion plates who thought revolution must come from the passing of a few hours, the changing of a few names. Well, I felt no pang of guilt. I leave, sir, because Robespierre wishes to lay blame everywhere but upon himself and his crazed delusions. Those delusions, sir, would lose me my head. My motive, therefore, is singular. More to the point, I'd essay than your own. Is this Switzerland, by the way? The border's a league or more to the north. I began inspecting my saddlebags. Now, yeah, well, I'll be on my way then, I think. You have made an enemy of me, Von Beck. An honest enemy is preferable to a perfidious friend, Count Monsolier. Good afternoon to you. I made to revive my horse, but she had died as we talked. Monsolier's dark brows were drawn together in a triumphant frown. I unstrapped my bags, considered the saddle, and chose to leave it, for it was in even worse condition now than when I had brought it at the ostler's. I began to wade out of the ditch, hearing Monsorbier yelling from the horizon above. He had retired and was at that moment invisible. Ten paces later, another pistol belched at my back, but I ignored it. Lecture! cried my miserable ex-fraternalist. Libertine! Turncoat! You'll not escape your punishment! Pretty soon I heard a scrabbling and confused shouting from the hillside. All the horsemen were cautiously descending. Monsorbier led them. Perhaps after all I was still on French soil? I began to experience a dull expectation of death. I was helpless to evade so many mounted men. However, I maintained my direction and waded on at last onto stonier ground. A track which appeared to pass the cottage ahead. I turned to see how far behind me they were. Their horses were tired and encumbered by the deeper drifts. Yet it would not be long before I was caught. I drew my tartar scimitar and dropped my saddlebags, running for the shelter of a nearby copse. Then I stopped in fresh apathy. Along the road before me came another detachment of some half a dozen well-equipped horsemen. All had muskets on their shoulders, giving them the appearance of regular soldiery. Well, it was plain then that Monsorbier had driven me into a trap. Chapter 2 in which I encounter young revolutionists, old soldiers, fresh friends and foes. I also fall in love. As they unlimbered carbines from their sturdy young backs, the martial party also moved their horses to form a wall across my road. At this I considered throwing myself on their mercy of surrendering in the hope they were regular soldiery, famously more merciful than the people's peacekeepers. I instantly experienced self-disgust, 
Since I was to die anyway, I determined to do so with a degree of dignity. Thus disposed, I put the point of my sabre to the frozen ground, and my wrist upon my hip in the attitude of a duelist awaiting his on guard. However, when six brown besses bellowed in unison, I was astonished, for the accuracy of the English gun was famous, first, that I was not struck, and secondly, I was not the target at all. I turned my head. Four of the National Guard were down. One horse kicked on the ground with red foam starting from his mouth. Two men gasped over cracked leg bones, while two more with arms flung back against the snow were stone dead. Monsoubier himself was in momentary retreat, riding hard for the security of what remained of his squadron, and yelling of demmed Swiss gentlemen bandits. Of a certainty, his description could have been truth. The young men shooting from the saddle were all decently dressed, used to hunting customs, and were armed in uniform, even to the swords at their belts, though the fashion they adopted was a year or two past. I was reminded of a youthful German landowners taking the opportunity of a holiday jaunt to Munich or Nuremberg, but their sashes, I would swear, contained the red, white, and blue of revolution. I decided we must surely be in Switzerland. Monsorbier knew, as well as I, the French government's policy for respecting Helvetian territory. Angering the Swiss Confederation could hamper France's policies elsewhere. If Monsoubier took my mysterious allies for Swiss, well then Swiss they must surely be. My adversary was wounded. Even as he rode, he clutched his shoulder, swaying badly. Reaching his own ranks, he lost his balance in the saddle and then fell directly into the arms of a comrade whose own leg was damp with blood. The great black Spanish courser drew up her knees, snorting her bafflement at being suddenly riderless. Fate offered a favoured second. Sword in hand, I demanded all of my legs and ran towards my pursuers, met them first head-on, cut him down, and with a final thrust of my calves mounted Monsorbier's Spaniard, turning her round once more towards Switzerland and the unknown landsmen. These elegant youths were casually re-priming their muskets as I galloped up. They were laughing and talking amongst themselves like lordlings at the pig-shoot, careless or unexpected of re unexpectant of retaliation. Oh, I'm much obliged, gentlemen, said I with a finger to my hat. One of their number, a boy with red cheeks and yellow hair, bowed in his saddle, always ready to serve a citizen of the Republic. His French was uninspired, his accent German by his gutturals. Those Swiss dogs have no nerve for an honest fight, eh, brother? Just so, said I, baffled by his logic, but grateful for the mistake. Just so, citizen. I was close to laughter as I realised how Monsoubier, by choosing to travel incognito without flags or cockades, had defrauded himself of my skin. The Germans again levelled their muskets on their shoulders, but this time they fired high in impressive unison, at which Monsoubier and his remaining men made their way with unseemly haste to the terraces and bushes of the valley walls. For a moment, my herborist pursuer stood upright, scowling and shaking his healthy arm at me. "'You've not escaped for long!' cried he, like a brigand in some Ritter und Raube tale. 
I'll find the Yvonne Beck. But I was laughing hard behind my hand, realising I was the only one of us to be wearing the full sash in favour of the revolution. He hesitated and then turned his back sharply, stamping up the hillside until he was gone from sight. See them scamper. One of the merry youths rocked in his saddle and joined me in my laughter. Is this France, monsieur? I used my amusement to disguise my further surprise and managed to utter a muffled, I thought this vogue in Switzerland. Their red-cheeked spokesman holstered his musket and rode closer to me. In confidence, sir, we're lost. We were seeking the border when we came upon you. Well, I'm mighty pleased you did, sir. Pray, why do you travel to France in these times? He was proud of his moral nobility. I saw in him my own self of only a few years since. We go to offer our services to the revolution in the name of the Universal Republic. I retained some fragments of my old conscience, and believed I owed it to them to reveal at least an outline of what they must now find in France. The revolution will welcome you as she welcomed me, said I, and I began to mop sweat from my forehead. Where do you come from, gentlemen? The answer to the simple question was also of some pride to them, a swarthy little cockerel in a red-hedged tricone on a slightly yellowed wig. walked his horse past me. Two from Poland, two from Bohemia, one from Venice, and one from Waldenstein, he informed me. He reached my fallen saddlebags and leaned down to pluck them up. He rode back as slowly as he had gone. We're part of a club, Monsieur, dedicated to republicanism and the rights of man. We were chosen by our fraternity to ride to France to offer our services to the cause. We are only six, but we are the representation of more than a hundred others. Their subscription equipped us. Gold well spent, murmured I, with considerable sincerity and gratitude, since they had saved my life. I am named Alexis Krasny, said the leader. He pointed out his comrades, one by one. Stefanik, moon-faced and bashful. Polyakov, assured, but a little dim-witted by the look of him. Stazakovsky, gloomy, sardonic, dark. Ferrari, the swarthy cockerel who now handed me my bags, and von Lutzow, pale, slavic and grinning. We saw your colours, and we bethought the Swiss sought to stop you reaching the safety of your homeland. Indeed, citizen Krasny, that's a good guess at the facts. I was getting the feel of my Spanish thoroughbred, believing it might soon be necessary to choose swift flight once more. My name's von Beck. Mary's teeth, sir, Stefanik was admiring and joyful, not the same who went to France with Clutes. I saw further advantage, so I acknowledged him gracefully, a modest bow. This is an honour, said Ferrari, suddenly less of a bravo, and the others joined in the flattering chorus. In truth, I had no notion of my fame, and unfortunately became still more conscientious in the light of this new responsibility. I'd advise you, says I to the whole party, that I'm no hero to the Republic. Payne is jailed, and so could Clutes himself be by now. Half the people who came with us to Paris are either dead, in prison, or fled. Robespierre rules France as a king, and terror attacks innocent and guilty alike. Yet the tricolour remains in your hat, sir, said Krasny, in boyish innocence. Well, so it does, sir. I was in two minds. 
Would these young idealists have told my whole circumstance the mistake they had just committed promptly turn upon me and arrest me? Thus, sir, you show yourself not completely disillusioned, said Stefanik, his round face glowing in the cold air. If all men of goodwill employed their energies in our cause, the injustices can surely be corrected. We have travelled a great distance, sir, to assist in your struggle. We met with suspicion and ostracism all the way from Austria, and even here in Switzerland. He put a thumb upon his discreet sash. I feared that, in giving him the negative view, I pulled the very bread of life from a baby's hand. You'll meet with great suspicion in modern France, gentlemen. Foreigners are almost all assumed natural traitors by the mob, and the mob has no taste for fine argument. You'd be dead and stripped before you could cry Jacobin. Krasny fought for his bit of spiritual sustenance. I fear that's mighty hard to believe, sir. Schiller? Beethoven? Wilberforce? Pestalozzi? De Paul? George Washington himself? All the honorary citizens of France. Uh, as are you, sir. It is a brotherhood extending beyond nations. No longer. I raised my hand, bored and even afeard of these familiar phrases. Believe me, I beg you, gentlemen, turn your attentions to some other moral purpose. Or that of Poland's liberty, for instance. Her plight is more easily comprehended. Poland wants nothing but a king and bishops free to exploit whatever Russia and Prussia already claim for themselves, said Stashikovsky. Klutz preaches international liberation of the common people. So we concluded in a conversation amongst ourselves that Poland's freedom begins in France. Klutz's freedom ends in France. I swore at myself for my foolishness in pressing this point, And mark me, my young brothers, so shall your own. Krasny avoided my snatch at his heart's food and was firm in his reply. We shall try our luck at any rate, citizen, though we respect your opinions. Can we escort you partway on your journey, sir? Do you head for Dion? I stretched a hand behind me. The last of Monsorbier's men could be observed labouring up to the crest of the steep hillside. France lies yonder where those guardsmen flee. I hesitated for a moment. Myself, I journey to Lausanne. My revolutionary years ended with the last days of this past December. And why, Monsieur Hensny, why should you ever wish to leave the sanity and justice of Wildenstein? By repute, she's the most contented nation on earth. <laughs> contented burghers make poor insurgents, he said soberly. It's dull, my homeland, with self-importance and piety. Well then, sir, said I, it's plain to me it's the romance and adventure of revolution you're hungry for. You'll find plenty of the former in France just now, probably to your cost, but your romantic notions will scarcely survive, I think. Well, up piped the young Slav von Lutzow. Surely, sir, if France's situation is as you describe, our ideals are unfounded and the world is ruled by the seven vices, by the devil himself. Your hopes are not unfounded, sir, I replied. Neither shall I presume to question your generosity, your optimism, your faith even your capacity to impose a little justice here and there upon the world. It is your sense of the horrid realities of life which is faulty, what we may truly term the common sense. It was lack of this sense, of a proper education in the motives of the vulgar people, which brought me to this pass. 
At the sound of what they might reasonably believe to be familiar pomposity, they became impatient and showed their moon, but their mood by many little gestures, arranging their harness, straightening their backs in their saddles, adjusting their spurs, pulling their hats forward on their heads. These signs I took as indications that persuasion was impossible, so I saluted them. I bid you bon voyage and bonne chance, gentlemen. I thank you for my rescue. I trust in turn you keep your heads. Whereupon I rode my fine new horse, replete with a sabre and pistols, holstered on an excellent Castilian saddle, towards the cottage where now two women, one young, one middle-aged, stared from their gate. Then if you flee France, sir, came Krasny's puzzled complaint. Well, who were those soldiers? Members of the National Army, sir, that which serves the Committee of Public Safety. I plucked the cockade from my hat and threw it back to Krasny, and then I was off at a smart trot, bowing to the ladies and complimenting them on the prettiness of their valley, the loveliest in vogue. They grinned and did not contradict me. I was in Switzerland. The mountains ahead of me were clear of political sanctities and hypocrisies. All I need fear in them were the usual natural dangers and the attacks of brigands who, if they cut my throat, would do it not for a cause but for a crust or two of bread. The air had a wholesome freshness to it of a sudden. The road again grew steeper and the snow heavier as I ascended into the Alps proper. Peaks were soon in view as the sky cleared to a vivid blue. I, like nature, was suddenly tranquil. She revealed herself, noble and monumental in white and green, with black veins of rock and snow-covered pastures. Here, from time to time, little cottages, their thatched roofs stretched among almost to the ground, crouched in sheltered ridges. Rooks and crows sprang up into the air at the vibrations of my trotting Spaniard. Those enormous pinnacles, one of the most uplifting sights on earth, outstripping even the Appalachian grandeur of America. The only others I have witnessed to compare, well, lately I have seen engravings of the Rocky Mountains, which seem, if the artist has not exaggerated, an equal to the Alps. This vast pile of natural beauty, those crags and fir trees and hovering hawks, whose echoing ravines and vast tumblings of snow and earth brought me swiftly to the understanding of my own insignificance, and indeed the insignificance of all human struggle. Thus absorbed in philosophic generalities, I scarcely noticed the growing twilight in my admiration of a scarlet sunset, staining every detail with its bloody light. As luck would have it, I was once again upon a fair-sized Toby, as my old friends of vagabond days used to call the high road. Twice I was passed by coaches, whose drivers informed me of a reasonably clean and cheaply priced inn some five miles distant. As the sun faded, I entered a kind of corridor of trees, whose interwoven branches blocked almost all the remaining light, and whose sweetness of scent came close to overwhelming me as it seemed I entered another world. A world where winter had turned to spring and peace triumphed universally. Soon after I heard the rattle of a four-horse coach ahead, travelling at fair speed. As I approached, the driver whipped his horses recklessly, almost as if he feared pursuit. The thought came to me that perhaps this road had a reputation for attracting rogues and highwaymen. I paused him with a friendly halloo, 
so as to assure him of my own pacific intent, but he did not answer save to crack his long whip over his team. He had a lantern on a post by his head, and it cast shadows into his cape. All I could detect were eyes reflecting the yellow light. Was it my fancy made those eyes appear to glare at me with unwarranted ferocity? Whether this was true or not, I changed my mind about requesting his permission to ride beside his lantern. The darkness indeed became attractive by comparison. I left his cold yet fiery gaze in the tunnel as I broke out onto a grey landscape, now considerably colder, and with the mountains forming a black wall on every side. My clothing was still damp. I was like to freeze on my newly stolen saddle if I did not reach the inn soon after dark. If the air had not been dry and keeping the altitude, I might well have perished there and then. At last I perceived a glimmering on the curve of the road, and this soon became the cheering, diffused glow of several fires, lamps and candles on the other side of thick green glass panes while the sign on a gallows post proclaimed the building as Le Coq d'Or. Almost every hostelry in Switzerland was named so in those days, the Swiss prizing conformity above all else. While beyond this was an archway leading to a large courtyard. The inn was of a good size and thoroughly appointed. I was approving, as very soon after my entry into the yard, ostlers with candle-boxes were immediately on hand to take the bridle and lead my horse to a well-earned grooming and a meal of oats. Saddlebags shouldered and cloak dusted off as best it could be, I made my way through passages of old oak and older stone to the public room. Here I stood by the fire, steaming away like a coaster's brazier, and causing chagrin to two priests, an Everdon farmer and a couple of heavily armed freelance warriors on their way, they said cautiously, to enlist with the Prussians and save France. I had unwound my sash and stripped off my jackboots and greatcoat for the one-eyed innkeeper to take to his wife for her attention, but doubtless I remained the picture of the communard, and my lank hair, unshaved face and ungentlemanly apparel. It will take more of a pair... <clears throat> it will take more than a pair of Switzer bravos to do that, said I, but you might as well try. For my part, I failed in the attempt, which is why I am presently taking myself as far from France as possible. Let him rot, is my view. You've just come out of France then, sir, said the elder priest in the eager accents of Provence. What news for us? I was no friend of his class, but yet was in little mood for judging or lecturing. I told him simply that priests were no longer being murdered piecemeal, which was true. But Guillotine's machine remains at work night and day, in capital and departments alike, I added. Many believe this will only end if Robespierre himself is killed. My opinion is that he's too cautious to expose himself to a Mademoiselle Corday. So he remains the people's darling, said the old priest in a sour tone. Let the mob stay on his side, I said, putting mulled wine of poor sweetness to my lips, and he'll rule France forever. If the mob turns, and tis ever a fickle creature, he'll fall. Yet that, in, yet that event's unlikely, eh? The priest was anxious for my denial. I could not give it. Sir, 
said I cruelly. It is impossible. Well, that speaks poorly for our family's famous second sight. At this, the priest's novice chimed in with a peal or two of his own. He was an angular, spiderish creature, prominently pale, with a tendency to blubber his lips when he spoke. Well, truly the devil's come to earth, this Robespierre, as the Antichrist so many have predicted. He will rise to his greatest power next year. Damn, sir, I retorted, if the Antichrist has not been predicted every other month since Anno Domini won. How many can there be? If there were as many about as the oracles predict, we'd be knee-deep in him. There would be more Antichrist on earth than ordinary folk. I found myself grinning at my own jest, and I looked around the room. The odds are that seven out of every eight people in this inn are Antichrists. This set the marshals to guffawing, but it merely made the young priest bluster. Before he could reply to me, however, a clerkish fellow spoke up from the back. I had seen him slip in a few moments before. He wore the weeds of a bookman, and he ran his gloved fingers up and down his beaker with the distant air of private mirth so common to many of his calling, the kind who have much borrowed wisdom but little original wit. Is not the French mob as you describe, sir? Could you not argue for the congregation of a massive antichrist as opposed to one? Would that congregation not be more effective than a single individual? Could Robespierre be no more than the crest upon the cockerel, the cockerel comprised in turn of a million peasants or what have you? Perhaps, sir, perhaps, said I, scenting a tame boar, as it were, and wandered in from the barren forest of unearned learning. But this was not enough to stop him. One could tell how pleased he was with his humour. And might not that cockerel be in reality a cockatrice, his claws the claws of hellish revenge upon Christ's followers, his breath the breath of damnation, to set afire the whole world as a beacon, summoning all our souls to judgment? This aroused curiosity only in the wretched, blubbering novice, who must come in eagerly with, you ask these questions, sir, as if the answers are already known to you. The elder priest turned to his Latin chapbook and his cup of ale, clearly no more willing than myself to maintain this deadly flow. I merely converse, brother, said the bookman piously. I offer speculation, never opinion. I was determined not to be trapped between the pair, so yawned loudly and spoke crudely with the impatience of a dedicated revolutionary official. Well, master schoolman, the majority here are uninterested in your fancies. Speaking for myself, my feet are planted four square on this hearthstone. My brain's weary, incapable of handling only the simplest of facts, connected with my body's necessities. Imagination brings only bad luck, believe me. Mine, at least, had a little originality in its day. Yours, sir, is all on hire from a library. By God, sir, it gives off a dust which even now irritates my nose. Let me not sneeze, sir, all over your fine weeds." At my snub, he retired into his demi-octavo, but I was still threatened by his blushing co-philosopher, the novice priest. I turned on him with the habits of one who has been both a professional fighting man and a professional politician. And as for Robespierre, said I, remarking to my surprise, how the novice became unnaturally coloured as if blood slowly filled up a parsnip from within, He's the very model of fallible mankind. The novice was taking as a personal matter my slicing of the clerk. 
I know him well enough, I continued. He's vain. His vanity's hurt by the world's refusal to accept his remedies and become immediately enlightened. And what does a vain man do when insulted, sir? The novice was now red as a boiled-over cooking pot. He hissed a little at me. It seemed all the liquors were evaporating. He lashes out, sir, says I. He seeks to portion blame. He fumes, sir. He attacks. In the case before us, such as his despotic power, he kills. He kills, sir. He wars on other nations. Mary's blood, sir, but this poor sphere of ours suffers more from the single frustrated egoist than from any natural or supernatural misery. Your own church's history, sir, illustrates my point well enough, eh? We are too frequently in the powers of mad children who rage and stamp and break kingdoms as they break toys. They order thousands of deaths a day as if they were spoiled brats kicking at their dolls. I had overstretched my statement and foolishly, through my weariness, invited further reply. Those who respect God do not behave thus, said our Provencal priest very primly. I uttered a laugh. The Pope cannot respect God in that case, sir. I'll not attack your faith, Father, but all your church provides for is a superior excuse for the same behaviour as Robespierre's, sometimes expressed quite as dramatically and executed with much the same apparent self-control as the dictator's. Was Richelieu any less guilty than Robespierre? The Huguenots did not think so, and the Cardinal also acted, he said, for the good of France. The priest shook his head at this. You have witnessed much distress, my son. I bridled. Sir, I am not your son. Your choice of words assumes an authority over me you do not possess. My radicalism, I thought to myself, was going to be less easily suppressed than I had supposed. His miserable wheedling, having failed to gain him his expected effect on me, he became at once offended. Your experience has taught you nothing, sir. He raised himself to his feet, and with a fuss or two at his cassock, herded self and novice off to bed, disappointed in his hopes for a grateful penitent, a comfortable ally in me. The two mercenaries were amused, and offered to stand me a further flagon. Since they were the only company I found at all congenial, I accepted their proffered jugs and warmed my bones with the contents. The youthful soldier, who was called Bambosh, had a pronounced limp, which he used for self-mocking comedy. His merry face was of the kind, as we used to say, to charm its owner out of a noose. He was joining the Prussians to avenge his brother, he informed me. Bambosh Major had been executed by the Revolution, he had been a member of Louis's own Swiss Guard. The older warrior was thick-set, matter-of-fact, a rogue with a cropped head, scars visible on every inch of his exposed skin. He told me that while he found French peasants obnoxious, their women were attractive enough, so fighting was better for him than staying at home where both women and men were unsightly. He had tried farming beyond Geneve and had become bored. The work was no different in the effort expended, he said, but it took longer. One's free hours were far too few, and the choice of one's accompany severely limited. His name was Ulrich von Altdorf. He was a musketeer. He pointed to three swaddled guns in the corner. All good English pieces, he said, from Baker in London, and rifled for greater range, 
though the twist was not as exaggerated as in some of Baker's other guns. You could loose in accuracy what you gained in distance. But they make a good musketeer, and his loader the equal to a platoon in battle at long range. He was content to dismiss politics and lecture me on weaponry. I was weary enough to listen while half an ear while with half an ear while his hobby horse was ridden through half the countries of the world, the quality of their steel and their skills at gunsmithery fully discussed. At length, drunk, I was ready for, for my bed. My two companions readily helped me up a flight or two of stairs to the garret with its row of truckles. Onto these, one by one, we fell, having made only the poorest effort to disrobe. Happily, they were no more fastidious and smelled no worse than I. My dreams were of pursuit, of ancient monsters growling and furious as they sought to break free of the earth's deepest caverns, of an astonishing sweetness of atmosphere which filled my whole being with happiness, of hellfire and Satan himself in a sea-green coat and a perfect cravat, hooking innocents by their pleading mouths and swinging them with busy aplomb into the furnaces. I awoke briefly in a sweat, put my nightmares down to bad company and worse wine and returned to sleep, whereupon I dreamed I searched through rocky tunnels for the source of that sweetness I had earlier experienced. In the morning, as we shared a jug of water in a basin, I asked the musketeers, since I must soon pass through that country, what they knew about Bohemia at the present time. They had little to offer. Austria, her Ulrich, informed me, was by all accounts an easy-going master. As a result, Bohemia was effectively self-ruling. If you're unwelcome in all these empires, sir, he suggested, you should go to Venetia. He was adamant in his recommendation. The Republic of Venice, though somewhat severe and certain of her laws, could not penalise a properly contrite ex-revolutionist. With a smile of gratitude, I told him that my Italian was poor and my Latin not much better. I was anxious that they should not learn my true destination, lest they inadvertently release the information to my pursuers. I have a mind to make myself rich, I told Ulrich. I've been a poor fighting man all my life. I had thought to set up business in Prague, where, in the main, persons of consequence speak my native German. Well, said Ulrich with consideration, I've been in service in Venice, and I've seen service in Prague too. The only two advantages of the latter is that she's closer to Berlin and has drier streets. This simple joke heartily amused Bambosch, who, in his response, nigh spilled water over us all. But the whores are better natured in Prague, added Herr Ulrich as an afterthought, if not so pretty, and cheaper by my recollection, though I'm not a man as often had to part with silver for a woman's favours. Holding back the remark that, since all men claimed the same thing, it was a wonder how the poor whores managed to keep body and soul together. Moreover, I preferred courtlier references to the fair sex. I withdrew from the conversation while I shaved off my whiskers with a dry razor, and then clad me in what had become my best, red nankeen frock coat, with waistcoat of a slightly paler shade, both held by amethyst buttons, sleek white buckhide breeches, which clarified every muscle they covered, fine doeskin riding boots, 
and atop this a fair peruke in need of dusting, but still with a trace of the old-fashioned violet powder I favoured. My linen was crisper than might reasonably be hoped after its hasty cramming into my bags, and my neckcloth came to my chin in a fairly decent ruffle. I was again a dandy to rival Robespierre, and my sword buckled in its undisguised scabbard of royal blue-gilded leather, I felt immediately more confident than upon the previous day. The soldiers, however, became less candid and friendly as my dress improved. I quickly mollified them with a wink that they might guess me a rogue in gentleman's tailorings, and, despite contrary appearances, still one of themselves. I made a sardonic leg which had the older man grinning and the lame boy howling again. One must dress rich to get rich, I observed, and a widow who's not impressed by a rich man's fortune will frequently have her head turned by a poor man's breeches. Ha <laughs> said Ulrich approvingly. So you have a plan to marry for your money, or for my initial capital only. Ulrich put one red butcher's hand upon my silken shoulder. Then Prague is, after all, your best choice, brother. He stepped back from me as if I were a painting in a gallery. Those Venetian families are mighty clannish and careful with what or whom their fortunes wed. The Bohemians, on the other hand, are always grateful for any attention. <laughs> Gravely, I thanked him for his advice and refused offence, even when he added in a thoughtful tone, You'd have to be able to use that odd-looking blade in Venice whereas the Pragas are impressed merely by a flash of steel. It was on my tongue's tip to take exception to this and boast of my Tartar training, but it would have shown poor taste other than to bow again, thank him graciously, and find some token compliment in return. This latter proved unnecessary, for just then his attention was distracted by noises from outside and below us. Ulrich cocked an ear, it was the sound of booted feet and the jangling of a great many harnesses. I knew the signature of regular cavalry, and I could guess its identity. I picked up my saddlebags and descended the narrow stair to the first landing. Through a window I looked down into the inn-yard. The coach I had passed that night was being prepared for the road. I saw a pretty little lady's maid step in, her quick smile unreturned by the dour coachman, who did not look quite such a sinister monster as he had in the gloom. On the coach's door I could now distinguish a discreet coat of arms which looked vaguely oriental and was not at all familiar. I guessed the coach's occupants to have reached the inn soon after me and gone immediately to their chambers. I now hoped I had been wrong in my opinion, that I had heard Hassan's. Several sturdy fellows standing near the coach wore dark coats and were heavily armed. All had a French appearance, but it was easily possible they were royalists turned brigand. However, I was swiftly informed of the truth when their leader emerged from the doorway below my feet. I saw only his back at first. He was tall and slender, his left arm bandaged inside his half-buttoned military coat. His tone was arrogant and impatient, and I recognised it. Robert de Montsorbier had divested himself of his tricolour sash, and I guessed was making no claims to represent the French government. He turned to speak to an ostler coming up behind him. Montsorbier's face was pale and set in harsh lines. Prove it! Prove that my own horse belongs to me! Bah! 
he had evidently found his stolen Spaniard. Without a horse, I was afraid I should find escape impossible. Nonetheless, I crept down the remaining flight of stairs, entered the kitchen, found it deserted, picked up some cold pork and cheese, and then returned to the stair to find a window where I could gain intelligence of Monsobier's position. I had reached a higher landing when I was alarmed by a sweet voice speaking with great merriment from above. What, sir? Can't pay the tally? I turned with thudden heart, thudding heart, barely remembering to hold the food away from my nankeen coat. Half in shadow, half in a beam of winter sunlight, stood a figure of the most striking good looks I had ever beheld. I could not initially be sure if it were youth or maiden, until she moved further into the light and I realised she wore skirts. Her head was large, and though her complexion was fair, her dark eyes were huge and her wonderful face was framed by brown curls. It was her broad shoulders and slim waist which gave her a slightly masculine look. Here was a woman with whom I could immediately fall in love. She embodied in flesh and blood the ideal of whom I had still occasionally dreamed. I paused, chewing slowly on a bit of tough pork crackling, and stared at her. Then I recovered my good manners enough to bend my body like a gallant of old, and a Tatar gesture, which stood me well in the waist, salaamed to indicate that I was at her service. I hoped she might be enchanted, and it was true she seemed pleased by me, but she lost none of her clear-eyed assessment of my person. Must I pay your reckoning for you, sir? You are clearly a gentleman, and I would not see you so demeaned as this. The crackling secreted in my hand, I shook my head. You misunderstand, man. I am pursued by enemies, kingslayers, who kill me if I do not immediately escape them. I could fight half their number, but these are too many. You're a scalawag then, sir? And those dutiful bully boys who peer with such rudeness into my private carriage, are they policemen? No, ma'am. They serve the Public Safety Committee of France, and I'm wanted as a royalist. She absorbed this information, nodding to herself. She began to button up her coat, which was cut like a man's hunting jerkin, and to pull on long gloves as if she prepared for a day's hunting. What's their leader named? Robert de Monsorbier, ma'am. But no threat can frighten him, no gold can pay him. He puts duty first and mercy a poor second. I know his kind. I, by the by, sir, am called Lebusa, Duchess of Crete. The house was unknown to me, but it should have my loyalty forever. Her bones seemed delicate, but were strong and large. Her skin looked soft as fine silk and glowed with health, a kind of wholesome fieriness which spoke of great strength of soul and of purpose. Her face, so serious in repose, so bright when lit by a witty retort was exquisite. She truly could have been the goddess of reason come down to earth. So struck was I by her beauty and character that I checked my usual responses, the kind I would normally make to a pretty woman. Where otherwise I might have played amusing fop and plotted conquest, I could conceive of no game in which this fair Madonna would not easily best me. I wished to have her respect more than I wished for anything in the world, so I merely presented myself, giving name and title, and 
stating my business and intentions. You'll require a friend to distract them while you escape, eh, sir, says she. Aye, madam, t'would be of great help. Then get you as close as you can to the stable, sir. I obeyed. I would have done naught else. I was mesmerised by her. Republican feet stamped upon the landlord's gravy-stained boards. I fled to the back cloakroom, becoming lost in a collection of clothing which stank of every animal under the sun, but chiefly of man, yet could still hear my benefactress addressing the Frenchers with haughty impatience. Monsorbier's retort was swift. We seek a common horse thief, ma'am, tis all. Should you come upon a little blown-up gamecock of a fellow, either wearing a coat two sizes too big, or breeches one size too small, I'd thank you for giving us word of him. It was all I could do from to stop myself from springing from my hiding place there and then and tearing his throat out with my own teeth. There was no comfort to me that his insults were the result of my having bested him so thoroughly the day before. My labusse's tone was now placatory and charming. Indeed, sir, might his name have been Von Beck? Or so he styles himself, I. Why, I saw him off last night. So that horse was not his own. Lud, sir, and such a fine dapple. A half-arab, I'd swear. Fresh horse, said Monsorbier, taking her red herring. Which way, ma'am, did the villain write? Oh, I cannot recall, sir. My impression was that he travelled in our direction, however. Aye, I'd swear it. He said something of risking the danger alone. Well, sir, that's the Lausanne Road, of course. Since you'll be going in that direction, I take it you'll be kind enough to give us escort, at least part way, sir. The pass is famous for its brigands, is it not? Mm, we chase von Beck. Monsorbier then addressed one who was evidently the innkeeper. You dog, why did you not say he'd taken another mount? I saw none missing, sir. The innkeeper's voice quavered. A dapple, you say, madam? Perhaps then tis the property of one of the priests. I heard them all tramp out of the inn and enter the front yard. Creeping from the closet, I peered through a shutter onto the yard itself. Just as the two Helvetian knights-at-arms swaggered in view all jutted scabbards and pistoled cross-belts, bits of leather and metal here and there almost at random upon their persons, Ulrich sniffed and glanced challengingly at Monsorbier. The dapple captain was my beast. The innkeeper was taken aback. Well, yours was a rowan, surely. I took her in myself. The dapple, you fool! Ulrich would have been a mummer in a pantomime with his exaggerated gestures. With the packs, the boy here was leading her. Bambosh, now you remember, eh? In baffled defeat, the landlord acquiesced. Ulrich next strode up to Monsorbier, glancing directly into the angry Frenchman's face. Ulrich spoke with measured insolence. What company do you serve? Not cavalry by your rig, and not infantry by your boots and arsenal. You have the smell of Frenchies to me. But what sort of Frenchie? Aristo or Regicide? Tis plain you ain't Confederation, fellows. I realised Ulrich performed this charade in order to benefit me, to confuse the pursuer. I'm as Swiss as you, sir, muttered Monsorbier, sensing a ploy, but uncertain to, as to its nature. Now, sir, you say this rogue took your dapple? A mare, was it? Liar! 
Ulrich puffed himself up, all rattling gorget and creaking harness. Liar, I say, sir. You're no Switzer. From Bern, said Monsorbier in a small, terrible voice. Ulrich looked the enraged Monsorbier up and down, took a bend to one side and then to the other, arms akimbo. These were all the familiar tricks of a belligerent professional duelist, and to be sure Monsorbier recognised them as well as I. But he refused the paper, refused the bait. He held his ground, face and neck bright red on his thin, dark body, like a bloodied spear topped by a black shield. He hated Ulrich, but could not be sure how many comrades the mercenary could call upon, and he wanted no extra trouble since he was illegally in Switzerland. Where's your papers, Frenchy? demanded the Swiss Bravo. I'm on a private mission, sir, and have no wish to fight a fellow soldier. Monsorbier gritted fine white teeth so hard I thought I'd hear them crumble to powder. We hunt the man who stole your horse. He's sought in France for treason, posted in Russia for an assassin, a rogue through and through, sir. <laughs> of which there are none in all the Helvetian republics, as you'd know if you were a true Swiss. What's this fellow really stolen, sir? Ulrich put his sinister, amiable face on one side. Well, your damned horse, sir, for a beginning. Monsorbier's tempered, released itself in the sound, like steel leaving leather. What, the Rowan? Monsorbier turned to look at his uncertain followers. They seemed embarrassed, yet were hiding some amusement. Young Bamboche limped back into my picture. Evidently he had returned from the stable yard. Someone's taken the dapple! His loud exclamation was so melodramatic he might have been another actor in the Italian comedy. What was plain to me, however, was not plain to Monsorbier, who had never served in the ranks nor got himself drunk with those who did. Bamboche was performing a ritual, old soldier style, which in itself was the normal preparation for a brawl. Why'd the German take your horse, comrade? Bamboche looked this way and that, and then fixed a glare upon Monsorbier. Is this gentleman involved? Well, he's a French notary, apparently, said Ulrich with feigned patience. He claims my dapple's stolen by von Beck, who is like a brother to us. Bamboche turned round eyes upwards, questioning Monsorbier. You say, sir, you saw Captain von Beck riding my comrade's horse? When was this, sir? Or well, that was not my exact accusation. Monsorbier was cold now. Bamboche looked to Ulrich. When did you find the horse gone? I did not. The Frenchie says the Rowan's gone too. Go to the stable and see. Ulrich fixed Monsorbier with a stern glare. For my part, I'd fear for the Swiss if he and the other were matched in different circumstances. But the farce continued to be played through, and my lady Lubusa, with her maid looking on, as was as if it was a box in the opera. Monsorbier was hating being made to seem such a fool. He breathed slowly and looked hard at his turned-back cuffs, plucked at frogging, put the heel of his boot in slushy dirt and ground it as if crushing a vermin. But all this, while every individual in the yard understood that the tension could snap and bloody swordplay become the order of the day. 
Raising a fresh-trimmed brow, my lady, pouted to display a patch in this gesture, filled me with shivering lust, such as I had not known since Catherine used me in her game with Prince Pushkin, when I was young enough to thrill at any promise, being barely seventeen summers. But this excelled all previous sensation. Even the episode with the Delaware woman I alluded to in my previous memoir. Blood. If this witch could move me with a smile, what ecstasies could her touch command? I was already Cupid's most abject slave. I dared not let myself speculate upon my chances of winning this lady's favour, for I was already threatened by the madness of Eros, as if a love potion and a remedy for falling ardour had been fed to me both at once. I was a man of reason, said I to myself, a cynic, though not the libertine of repute, who planned to marry a plain rich woman and so found a great fortune. Yet I hoped that I had intrigued the lady at very least. I had an undeserved reputation, little short of Casanova's, and sometimes this attracted women, particularly those who felt secure in their circumstances. The fact was that I knew little of the Empress's charms. I had been a pawn in some plot which doubtless had little point. Had I indeed been everything my legend credited me as being, I might doubtless be dead. Catherine rewarded discarded lovers, it was said, with icy death from her balcony. She was famous for her Pomeranian thrift. Back came Ulrich's loader. His tone was baffled and accusatory. The rowan's in the stable. It's not even saddled. So she can't be stole, said Ulrich reasonably. You call this man thief unjustly, sir. And now he blossomed into his role, almost grinning at the furious Monserbier. No Swiss. No Swiss man of honour, that is. No Swiss of any character at all, no Swiss person, however mean his station, would wish to be guilty of breaking the fifth, or, or is it the eighth, commandment? Are you satisfied, therefore, that the matter's settled, sir? Shall you skulk back to your democracy, sir, and inform Monsieur Robespierre that you have accused a man wrongly? He stole my horse, said Monsorbier. Accustomed always to having his way, to winning all arguments, to riding all defences, he had not the sense to drop the debate there and then. He stole my horse not twenty miles from here at Carbine Point. I was shot by him and his company, sir. Now play no more with me, and do... I see you're a well-meaning fellow, and you think you do right, but be assured, Von Beck's a thief and a ruffian who wants a smart hanging... The black hunter was stolen, asked Bambosh, his blue eyes still wider, in fine imitation of bumpkin simplicity. He should not be a soldier, thought I. He should be performing Moliere. The black horse, sir? Big Spaniard, sir? Saddle of fine Moorish work? Madrid style? Brass irons? Monsorio saw what was planned. Very well, I'll accept your verdict. I know my horse is here. A true democrat, sir, but look you, these priests may have a vote. What do you vote, brothers? Is von Beck a thief? The old tonsured, dried-up Father Sebastian mumbled as he lurked back in the shadows of the gables. What's that? Bamboche cupped his hand to his ear. The priest complained about that scalawag's godlessness, and was convinced without any doubt I was all Monsorbier had said me to be. Is he a wanted outlaw? 
I, father, said Monsorbier politely to one of those whom he had cheerfully sent to the gallows in dozens only a few weeks earlier. He has left a black trail across half the world. In Russia, through most of Europe, even in the Americas, a traitor to Saxony, assassin of crowns, he is vice personified. Monsorbier spoke with unseemly relish. I began to fear that my lady, my new light of existence, should believe him, and was close to flinging myself through the shutters and sword in hand, defending my honour to the death. Master Ulrich, however, was himself by way of defending my name as he moved on his insteps, a little closer to his prey. You say, sir, he's wanted in France. For what? For plots against the king, sir? For betraying your enemies, the Saxons? I am only a dim musketeer, sir, and fail to understand these paradoxes. I'd be obliged, sir, if you'd enlighten me. Monsorbier, so used to power and the obedience of others, was again locked into rageful inactivity. His anger did not best him, but he was white-hot by now, and his fingers were lost in his fists. I am bored with this, sir. His words were only audible for a yard or two, and I would not have caught them had I not been familiar with the voice. I'll drop all charges and continue about my business. Charges? You've authority here? Sir? Here in Vaud? Monsorbier made a movement, little more than twitch of his arm, and I feared for Master Ulrich's life. As it happened, just then, one of Monsorbier's disguised National Guard led into the yard the Spaniard I had borrowed. Monsorbier was all solicitous attention suddenly. He studied the saddle as if all as if for scratches, noted that the pistols were still holstered and the sabre in place. He looked at his horse's eyes and teeth, felt at her joints, reassured himself in what seemed genuine anxiety that she was unharmed. Then he put boot to stirrup, seated himself, and stared securely down at Ulrich, who stood leaning on the shoulder of Bamboche, the pseudo-simpleton. Monsorbier's eyes were colder than all snows of Switzerland. I greatly hope you gentlemen shall soon find yourself in my part of the world, so that I may return your hospitality. Another figure entered the picture and helped again to break the violent ambience. Out came the schoolman in his Quaker hat and grey inky cloak, with strapped, oil-skinned books and a thong over his arm. His voice was blurred as if he had overslept. His skin, I noted, was almost as coarse and dirty and grey as his garments. Is that the Lausanne coach? says he, indicating my lady's carriage. Tis the coach of the Duchess of Crete, Monsorbier offered a nod and a small smile to his only other potential ally in the gathering. The clerkish fellow blinked, saw my lady, removed his hat, and to display greasy hair dressed in a kind of half-hung plait. He seemed to recognise her, or at least her title. I'm Meister Karl Platz, your ladyship. He was momentarily disturbed by what he understood to be a serious faux pas, and stood fidgeting in the mud of the yard. Monsorbier was easy-mannered, almost unctuous in his courtesies, as he too lifted his heavy bicorn. We'll gladly ride escort to ye, ma'am, until the pass is forwarded. He had found a graceful means of extracting himself from his embarrassment. To disguise his own confusion, the schoolman shouted rudely at the innkeeper, Not the Lausanne coach! Odds fish, why are you all so late? 
I've waited an hour or more in my chamber, packed and ready. Snow will be falling by noon. Look. It was true that white armies of clouds appeared behind the eastern mountains. Meister Platz sighed. What shall I do? He readied himself for the plod back to his apartment. But then my lady, who had been speaking quietly to Ulrich, called out from her window. How far do you travel, sir? Oh, how I wish she'd address those words to me. My body was consumed with a fresh wave of flame. To Lausanne. My post is in Lausanne. Platz was pettish and surly. My destination too, and Everdon. Come in, sir. She flung open the coach door, but Platz hesitated the fool. You're welcome, said she. The more we are, the snugger we'll be. I understood now that my wonderful ally was striving to draw off every possible enemy. And you, reverend sirs, she spoke most sweetly to those silly priests. The young novice started forward, but old Sebastian held him back. Thank you, my lady, we have our own horses. He stared into the blue and cream upholstery with considerable regret. However, we'll ride along with your party, if you'll agree, for safety. Best check the stables, father, said Ulrich, striding off in that direction. The Gallic general here thinks some duchy's stolen an entire herd, as far as I can tell. Why, even claims the horse he rides has taken up the road to Freiburg. Perhaps there's a magic horse, eh, sir, that can split itself in twain whenever it's needed to go in more than one direction. He clearly had decided that he had had the best of the encounter with Monsorbier. With a mocking, conqueror's laugh, he was gone from the stage before me. I knew I should go soon to meet him, that he was in league with my lady, but I wanted one last look at my vision of perfect womanhood. Monsorbier, having lost any habits of common badinage he might once have possessed, could only shout at his men to mount in good order, straighten their hats, which now conspicuously lacked their red, white and blue cockades, and prepare themselves to leave. Yet he wondered, I could tell, to, as the old musketeer had meant him to wonder, if perhaps I was in truth galloping on a borrowed half-Arab for Freiburg, that he, Monsorbier, had committed himself to escorting a pretty gentlewoman to Lausanne, the same blue-blooded, fastidious woman of wit and education whom he would, on his home territory, have thrown in a cart to be summarily beheaded by the merciful machine of sweet-natured Dr. Joseph, Ignacia Guillotine. You'll not desert us, sir, I hope, called out my benefactress, turning those huge, wonderful eyes upon him. I almost swooned. Without your generosity, sir, we should be in grave danger of encountering brigands. Think what would happen to my maid and I, not to mention this learned gentleman and two of Christ's servants. Oh, it chills my blood, sir. I admired her wit, and my impulse was still to follow her immediately. The melange of passions within my breast was near unbearable. When the coachman cracked his long whip and the horses hauled upon their harnesses, I was taken by surprise and all but fell backwards into Ulrich's arms as the coach went off. I was elated with love, with laughter at Monsorbier's predicament. Ah... How I should have liked to have been within her coach, her head resting upon the bosom of that remarkable and resourceful creature who could not be much past one and twenty, yet bore the maturity and power to command. She had the quick habits of mind and intelligence of any veteran general. 
to see Monsoulier dragooned into ensuring the safety of a fair sampling of the very people he regarded as his natural enemies was worth more to me than gold and was ample compensation for the risk of exposure. Ulrich shook me, cursing as I continued to look at the departing party. Monsorbier, to his credit, had accepted the situation with reasonable grace. His sans-culottism was younger than his breeding, betraying neither a stupid fawning on the, laid, nor yet a frown, on the lady, nor yet a frown of impatience. And, of course, as I am sure my lady designed it, he was so busy controlling his warring impulses that he did not for a second suspect I might still be at the inn. Ulrich and Bomboche had proved themselves good friends. Now the Swiss musketeer was growing vociferously urgent. With one final look at the coach as it took the road for Lausanne, I allowed Ulrich to lead me into the yard where a good chestnut filly stood ready. She's all settled for, my friend. Off you go to wherever you please, but there's a short road on a high pass should you wish to risk it on horseback. To Lausanne? It'll have you there in half the time. Tis hard in parts, given so given to unstable snow, and there are sometimes robbers. Well, I'll cheerfully risk all that. I was determined to get to Lausanne, collect my money from my friend La Harpe, and present myself as soon as I could before the inspiration of all poetry, that divine goddess, my guardian angel, the Duchess of Crete. Ulrich laughed easily. You've a spirit to your little captain, I'll grant you. I ignored his insult, affirmed from him the directions to the high pass, and was off at once, thinking of nothing but reunion with my muse, my feminine ideal. She had doubtless slipped some gold to Ulrich, for my horse was thoroughly equipped, and my own saddlebags were at my back. Upon my saddle was a scabbarded Bavarian hunting gun, almost as good as Ulrich's English muskets. My own Georgian flintlocks were also holstered there, together with a pouch of shot, a horn of powder, gun cotton, everything I should need for my journey. I began to suspect my lady a sorceress, or at very least a seeress, invested with the most convenient second sight. The tall mountains rose before me on the narrow trail, and I drew my old coaching coat about me, glad of its protection against the threatening snow. Yet within I was warm and knew great happiness. Soon... I must see my heart's desire once more. Chapter 3 In which brigands are encountered and skills at musketry are tested. Nature, disturbed, responds dramatically to our sport. As a result, I meet with a traveller whose skills, history and name are all equally unlikely. As the air grew colder and the landscape wilder, I had little to do but reflect on my fortune, good and bad. Was all to be put down to coincidence? It seemed odd to me that Monsorbier should pursue me with such dedicated vigour, and that an unknown lady should take such pains to help me. I wondered if somehow Monsorbier believed I had betrayed him in betraying his cause. I did not consider myself a traitor. On the contrary, I had remained true to my own ideals. I wondered if Monsorbier recalled me from the old gatherings of novice Illuminati. 
I had sampled several such brotherhoods, including the Rosy Cross and the Orange Lodge, during the period in which I examined the supernatural and found it not merely uninstructive, but damnably dull, its members possessing nothing in the way of individual imagination and a great need to seek confirmation in numbers for the merits of miserable little madnesses. Most clubs, even the Jacobins, had their share of spineless creatures looking for reflections of their own morbid souls in the crazed faces of like-minded lunatics. But surely this was not more Sobier. Such people, as a rule, were lonely, confounded misfits attempting to alter the surrounding evidence of nature by inventing abstractions to explain why common facts were false and ordinary reality a poor illusion. It was impossible to guess what monstrous dreams lingered in the skull of that dedicated revolutionist. Perhaps he saw the revolution as a practical means to a spiritual end. There was no more dangerous kind of madman than one who devoted a good brain and a courageous heart to unhealthy ambitions. Prejudice took the place of study, and what might have begun as an investigation or debate, a genuine search for knowledge through an experimental scientific society, could soon become a coven of wretched fear-alls, too shy, too unhappy, and too cowardly to question its own end, to question its own creed. An unquestioned creed is a noose about the throat of reason, said Klutz to me once, and now he's dead because he insisted on clinging to a useless and discredited cause. Perhaps by refusing the noose I refused, in Monsorbier's eyes, to recognise the validity of the dream for which he had sold his own soul. My horse climbed through massive corridors of pine and monstrous snow-clad rocks, through gorges winding between sheer cliffs, and sometimes I heard the hardened snow overhead creak and shift, threatening to fall and engulf me. I was careless of potential danger. Increasingly, Monsorbier was forgotten, and I thought only of Lubosa, Duchess of Crete. Her name was unusual, while her title had the ring of something notional, such as the Pope or the Holy Roman Empire were used to dispensing. Crete itself, I was fairly certain, lay now under the domination of the Ottomans. Yet, the title could be rightfully inherited for certain families, particularly those with roots in the Balkan kingdoms, went back to the time before Christ when their ancestors had been lords of half-barbaric tribes, the priests of dark and loveless religions. The blood of those forgotten and mysterious civilizations which had risen and fallen in the years preceding and during the age of the Egyptian empire, that would explain, I thought, any gift for second sight she might possess. Because of the might of nature all around me, the solitariness of my situation, my mind grew fanciful, and I was forced to take control of myself and remember the realities which presently affected me. Yet this exercise proved harder than the reader might suppose. For some great while, as the road had wound into wooded hills, I had been unconscious of the wildness of the weather, 
since the unsettled gathering of clouds mirrored so accurately the tumult within me. That mighty and unruly tide of emotions, which, conflicting, drowned all logic with their din and offered to recreate me as a creature demonically possessed. By the time the sky had darkened so as to seem almost nocturnal and the sleet transformed into whistling snow, making me blind even while I remained uncaring of my chilly bones, I was hard-pressed to keep my horse moving forward, let alone able to mark the way. Soon I was forced to swing down off my saddle, grip my reins in one hand and use the other to brush back the snow which formed little drifts upon my face. Keeping thus to the Lausanne trail by instinct rather than observation, I pressed on. I had come to the idea that my lady was putting me to a test, that I must not only play her game through, I must also guess at the game's nature. Truthfully, I had become alarmed at my own obsession, sensing something unwholesome in it. I had no great taste for abstractions of any kind, yet here I was, apparently, in the grip of an insensible dream. Even when I was forced to pause and shelter for a while in a ruined hut beside the pathway, I took my travelling ink and quill from their case in my saddlebag and began to write in bad light attempting to organise my thoughts. But now I look at the remains of those pages, I see that I had already departed from sanity. I was bent on equipping myself with logic to explain the madness that had overtaken me, willing to drag in any old unkempt speculation as evidence. Man fult tief, hier ist nichts, Willkürliches, alles ist langsam bewegendes, ewiges Gesetz. Goethe's ever useful in such exercises. My journal's surviving fragments do not give me befriedige deine naturlichen Begierden und genieße so viel Vernungen, als du kannst. But doubtless it was there once. More I can neither recall nor properly record, for the pages have a tendency to run like tangled roots, the ciphers meaningless. However, as I grew more weary and colder, all seemed of the deepest, not to say most painful, significance. What dreadful form of idealism, erotomania and curiosity, fascination had filled me up, so swiftly after I had called upon cynicism to armour me against the anguish of lost hope. It was not enough to claim this the work of Cupid alone. I must suppose the horrors of the enragés, the fear of capture, the decline of my beliefs, all helped contribute to my state of mind. Rather than protect myself, it seemed I had made myself more vulnerable than ever, I was close to the state of insanity, whereby I was fully conscious of the folly, the perversion, the danger of my actions, could catalogue it all, the journal proves it, and make the most perceptive and lucid commentaries, yet still drive on towards the brink above the gulf of uncontrollable lunacy. 
Why was I so possessed? I asked myself. In those freezing mountains, everything became sinister. I began to think that demons truly prowled in the ancient woods where my own ancestors carved idols from the living trees and worshipped them in horrid pagan ritual, pouring sacrificial blood into the dark earth so that they might commission or placate some grinning godling. And were those of us who thought ourselves most shielded from such ancient sorceries actually the easiest prey of all? Reason checked this questioning of mine and murmured, Metaphor. Though a metaphor could sometimes be a map, recognised yet not understood. The snow passed and I was able, with some difficulty, to continue. Sunshine came suddenly as I waded around a slab of ice-adorned granite, and still I could not easily ride. The snow was now glittering, threatening to blind me. As the shadows lengthened against the white and the green, I detected the tracks of a heavy vehicle. Well, I was astonished to discover such a sign in this apparently uninhabited country. Could it, I thought, be Milady's own coach, taking an ill-considered shortcut? Well, I dismissed this with what little reason remained to me, shrugged and refused further speculation. The deep cart tracks through the snow continued to mark my way ahead. Now the covering was sparser, melting in the heat of an afternoon sun. Ahead of me the alpine peaks were sharp against the blue sky, and I was thankful no further clouds gathered and became more cheerful in my disposition as I mounted. My steed's hoofs took steadier purchase and our speed increased. Around me the trees sparkled with moisture, my breath was a ragged plume floating across my shoulder. Ahead of me were massive spurs of rock marking the pass. I ascended still higher, and here the snow was crisp and long since fallen. There appeared to be a few signs of a storm. The tracks were sharper. I detected only two horses and possibly one driver, for there were signs where a man had climbed down in order to coax the beasts upwards. I had begun to feel the pangs of hunger, and a search in my saddlebags revealed some slices of beef, a piece of roasted pork, some mutton, black bread, and those little sweet cakes the Swiss have a fondness for. Eating as I rose, my spirits soon lifted, thanks too to the flask of wine provided by the same mysterious hand, and I began to plan my lady's courtship. I was whistling by the time the pass loomed and the track narrowed, winding high above a rushing river on one side, with a great wall of lichen-covered granite on the other. Again, I thought it prudent to dismount, so replaced my provisions in the pouch and clambered down. I had gone, gone only a few paces and turned a sharp corner on the path when I discovered to my despair that the way ahead was blocked by some six or seven armed men while a rattling and scrabbling from behind told me that more of their kind were now at my back. I knew that I might wait passively to be robbed or captured for ransom, and I might try to make a fight of it. I decided that I could lose nothing by the latter choice, at which I remounted, defying their threatening glares, and pretending that I could understand nothing of their patois. 
These men wore the short jackets and brooches, the broad hats and wide belts of mountaineers. But they were not honest Swiss peasants. They were plainly brigands, for they sported a variety of weapons, including two crossbows, an old blunderbuss, a couple of matchlock pistols, a variety of knives, flinching tools, cutlasses and swords, most of which were either rusty or encrusted with the blood of former victims. Failing to make me listen to the argot, they tried me in Italian. O la borsa, o la vita, they growled. Their faces were covered in matted hair, and their stink was not dissipated by the mountain air. This choice of money or life was familiar enough, but since I had little money and could not trust them to spare my life, I answered by drawing my Bavarian gun from its scabbard and pulling back the hammer, pointed it directly at the breast of the one who appeared to be leader. "'Let me pass, gentlemen,' said I in English, a language I could be sure they would not know, "'or I shall be forced to blow your wretched bodies to kingdom come.' I was rewarded by the fellow removing his greasy green hat from his head to offer me a mocking bow. He spoke in the old Swiss tongue, which I believe they call Romany, and then attempted some French. I shrugged and shook my head, gesturing with the gun for him to clear the path. Next he threw back his horrible head and laughed loudly. No, senor, scusi, por favore, buona sera. I suspected his Italian to be a little better than my own, and moreover, saw no point in attempting further communication. It would merely waste time. Again I gestured with the gun, conscious of feet creeping slowly up behind me. This caused me to tuck the gun against my ribs and withdraw one of my pistols, aiming it back over my shoulder, an action which stopped their shuffling. We now appeared to have reached some form of stalemate. I could only rely upon their cowardice, and there was every chance, though they be uncouth, godless murderers to a man, they were not short of courage. I urged my horse a pace or two further. At this the crossbow bolt hummed and crashed into the rock just above my head. Another, made inaccurate, I would guess, by the warping of the stock, whistled past my left leg and killed a brigand who cursed, cried out, lost his footing, and went hurtling towards the river far below. I seized my moment, discharging the Bavarian gun so that it roared loud enough to wake all the world's corpses and driving a bloody hole through the leader's chest. I rode at them, brandishing the pistol, using the gun to club them away from me, while more powder flared and shots went off right and left. I thought we should all be dragged down to the river, for my horse was having difficulty keeping her balance. And then we were through. They still ran at my heels, however, yelling for revenge, pelting me with knives, stones and useless firearms, lusting for my blood like hungered wolves and it was quarter of an hour before I could put a little distance between us and ride out onto the open ground while dusk rose up to engulf all. The mare's hoofs sent a dry powder of snow into the air with every beat, but we were galloping now and the brigands were soon lost, screaming their disappointment and hatred among the pines. Eventually I slowed to a walk. It was going darker by the moment. Rooks croaked and shouted, wheeling overhead. The walls of their rocky colonies echoed to their harsh cries. 
but the air smelled of clean conifers. The threat of murder was past, and I knew I must be halfway to Lausanne, less than another day's ride before I should again see my lady. Within the hour I was readying myself to make camp for the night, not daring any further to risk the winding narrows, deep chasms and lively rivers where everywhere foamed, rushing to feed the greater torrent lying at the valley's floor. Sunset coloured the snow a rosy pink, and I paused to wonder at nature's marvellous creation, the dramatic wildness of those mountains. Then a white hair ran suddenly across a drift of snow above me. I thought I was to be thwarted of a tasty dinner, for I had not yet had time to reload my Bavarian gun. Nonetheless, I tried my last pistol, letting off a ball at the hare as she dashed for cover in a clump of rowans. The shot sent echo upon echo through the distant valleys, and when it had died, so had the hare. It was almost dark. I would have to play the part of a game dog next, sniffing out my prize. As I plodded through the snow and spied the dead animal, a splash of bright blood on its right side, just below the shoulder, I became aware of a muffled, distant, rushing noise which I could not identify. It sounded la rather like a rising wind or a river in flood. Then as I picked up the limp body of Mademoiselle Scarum, the noise was suddenly over. I returned to where I planned to make camp and lit the pinecone fire, quickly skinning and cleaning my hair, and wishing I had some means of preserving her lovely fleece. Her flesh, when cooked, was sweet and tender. There fell upon the night a silence, a tranquillity I had not experienced so profoundly for many a year. In the sheer blackness overhead the stars were prominent, glittering and twinkling, with each astral configuration clearly defined. I entered my little tent yawning deeply, felt tiredness come to me and welcomed it as a friend. Then I was immediately asleep. Next morning, with dawn shining through the walls of the canvas room, I woke instantly, cheerfully certain that this day I should be reunited with my duchess. I rose, breakfasted on the remains of last night's feast, watered, fed and saddled my horse, cleaned myself as best I could, and was ready to continue. By evening, if not sooner, I should be riding through the streets of Lausanne with plenty of time to visit my friend, receive some money, and then, if Monsorbier had gone, as I was sure it would be so, make a properly civil call upon my lady to discover, I hoped, why she had decided to help me, and to find out, if I could, what service she required of me in return. I was whistling as I mounted my mare, it even seemed to me that there was a trace in the air of spring's imminence. This gaiety appreciated with every forward step in nature, and all her aspects offered proof of my optimism. I had not enjoyed such a feeling of health and light spirits since before the revolution. For about an hour my mood persisted, until I turned a sharp bend in the serpentine track, and my heart sank all of a sudden, as I at once perceived what had created last night's great rushing noise. It had surely been my own shot disturbing the snow above the pass, and so starting the avalanche which this morning completely blocked it. Snow, boulders, 
Even a small tree or two rose high above me. I opened my mouth and uttered my despair aloud, careless that another traveller was already present. He was sitting in some dejection upon the thick wooden tongue of a large covered wagon, the sort generally used by itinerants, tinkers, gypsies, or strolling players. That he was no common knife and organ grinder was plain. He wore a long ermine coat, not unlike the hares I'd killed last night, a fur, three-eared cap to match, and his hands were buried in a muff, also of white fur. When he saw me, his glance went immediately to my holstered gun, yet without anger or malice he removed one slender hand to salute me. Well, my noble forester, I hope your aim was successful last night and you ate well. Why are you wailing? Do you think fate brought our mountain down? He spoke French sardonically in an accent I could not place. We cannot go on? I was stupefied. The chances of this wall of debris being cleared within a month are slight, I'll grant, though it is hard to judge the extent of it. Could be there's nothing for us to do, however, nothing to eat, nothing to pass the time until spring. He added amiably, perhaps you could try to accept your destiny cheerfully, since doubtless your shot was the cause of all of this. I studied the massive heap. I was sure the man in ermine was right and that my road was completely impassable. Carefully I reined in and dismounted, my passions in tight check. The man on the wagon tongue had the style of a gentleman, tall, thin, exquisite. He looked up again at me and smiled with red sensual lips, which turned at the corners in an expression of permanent irony. Well, sir? I regret I've inconvenienced you, sir, by my folly, said I. Tis some while since I hunted in mountains, and being famished, having come recently out of combat with brigands, I do not think clearly. Pray forgive me. I am Manfred Ritter von Beck, and need not tell you I am at your service. Could one man on horse try to ride over and fetch help? Aye, <laughs> said the tall man, he could try. But I believe it would be quicker to fly. He laughed. His German was as excellent as his French, but his accent remained a mystery. As he rose, dusting snow from knees and bottom, I walked towards him. His van's two mules seemed at ease with their lot, and content to nuzzle through snow to find grass on the fringes of that high gorge. I shook hands. I'm Orky of Lahorky, sir, he told me, christened Colin James Charles. The man was a North Briton. I had never heard his breed speak such good vernacular German. I took him for one of those soldiers of fortune originally attracted to Frederick's Prussian colour guard. Since Prussia was now since Prussia now fought revolutionary France, perhaps he had left his master's employ, having, like many others, no wish to join in an assault upon the young republic. There was most certainly a military air to him, as well as a dandified way of standing and talking. He seemed universally amused. I am also sometimes known as the Chevalier de Saint-Audrin. I should add, since I 
could so easily give an erroneous impression, I'm lured in name only. The few acres of land which remain to my estate are so inferior, sir, so as to have the remarkable distinction of maintaining neither plant nor beast. Nothing can live on it, sir, not even myself. Well, you are from Scotland, I gather. Aye, sir. My father took old Charlie's route to the flesh pots and the more obscure European courts. After the forty-five, there was precious little joy in remaining on Scottish soil. One was prey to the most uncivilised mobs of lowlanders and brute English you've ever seen, sir. Most of my life has been spent abroad, by which I mean twelve countries and a plethora of principalities, many of which could be prevailed upon to support me in some comfort. In return, I displayed my wonders. Wonders learned, sir, from those heroes of the air, my sometimes masters and employers, the Montgolfiers. I looked at his wagon with new interest. An aviationist? He tapped the side of the wagon. There she is, sir, my ship, my pride, my family and my honour, sir, my destiny, and I hope the destiny of all. I, sir, as you've guessed, I'm an aerial adventurer, currently touring the highways and byways of this continent to raise money for an expedition so bold, sir, so monstrous well-rewarded, sir, that the treasure of London's tower could not for an instant match the value. My maps are accurate, and I read the compass reasonably well, so I see no difficulties. What, sir? Are you just a treasure seeker? Sir, I sell the key to treasure, the certain means of finding gold in the more remote quarters of our globe. I know where one may discover lost races of mankind whose skins are of no colour we have ever seen, or ancient jungle-buried cities where the inhabitants place value only on the leaves of the common plain tree, and yet live surrounded by gold as their commonest material. They are willing to exchange a pound of twenty-four carat metal for a few fronds and possibly a piece or two of bark. There are countries, sir, not on any modern map, Countries known to the ancients, but forgotten to us, where the women are breathtakingly fair, and the few men they have possess the faces of dogs, so that any ordinary homely Bavarian, say, will seem devilish handsome to them. Plato mentions Atlantis, and Socrates, Polaris. Those are two of the many lands we may soon explore. Countries, sir, which are free of vice and upheaval, where mankind may live in peace, escaping from the horrid realities which presently alarm us all. I believe I must have been weary, distracted by my disappointments, for I found myself saying dully, Socrates doesn't mention Polaris, sir. The Chevalier de Saint-Audran frowned as if he had caught me in an exhibition of bad manners. He does, sir? No, not once, sir, not at all. You have not read the secret books, I take it. Secret, sir? Those in London, found by the Royal Society's explorers several years ago, rescued from the dusty library of some Mussulman pasha. You recollect them now, sir? I do not, sir. At the British Museum, sir, yes, the six books of Socrates, all the genuine article in the original Greek, the philosopher's own penmanship, I have seen him, sir, and read him myself. 
It was then that I believed I had taken the Chevalier's measure, as he had meant me to take it. He was not bent on deceiving me at all, but rather demonstrating his profession. And the demonstration was for my amusement. I found myself smiling, yeah, and sold them more than once, I dare say. He laughed easily and relaxed, more, more than once, I admit. But the balloon is real and she can be flown. What, over this avalanche? We should need more room than is available to us here. The canopy must be laid out on the ground and a huge fire built. If we had it, we could use a gas which scientists term combustible air, but it's rare and very expensive. If we build a bonfire, we should build it against the cliff and attempt to melt it down. I'm on urgent business, sir. Is there any other road to Lausanne? He pointed. Over that way, I believe, to the west. But it is many miles. I would offer you a map, but minor of all land of <clears throat> but minor all of lands that are as yet undiscovered. He winked. Some indeed are hardly yet invented. Again his healthy, fresh and wholesome face broke in a great smile. He had long he, he had a long head to go with his long body, and it was most handsome when he displayed amusement. You're a very open trickster, sir, said I. May I ask why you're so willing to lampoon the usual deceptions of your trade? I hardly lampooned him at all, sir. You perceived him, which is altogether different. He drew from the depths of the wagon a large magnum. Will you drink some good claret wine with me, good sir? Holding the bottle between his knees, he began awkwardly to apply the corkscrew. I'll be frank, sir. I took you for a soldier of fortune who would easily recognise my trade. However... I can assure you of one thing. I'm an amateur ballonier in considerable experience. I studied under the Mongolfiers. I know all the tricks of the Charlier method, Blanchard and Lunardi, among others. They have acknowledged me as an equal. Tis even possible, with a proper study of wind currents and such, to navigate a little. I am presently working on my system for making the balloon fully steerable, but one finds no demand as yet for the genuinely beneficial services of the machine. The public insists on treating the science of flying as a mere novelty. Yet the balloon I have in my wagon could be used for the observation of battles. It could study a piece of land upon which an architect planned to build. It could transport people and mail between cities and nations more rapidly than any coach or ship. It could be used for genuine exploration of all kinds. Yet, without the flim-flams I provide for a public forever demanding new sensations and marvels, there would not be a sou for the furtherance of our knowledge. Princes or peasants, they're the same in this. They'll put an entire fortune into a fanciful scheme, promising to enrich them overnight, but they'll refuse the, with fury the opportunity to invest in a practical plan which has only common sense to sell it. He shrugged and pulled the cork. <laughs> This'll warm us. So, sir, you see before you one who began as a serious engineer and has through necessity become a comedian, a showman. I've gone from being a man of science to a honey-tongued charlatan. Ha! <laughs> he laughed in considerable amusement at the irony. I would not do it, I suppose, if I did not enjoy it. Yet I began life, on the continent at least, as an honest soldier. I found his company stimulating, and it helped take my mind off the miserable knowledge that, by my own folly, I had created a massive wall between myself and the object of my desire. 
what was more, his matter-of-fact manner, his ordinary good humour, aided me to regain my grasp on reality, to achieve at least a temporary mental balance. He was a stylish, charming rogue, able to amuse me even as part of my soul wailed in frustration, impulsively urging me to dash into the drift and with bare hands tear a tunnel through it. As my attention wavered off after that wild goose, I reminded myself of my good manners and reflected that the Chevaliers de saint Audran had, after all, taken my responsibility for this disaster in excellent part. There was no saying how badly I had inconvenienced him, yet he had not uttered a single word of complaint. In spite of all of this reasoning, I was, after my first pull on the magnum, unthinkingly upon my feet and running towards the tumble of filthy snow and earthy rock, burrowing like a badger, careless of the cold, shouting out the name of she who had enslaved my heart. It had come to me in horror that if indeed she had changed course and come this way, she could be buried beneath the avalanche. I swear I heard a cry, St. Audrin. Help me dig, for God's sake. With a huge sigh, half reconciled, half critical, and a look of weary dismay upon his aristocratic features, the tall chevalier returned to his wagon and fetched out two short spades, one of which he handed me. The effects of a young prospector, sir. He lost them in a game of cards even before he left for the Cornish silver fields. Just as well, since I'd sold him the map. I consoled myself I'd saved him a wasted journey. I drove the shovel into the soft body of the landslide. It was a bright morning, and the sun was shafting through the gorge, while a variety of birds sang cheerful accompaniment to my own desperate running litany concerning my beloved's virtues. Meanwhile, the chevalier listened with impassive good manners, removed his ermine coat, neatly folded it, set it aside, pushed back the lace of his shirt, and... Set to a will, chanting obscure, rhythmical Scottish shanties, and pausing only to wipe away sweat with a large yellow silk kerchief, occasionally muttering, Is that so, sir? and taking another pull or two from the bottle. As I subsided, he proceeded to describe for me the story of his own life from poverty. He was no Scottish lordling, after all. In the filthy slums of Edinburgh, to his earliest escape from prison at the age of seven, after he had been sentenced to transportation in the matter of a bolt of cloth, a hanging crime in someone older, and his journey to London. There he had found himself swiftly in Newgate, but with a far better class, he said, of rufflers, upright men and wild rogues. Recruited in prison for the East India Company's army, he had gone to Asia and fought in a number of campaigns. Rising through the ranks, he meantime won the good graces of a certain native ruler to whom he deserted, helping this Khan to drive the company back from his borders. He was made a prince of Praljindra for his troubles, but aroused, in his view, unreasonable ire in the hearts of his former colleagues who put a high price on his head. This last, he told me, he found flattering, almost a reference to a future employer. Crossing through Afghanistan, trading various commodities, he eventually reached Russia in time to enlist with that nation's army, and destroy a variety of Cossack rebellions in the Don and Dnieper regions, also making expeditions into Georgia, and, as a freebooter, 
even into Turkey, where he had helped arm and prepare Christian Armenians against their Ottoman masters, in the hope this would provide Muscovy with sufficient excuse to declare war upon the Turks and annex as much of the Muslim empire as possible in the name of a high crusade. The bottle was drained by the time he got to Turkey, and I was now fairly certain my love did not lie crushed beneath the landslide, so gave him increased attention. There was my peer indeed. I felt as though I had found a true brother. The Muslim sultans, he said, were familiar with this manoeuvre and countered it simply by setting fire to six entire Armenian towns one night and burning the communities in their beds. He knew St. Petersburg well and Moscow better than I, though he had never been so close to the court. We compared memories here and there, and he was overjoyed to learn of my time in Tartary. But I pressed him to continue. After a spell in Klinsky's 11th Light Infantry as a major, I was taken up by the Duke de Mosset, who was part of a French diplomatic mission to Muscovy, and I returned with that gentleman to France, where I became a darling of the Salons. He found ways, he said, of laying the foundations of a fortune which he eventually spent in a couple of months, though not, for, not before being asked to suggest a new financial policy for the nation herself. The Froggies seemed to conclude that I was a financial wizard, since I had a fair idea how to balance a set of books and a decent instinct for buying and selling investment bonds. You'll recall they were by that time in the habit of stopping any passing stranger on the street and begging him to become the Minister of France. <clears throat> Minister of Finance. This period lasted only a few months before he found himself in the service of the Duchy of Luxembourg as an administrator organising the military college. He had been given his title in that country, choosing for himself the name of an obscure saint. He was, I believe, St. Patrick's charioteer from the misty Isle of Man. It was perfectly genuine, he assured me, and had been bestowed for his many favours to the state. Indeed, he was a naturalised citizen of Luxembourg. By ill luck, he continued, he had gone back to France at the very moment the Bastille was stormed, and, having no sympathy with revolution, stayed only briefly, where he took up with the Montgolfiers before they were arrested. He and several other Balloonias made quickly to Belgium to carry on their work uninterrupted. Here, his true career as an aviationist, demonstrating the Montgolfier and Charles types of balloons, had begun. He had experimented with his own designs and dreamed of finding a means of steering the vessels accurately through the air. Well, now he busied himself with a fire, dragging pots and pans from his wagon, preparing a luncheon such as one might easily have eaten in Paris before it was considered an act of treason to enjoy one's meals in public. My attempt to float capital for a new type of aerial boat, which possessed greater safety for passengers and more sophisticated accommodation than any before it, was at first unsuccessful. However, I spent the funds unwisely, <clears throat> was at first successful. However, I spent the funds unwisely, forgetting they were not my own. The result, flight into Germany pursued by scandal. But in Germany, sir... Ah, what a healthy and enlightened attitude towards science. What a willingness to trust the new mechanics. He had 
displays his balloon all over Prussia, Saxony, Hanover, Westphalia and Bavaria, and was frequently asked if he planned larger ships and longer expeditions. He had begun to draw up plans for both, going so far as to design vessels which could carry whole platoons of infantry, together with cannon to fire broadsides down upon the enemy. These latter were particularly popular with Frederick II, who ordered the Chevalier to build such a ship, whereupon my new friend deemed it prudent to repair to Austria. In Vienna and Prague, he attempted to sell the plans of his fanciful airships, together with maps and images of hitherto undiscovered lands. But such trade, he told me, though safe, was petty. He had a far more interesting scheme, which he hoped to launch in Muranberg, whose populace, he had heard, was more open-minded than elsewhere. At the mention of Muranberg, I became alert, wondering at the coincidence. St. Audrin's destination was identical to mine. However, I was not fool enough to trust him with every confidence. I said nothing of this to him. Seeing that I had grown more relaxed with the wine, he ventured to ask me of a personal question. The name von Beck, he said, was familiar to him. Was I related, perhaps, to the famous general in old Fritz's army? I informed him that mine was a very respectable Saxon family. Members of our clan were inclined to worthy, frequently obscure, public office. Ah, you are too modest, sir. I would swear I recall a tale, some sort of legend attached to your family. Did you not have an ancestor in King Arthur's time? Or was it Charlemagne? I was embarrassed. Ah, sir, you speak of the Grail tales. There's scarcely an old German family which hasn't similar legends in it. I remember the misery as a boy of being nicknamed Sir Parsifal and constantly asked where I was hiding Christ's blood. We certainly don't credit them. St. Audrin was grinning with delight, however. He snapped his fingers. I once had a taste for such stuff. Your great-grandfather, or possibly your great-great, was himself the subject of his own romance. Was he not the knight in the story who went down to hell to wage war against Satan, who used magical charts to find an entrance into a new world and there discover the grail? <clears throat> the villain who published that tale was taken to law by my grandfather, sir. The book was destroyed by order of the emperor himself. Yet, yet copies do exist. The story's a favourite in Saxony. Sir, said I, leaning on my shovel, I've no wish to discuss that vulgar tale. St. Audrin acknowledged my discomfort and began digging again. Perhaps the conversation, or at least the nature of it, had worked some magic upon us, however, for as the Chevalier began to go into the details regarding the good sense of opening a pork shop in a street already full of butchers, we found the landslide was not nearly as bad as it had seemed. Suddenly we were looking upon the trail beyond it. Part of the track had gone down with the fall, but there was enough remaining to allow the wagon to pass if we dug a little to one side. Moreover, of course, no other carriage had been buried. We had been at work for some seven hours, but only now noticed our fatigue. The Chevalier put down his shovel to look back at the channel we had dug. He was proud of it. By God, sir, I am proved a demmed pessimist. His face glowing, he shook my hand. 
Shall you immediately be on your way, or will you celebrate with another bottle and the remains of our lunch? I have a mind to discuss a business partnership with you. But I was continue to an- con- but I was anxious to continue my journey. Only politeness made me pause, offering to help clear the way for his wagon. He shook his head with a grin. I can do that in my own time, sir, for I'm in no great hurry, and I will camp here a further night. As we stumbled back towards his wagon, I bluntly wondered why, with all his accomplishments, the Chevalier was not again wealthy. He laughed loudly at this. He thought his own restlessness was to blame. I am easily bored. Taking the odd risk, throwing myself, as it were, into the arms of fate, maintains my interest in life. Well, sir, I'll not delay you, but should we meet again, I'll put that proposal to you. I went immediately to my horse. I shall look forward to it. Monsieur le Chevalier, when my circumstances permit. Are you sure you need no aid to dig the last few feet? Ah, there's less than an hour's work. He stood up in his shirtlessness, smiling up at me as I mounted. I leaned down to shake him once more by the hand. I am certain our paths shall cross again in time, sir, said I. Well, should you journey to Waldenstein? Waldenstein? No doubt you shall find me in Muremberg, said the Chevalier. I always lodge, at, as a rule, at the martyred priest in Mladota Square. I know the inn and the keeper very well, sir. I thank you most truly for the pleasure of your company and your aid. I left him in an attitude of complete weariness, collapsing back onto the wagon tongue in the position he had assumed when I had first encountered him. Yet there was a smile on his face, and he seemed greatly satisfied with the day's adventure. As I rode again towards Lausanne, I reflected how pleasant the encounter had been. If I ever reached Muremberg, still many days' journey hence, I would surely seek him out. But now, alone with my imagination once more, thoughts of Milady were paramount. I determined to ride as fast as I dared, and pray the Duchess of Crete would still be in Lausanne when I arrived there. Chapter 4 In Lausanne I am hugely disappointed. There begins a chase across Europe. Loss of the majority of my reason... Rumours of quarry, signs of pursuit. The most beautiful city on earth. My further frustration. The martyred priest. Acquaintances renewed. The comforts of the past. Dreams within dreams. Lausanne, contrary to my expectations, was not a crowded metropolis, but rather a pretty country town, with few buildings of special note, but none which was especially ugly. The place smelled sweet enough, compared, say, to Paris or Venice, and was as sedately ordered as any Swiss settlement where law prevailed. Inquiries with gatekeepers and gendarmes led me to a hostelry, maintained by a monkish order, the Denisians, as an appendix to the abbey. 
Here I learned to my dismay that the Duchess of Crete had left that morning, apparently for Vienna. Monsorbier, it seemed, had ridden back hell for leather for Freiburg. This was my solitary consolation. Both my horse and I were too tired for further travel, so I sought out my friend Le Harp, who demanded all my intelligence, for he had grown pessimistic of the revolution's progress, and was most hospitably treated. In return for my information, Le Harp told me all he knew of the Cretan dukes and duchesses. It was an intriguing story. Le Harp, folding his fine, almost transparent fingers before him and looking through his great windows at the moonlit waters of the lake, admitted his own curiosity about the family. Their Spanish-French, with Hungarian and Greek branches, associated in past centuries with lechery and wanton cruelties. The family name is Cartagena, Mendoza According to legend, they were sorcerers, and a good many seem to have entered hell by way of the Inquisition. Others were priests, providing Rome with several cardinals and almost a pope. He was poisoned. There's suicide in the blood, too. Yet their patronage of the arts and sciences shows a genuine passion for creativity and natural philosophy. In modern times, Prague is where they've mostly left their mark. The academy there could only exist thanks to the family's endowments. Other gymnasia in Prague and elsewhere were founded by discrete grants from cadet branches of Mendoza's and Schilperic's. And what of the present Duchess? I asked eagerly. He was puzzled. I've only heard of the present Duke. Lucian, he's called, and he's wintered in Prague for five years past, travelling abroad only in the summer months. Well, they speak well of him. He's an enthusiastic patron of musicians and painters, I hear, and of natural philosophers in particular. Alchemists, too? My friend shook his head. I believe the young man is anxious that his family name no longer be associated with such pursuits. He has bestowed so much gold on convents, monasteries and lay schools, or it must be assumed he is a devout and conventional Christian. And the Duchess? You have heard nothing at all about her, I insisted. Unless he married secretly... Why, the lady I met was no matron, I'd swear. Could it be a sister? A cousin? Well, this woman is a wit, a beauty. A look of mild irony and curiosity crossed Lahab's features. All this brings to mind is a scandalous whisper I heard a year or more since. Why, well, I dismissed it. The gossips said that the Duke had taken to dressing as a woman and venturing into quarters reserved for low, vicious creatures. Well, he shrugged. I laughed outright. Friend, this is no male in Doxy's garb. Lahap appeared to humour me. 
just so, the Duke's regarded as a most eligible bachelor, and he's the last of his line. The Mendozas, as you know, were conversos in Spain, of both Moorish and Jewish extraction. Those ancestors took up residence abroad during the unfortunate Limpieza de Sangre, investigations which came to a head under Torquemada. They married into the Chalperics in France during the 15th century, and so could be the only inheritors of that particular strain of Merovingian blood. Well, Prague, as you know, has several families boasting similar antiquity. You say this woman introduced herself as a Duchess of Crete. Well, clearly, I've never heard the name until then. Laharp sighed. I've no other clues for you, my boy. But I would suggest you look for an answer to your mystery in Prague. There, I guess, you have the best chance of finding the person of your Duchess. Did she claim to be an alchemist? Or did I say so? She could be a witch or a ghost the way she's vanished. Laharp was embarrassed by this fanciful remark. All I can say is that in Prague there's said to be a gathering of number of the more enlightened alchemists, called by Cornelius Groot, whom some believe a mere marketplace trickster, while others insist he has supernatural powers. Well, you know my distaste, distaste for such stuff. Groot's a resident of Brno. I met him once. I must admit, he impressed on me a sense of great dignity and learning. But the alchemical brotherhood is a secret one, so I have no real knowledge of its affairs. No notion of the convention's purpose. Only a rumour or two. Some churchmen have attempted to outlaw Groot and his comrades, declaring the meeting heretical, blasphemous, or even illegal. But so many of their own kind now belong to Masonic and mystical orders that very little has been done to dissuade Groot. The alchemists claim themselves men of learning, doing no harm to Austria. Well, plainly Austria believes them, or we'd have seen a different story. Most of these alchemists appear to hold decidedly orthodox political opinions and are pleased to maintain the right of kings as any Habsburg. I gather it's some momentous date in the alchemical almanac. What would you guess? He smiled quietly. The imminence of the second coming? <laughs> An old-fashioned notion. I shared his amusement. All right. I saw your brother's friend Lobkowitz just before the new year. Lobkowitz has astrologers amongst his acquaintances. Well, you know his huge curiosity. He told me that the astrologers were speaking of a specific conjunction of our own star with several others. Laharp shrugged. How strange if Prague were to provide the stable and the manger. A city most closely identified with reason, containing more agnostics per acre than Paris or London. <laughs> Only Mirrenberg harbours greater doubters. Well, it surprises me that they did not hold their conference there, where they would surely be doubly welcome. Mirrenberg's prince favours less supernaturally influenced bodies than the alchemical adepts. He's presently bent on passing laws to make all secret societies illegal. He fears a potential Jacobin club. Well, less I would hazard than most hereditary rulers. 
His stated principle is that all knowledge should be at the public disposal. He argues against the hoarding of scientific discoveries, believing that the miserly act of secretion is in itself bound to produce fear and unnecessary caution in the mind of the citizen. Superstitious destruction of the unfamiliar is its most common expression. Prince Baderhoff Fischer argues that in such matters a secret is parallel, if not identical, to a lie. Both occur because one body seeks power over another. So soon there will be no secret societies in Muranberg. Well, again Lahart smiled, the least secret of them will be outlawed at any rate. But <laughs> it is in the nature of such bodies to burrow deeper and grow unwilling to admit new members, for fear of betrayal. Well then they must eventually wither up, I said. Your logic isn't perfect, my dear Von Beck. Some are like fleas, apparently dead, and then suddenly they awake, and more alive than ever, hungry for blood. I wonder what attracts men and women to join such things. We debated this for another hour or two until both of us were completely tired and more than ready for our beds. Next morning early, I bade goodbye to the kindly philosopher and set out in bright, cold dawn light, first for Vienna and then, should I fail to find my Madonna there, for Prague. Yet in the back of my mind, I believe I hoped I should see her sooner, somewhere on the road. I argued to myself that a lone man on horseback must surely overtake a carriage, as I had overtaken hers once already. But my logic was not confirmed by actuality. I rode for many days, sometimes scarcely sleeping, from one town to another, from city to city, constantly inquiring after her, only to find I had missed her by hours. It was as if she herself were possessed by some peculiar will-o'-the-wisp, supernatural quality. In my light-headed sleeplessness, I would occasionally wonder if she was a kind of glamorous lure, a fly artfully manufactured to draw me further and further on into the middle of Europe. But for what reason? Why should anyone wish to trap me? Not Monsorbier, who still, I believe, pursued me, or, if not Monsorbier, then some of his agents, I, well, I learned to recognise her, the breed. Did she play a game for her mere amusement? Well, that too I could not credit. Reaching Vienna, and going incognito for obvious reasons, I again began my inquiries in that populous and confusing city. I had it on the best authority that the Duke of Crete was most certainly staying with his friend Eulenburg at an estate on the outskirts. But it was impossible for me to gain an invitation, and I was informed at the gates that callers were not being received. Unwilling to give my true name, and thus embarrass Eulenburg, who was a close friend of my uncle and a distant kinsman, I was doubly thwarted. For a time I kicked my heels in Vienna, hoping that either Eulenburg or the Duke, or both, would appear. They did not. The rumour was that they were engaged in some important scientific experiment. 
All of my inquiries regarding the Duchess were equally fruitless. It was as if she had suddenly disappeared at the very gates of the city. Well, I must conclude that she had not stopped in Vienna, but was by now several days' ride ahead to me. Perhaps already in Prague? In a daze of speculation and uncertainty, I took horse for Prague. My nights grew increasingly disturbed. And now I was plagued by particular nightmares in which I dreamed of myself naked, armed only with a sword, seeking through a series of underground tunnels a huge, stinking beast, half man but enormously powerful, which lived only for my destruction. Sometimes, too, Lebusa entered these dreams, smiling at me, mocking me, perhaps. I could never be certain whether she loved me or merely used me for some terrible entertainment by her own devising. And sometimes she was not a woman at all, but a creature of fantasy. Sometimes she appeared in male attire, claiming to be her brother. Thus my poor, weary brain attempted to make logic from all the conflicting stories I heard, while in pursuit of a woman I had met briefly only once. I reasoned this obsession was folly. I sought a solution to a mystery which would prove to be no mystery at all. But I could not risk myself. I could not rid myself of its burden. I came to believe that once I confronted Labossa, I should understand why I pursued her. She had become an aspect of my own identity. Was Labossa therefore a simple reflection of my own urgent desire to love. When at last we met, would the ghosts which plagued me be exorcised? Perhaps I hunted her not because she represented my perfect mate, but because I wanted to see her face to face and learn that, after all, she bore no relation to the creature I had invented. Well, what was more, I could not separate my thoughts of her from the notion of alchemy. Earlier I had rejected that rude blend of mysticality and scientific experiment in favour of a more modern and enlightened school of investigation. Yet my attraction to alchemy's romantic marvellousness remained somewhere within my breast. Might Lebusa represent my past a time when I had more readily embraced the irrational, the terrible, and the miraculous. In this miserably irrational state of mind, I fled out of Vienna on the earliest diligence for Prague, and there I convinced myself I should at last be able to seek her out and prove whether it was she I loved, or whether I loved nothing but an invention of my own imagination. Yet with every mile I covered, it seemed I lost a further fragment of my reason. From the way ordinary folk addressed me, wearily, fearfully, I came to realise that my appearance now displayed my mind's turmoil. I made an effort to improve my costume, to ensure I was as elegant as in former times. I attempted to control my excesses of emotion, educating myself to speak with quiet, measured politeness to all I met. 
Even this, however, frequently had the effect of terrifying people. Lubusa, of course, was not my only source of distress. I was still unrecovered from the greatest blows sustained by my soul at the corruption of my noblest dreams. To have swallowed my pride and gone straight home to Beck would probably have cured me. As it was, I had achieved no respite since the beginning of the terror. By the time Prague's spires and battlements came in sight, my mind had settled a little better and I had assured myself that I should miss Labusa there. I would rest for a while before making a leisurely journey to Muranberg, Since that city had been my original goal, and since she would certainly be resident there when I arrived, I would quell my anxieties and replenish both mind and body in the certainty that we must soon come together again. In Prague, a close rival to Muranberg in her beauty and complexity, I made my way directly to the house of Baron Karsovin, my kinsman and a friend from happier times. The house was good, well-ordered, solid place in the Baroque style, and was situated close to St. Cyrillus Park. Anticipating a pleasant meeting, I rode with improved spirits through the streets. It was a fine day. The sunshine was bright on the sparkling roofs, upon the dancing waters of the river, on turrets and bridges. Prague is an ancient seat of learning, combining a sleepy, peaceful atmosphere with an excellent history of moral and intellectual investigation. Dressed in fresh-cut black and white, after the new English pattern I'd had it done in Vienna, I crossed the park and entered my friend's gates, knocking at last upon his magnificent door. I deemed it safe enough to give my correct name, and within moments Karasovin himself came down to greet me. I was mightily relieved to see him. That amiable, dissolute grinned broadly when he clasped my hand and asked immediately after half a dozen Parisian courtesans, one or two of whom I knew and all of whom had not been one whit affected by the progress of the revolution. Kazovin was showing his age somewhat more gracefully than at other times. He was my senior by almost two decades. His wig was unostentatious, his paint restrained, and his clothing, while yet elegant, relied upon lace rather than upon padding, sitting more loosely and more becomingly on his figure. Karsovin had assumed the air of a respectable diplomat. His voice was quieter than formerly, and his manner almost modest. In sober dark green, with only his coat displaying any attention to the mode, he escorted me through polished halls to a small dining room where he intended to break his fast. I asked him if there had been a letter delivered there for me. Well, there had been none, he said. I inquired after my mother and my father. They were both, said Karsovin, in big health, a term then in common employment. Karsovin asked after my elder brother, with whom he had fought a thoughtless duel, when Ulrich decided some harlot was insulted, neither in the end firing anywhere but at the ground. 
and I said Ulrich seemed un seemed reasonably unsickly, given the circumstances. He would doubtless go soon to the mountains for the rest of Lobkowitz's estate. Kasavin's heavy, tawny features once seemed to bear the lines of dissipation, but now they merely told of statesmanly cares. I asked if he would, if he continued to sport in Prague, since the city's women were what first brought him there. He offered me a small, unenthusiastic smile of a reformed rake. He planned to marry, he said, a young Moravian princess. And with that in mind, her fortune was a comfortable one, he had put scandal at his back, though he still went twice a year to Muranberg, whose Corinthian cloisters were deservedly famous. I have spent almost my whole inheritance, and must now pay the price, old friend, if I am to gain another and ensure myself of an heir or two beside. What's more, I'm demmed weary of the doings of women, whether they be bobtail bold or the honest article, and I've had too much of them en masse, so it's my humour to try to get to know one well. A matter of curiosity, I suppose, which will maintain my interest when passion wanes and babies are a-shrieking. At his suggestion, we drank a toast to the whores and fine ladies we had known, though I had to feign enthusiasm, then another to his new court slav, Princess Ulrike Ermintrude of Buchweiss. A miniature was taken from its cabinet. Then I must admire her handsome, though somewhat stolid physiognomy, her auburn hair, he produced a locket of the stuff, her learning, a poem was waved in the air but not read. Since Karsovin seemed almost serious, I praised these treasures conscientiously and inquired upon the marriage date, which he said would be before Christmas of 94. There were contracts in preparation, but it was my own news he most craved, particularly of France, and I duly told him of all the horrid tales were true. But it must end soon, said Karsovin, or France herself will perish. I allowed my disdain to be seen upon my face. Her army's healthy enough. It could be the best in the world. Karsovin showed stern interest. Not better than Austria's. Yes, I insisted, and perhaps Prussia's too. All the old soothsayers and oracles in the marketplace say there's a great change coming to the world, said Karsovin thoughtfully. But I can't believe that France will be the cause, unless she intends to do it by the pox. He was back to laughing good spirits again. Let them try their luck against our Uhlans. He spoke with a confident air. He winked and rang the bell as we both sat down at the table. My little Slav tells me that if I'm marrying for wealth, she's marrying me for my cook, Frau Stick. The cuisine was excellent, and the wine remarkable considering its relative youth. We talked of old days and the future, of our current politics and religion and the like. He had already heard of my flight and presumed disaffection, and wanted a conference on issues which I would rather have avoided. To him, a supporter of the Enlightenment, but no Democrat, these were of consuming interest. At last I was forced to reveal my wishes, and, gentlemanly as ever, even at the height of my wildness, he moved to what for me were less explored territories. He spoke of the coming conference of alchemists, wondering, as Le Harp had done, what moved people to take up such ideas. 
My own guess was that they retreated into ancient philosophies out of fear of the new ones. So the Rosicrucians, for instance, are dedicated not to discovery at all, but to preserving what is familiar and which therefore offers them no threat. Romance goes hand in glove with the effects of romance of reason's triumphs. We move towards the age of revolution, of steam engines, flying ships, spinning jennies and underwater boats. They fear the manufactories, the steel mills, the railroads, the canals. They are baffled, yet they retain the human need for balance and symmetry. They find it only by embracing the abstract. So in England they build gothic ruins and erect iron bridges with the aim of racing along their highways at enormous speeds upon the backs of clockwork horses. Well, you alarm me, my friend, said Carsoven with a wink, but I bow to your superior knowledge. Perhaps I should have spent more time studying steam boilers and less in pursuit of chickabiddy buntlings. Perhaps in old age, when my estate at Buchweiss is established, I'll become an eccentric inventor and build a flying machine with which to explore the world. He became more innovated. Innovate. <clears throat> he became more animated. And by the by, I saw the great Montgolfier device go over the town last week, before your arrival, of course. A balloon, with a basket of men dangling beneath. The basket was shaped like a cockatrice, or perhaps a dragon, all gold and scarlet. It shocked me, I must admit. Should men fly, do you think, von Beck, or seek to whirl along the ground at excessive speeds? Oh, it's never should with engineers, my old friend, but how? Have you not learned that much? He leaned back from the table as a footman cleared his plate away. Again, he suppressed amusement. Oh, just so. What a provincial I must seem. Yet I don't greatly care. My interest in the millennium dwindles almost daily, and is replaced by the comforting notion that the only thing of real value is land. By the simple expedient of putting an old familiar friend into a damp little hole for an hour or so each night, I'll soon be assured, as any man can be in these days, of a great many hectares of security and capital. And how have I earned this for myself? By leading a Christian life? By risking my all for a revolution? Not a bit of it. I've done it by virtue of my carnal appetites, by virtue of my vanity and self-love. I was smiling, though his coarseness gave me a certain amount of offence. Curiously, I asked, Did you perhaps hear the name of the aeronaut who flew by the other day? Well, if I did, it escaped me. He was apologetic. I assumed him to be one of the alchemists congregating there. Too modish a means of transport for one of that ilk, said I. They prefer more supernatural forms of travel. He enjoyed my joke. I had forgotten what a pleasure your company is. I trust you'll stay with me while you're in Prague. I accepted his invitation. And next, I asked after the Duchess of Crete. I was casual enough, but he readily understood my interest. He shook his head. Again, I must disappoint you. The young Duke of Crete, you know, Mendoza Shilperic, as he's called here, is still in Vienna by all accounts. He will be in Prague within the week, I gather. And you've not heard of a duchess? 
I know only that the Duke said to favour the occasional jaunt to town in female attire, but that's trivial gossip and without any truth to my knowledge. Hmm. You would know if there were. Well, I think so, I. As for a duchess, I suspect you have met with an impersonator, my friend. Some strumpet posing as a blue-blooded lady, with a title at once familiar enough and obscure enough to deceive almost anyone. Yeah, I'm beginning to believe that's the truth, I agreed. Yet, she was a creature of astonishing beauty. So she captured your heart, eh? Worse, said I. She appears to have captured my mind, and I cannot rid myself of her. Well, seek her under some other name, that's my advice. She'll not have the temerity to call herself Crete in Crete's own adopted city. Glumly, I accepted this verdict. I have no reason to believe, however, that she'll make for Muremberg. A female rogue, eh? A swindler of some description? I appreciate the fascination you must feel. There's something about such women. An independence of spirit, perhaps. It's fatal to men like ourselves. Take further advice. Find yourself a good placid creature like my Slav. I pretended to consider the suggestion, but I was more intrigued than ever. My darling was an impostor? Well, now her tendency to appear and disappear so swiftly was explained. It was not surprising that I had been unable to find her in all the cities I had searched. By the by, said Carsoven, I'm reminded that your name came up only a day or two past when I visited Holzhammer in the country for the shooting. Uh, I'm unacquainted with Holzhammer. Is he not one of the prince's ministers in Muremberg? No, that's his nephew. This one hasn't the brains to point his own gun, but must have a servant position it for him. An amiable fellow, however. He had just returned from Vienna. He knew that you were an old friend. I gather some Frenchie was at court, seeking to obtain a special warrant for your arrest as a Jacobin spy. A Frenchman? A Viscount, as I recall. Robert de Mossobier? Ha <laughs> ha, the same. He serves the Committee of Public Safety, his Robespierre's man. No, no. Well, Holzhammer said he was a true royalist. Uh, then he's posing as such to capture me. Be warned against him, Carsoven. Thousands have been murdered because of Monsorbio's zealotry. Well, I'll tell Holzhammer at least, and he can send a message to the court. However, the Emperor, when last heard, was giving serious consideration to that warrant. So be careful, I beg you. It could be that you're already a wanted spy here. Well, then I suppose I should make haste to Muremberg so as not to embarrass you, old friend. Ah, oh, sure to that. I smiled and put my hand on Carsoven's shoulder. Neither would I wish to spoil your marriage opportunity. He ushered a noisy laugh. Well, as for that, I'm in two minds. Could be you'll be saving me from my own folly. Nevertheless, I determined to leave for Muremberg the next morning. I had no liking to hurt Carsoven, and even less to care to find out to find myself a prisoner in the old fort, awaiting trial for my life. The weather was unusually mild when I left Prague. The road to Muremberg was a good one, winding through the shallow valleys of the Carpathians, well pleased by regular detachments of soldiery, with several excellent inns along the route. It was to be the easiest part of my journey before I arrived at long last 
in that most lovely of all the habitations of man, the ancient city of Muremberg. Muremberg lies on both sides of the winding river Huat. Approaching from the northeast, one descends a range of low hills from where the whole city can be observed, a silvery map upon the floor of the wide valley. Her walls are of white granite, flecked with tiny deposits of iron and quartz, so that in almost any light at all she glitters. In the early morning, under a clear blue winter sky, with a haze rising from the river, it was as if I rode towards a vision of heaven. For all her steeples, her Gothic towers and Romanesque cupolas, her noble Gothic churches and antique meeting halls, the fanciful mansions of her great families, the gingerbread gables and asymmetrical half-timbers moulded into natural contours by the passage of time and the weather, Marenburg contained much that was pleasing to the human spirit's more prosaic requirements. She had little crowded streets of houses with high-peaked eaves and long chimneys, undulating roofs of grey tile, whitewashed lanes of old black beams and bottle-glass panes, their top-heavy upper stories leaning out almost to form archways sheltering the brown cobbles below. And at the centre of all this, on a kind of mound near the Ratz left bank, was the astonishing, perpendicular flamboyance of her castle, residence of a prince whose dynasty was old before the Habsburgs began. The Krasnaya were chiefs of the Svadavian Slavs who drove out the original occupants of the valley long before Rome ever marched westward, and who held the valley long after Rome had gone. By an intricacy of marriages and alliances carefully made over the centuries, Wildenstein retained her peaceful independence, and Muremberg had ever known anything, had never known anything more than the threat of violence. It had been allowed to grow, layer by layer, undisturbed, so that every age of our civilization was recorded in the cracks of her stones, the line of her mortar, and the set of her timbers. In addition, under the liberal rule of her princes, many great men had sought her sanctuary, from Chrétien de Troyes to Mozart and Fragonarde. Scarce an alley had not been inhabited at one time by a philosopher, a sculptor, or a playwright of renown. So magical was the city's appearance, so luxuriant her culture. Some writers would have it that Muirenberg remained free of strife, not by the will of her princes or the accidents of history, but because she represented an ideal which not even the most brutal or depraved of kings and generals could bring themselves to attack. For whatever the reason, the city had a mythological ambiance. As always, when I had ridden through her gates, I was possessed of that particular emotion experienced nowhere else. I thought to myself, I am entering a legend. It's as if I ride into Camelot. Yet, here was a Camelot whose court consisted of natural philosophers, astrologers, historians, 
theologians, dramaturges, and mathematicians, the majority of whom in some way received the city's patronage. Alone in the world for this, she possessed no less than four clearly separate universities, the oldest of which was founded in 592 AD by the great bishop Cornelius Herulianus, who encouraged the study of all philosophies and was the first to invite laymen to work with churchmen in their investigation of the natural world. So steeped was Muremberg in learning and the arts that it was of some astonishment to the stranger, impressed by the city's reputation, to encounter the noise, the crowded traffic, the hullabaloo of her markets and barge wharves. For, above all, she was a trading city, rich in every way, and with embassies from the Far East, the New World, as well as from the Osmanli nations, with whom she had dealt for some three hundred years. Her absence of religious zealotry had always enabled her to treat with dignity and respect the representatives of pagan lands, while Prague, Kiev, or Pest were busy with displays of egocentric pride and unseemly condescension, and a consequence loss of business, Merenberg, without cunning motive, made friends. I had not visited Merenberg since I attended the Royal Gymnasium in my youth, and I experienced considerable, if unanticipated, pleasure at finding the city exactly as I remembered. The progression of change and disillusion which displayed itself physically on the face of Paris made me familiar with the notion that all must inevitably move towards destruction and decay, and the corruption of every form of nobility. But here was the denial of that. Here was affirmation and hope. Yet, in a way, Muremberg remained a dream, and was the setting for another dream, my private compulsion. For I grew steadily confident the Duchess, or the, impest or the impostor, I cared not of wit, would be there, and readily found. There was scarcely a street I could not easily name from memory. Muremberg was as familiar as my own body. Indeed, I was filled with the notion that body, brain, and architecture merged into a all part of the same thing. I experienced this humour nowhere else, not even in Beck. I was returning home, not to the placid security of my birthplace, but to the city where my brains first began to formulate its ideas. In a gay mood, I went directly to Schmidt's Coffee House, which lay at the junction of Felfner Sally and Hangengasse, near the Jewish quarter. The place was vast, occupying, occupying several floors of a great square building, which originally had been a convent hospital. It was crowded, as always, with tables and benches packed in every possible space. The ground floor was, according to tradition, frequented by men of business, those who dealt in the near abstractions of finance, but it was also the centre of gossip. There I sought out familiar faces, German brokers chiefly, and some French and Russians. I made my inquiries swiftly, but was disappointed. A Moravian assurer called Minkovich 
accepted my offer of a glass of tea and paused in the babbling and paper-waving to excuse from himself from his banker friends. He wore an old-fashioned periwig and dark coat of what we used to call Quaker cut. This, he insisted, gave him an air of authority and stability, even when he was taking the wildest risks. He had heard the Duke of Crete was due back in the city, might even be there now, but he had no news of a duchess. He it was, however, who displayed a different aspect of the story to me. The Cartagena y Mendoza Chilperix, for all their chief residence was once here and for all their good works, have never been liked in Marienburg. Von Beck, mysterious scandals, witchcraft, sorcery, torture, rapine, and so forth, were well, led several of them to be banished by the prince little more than a hundred years ago. They have purchased their way back into the present prince's favour, but many remain suspicious of them. Something odd about the duke. Though he's good-looking enough, all I can tell you for certain, however, is that letters of credit have been issued in favour of the duke, but not of a duchess, and they have not been presented. And it suggests he's yet to arrive. He could yet be in the castle. He has one, you know, in the Carpathians, half a mile from the border. It's about a day's ride, so he could appear at any time. And he has a residence here. The babble around us almost drowned his reply. A frantic wave of exchanges, followed by relieved laughter. Wigs bobbed and another year's cargoes were accounted for. He shook his head. He owns a house in Rosenstrasse, but as often as not prefers to be guest of some intimate amongst the local landowners choosing to stay outside the city. I told Minkovich he could find me at the martyred priest should he learn anything further. This was the inn St. Audrin had mentioned, and I had fond memories of it. I was a trifle downhearted at my broker friend's lack of news. He advised me to look through the columns of the Muirenberg Social Journal, where I might find some snippet concerning the Duke's activities. I made my way to Mladota Square, which was crowded with churches, lodging houses and taverns, all seeming to lean in towards the centre were an old green fountain representing some ancient Svetavian hero battling a sea monster from horseback splashed. There were two or two... <coughs> There were two or three plane trees, some benches, the inevitable beggar, groups of street Arabs and hawkers selling ribbons, gewgaws and knick-knacks. The martyred priest, named, I believe, for Hus, was one of the most prominent buildings, and a wide archway leading to an expansive stable yard around which, on the first story, ran a continuous balcony. The whitewash was peeling. Some of the stucco had fallen away. The plaster faces of, I presume, Hus and his followers were worn, unrecognisable, though the sign was fresh-painted, a cassocked friar holding face to heaven, hands bound to a stake, faggots flickering at his sandaled feet. It hung on an iron bracket sticking from one of the massive blackened beams. My horse was given to an ostler whom I had also commissioned to guard my luggage while I was inside. 
It was a familiar few feet to the inn's main public room. Since it was noon by now, they were selling luncheons downstairs, and the smell of roasting was delicious. The low-ceilinged, smoky interior was packed with liveries of students and apprentices, most of them of medieval pattern, so it seemed one stepped from century back to century. As I pressed through the crowd, sniffing the soups and baked fowl which made the place so popular, I cast an eye towards the long counter. The bar was illuminated, even at that hour, by several candelabra. Behind it, a grim-faced man in a red leather apron, a huge periwig of the kind fashionable fifty or sixty years earlier, and with shirt sleeves rolled above the elbows, displaying the whirls and primitive designs of South Sea tattooists, dispensed grog and ale at two fennigs the pint, to sweating maids who bought up their trays to be filled, then returned with practised grace to their customers. The man looked up, and his thin lips formed something of a smile when he saw me. <laughs> Captain Von Beck! His face burst from shadowy lines into a beaming sunshine. My Captain! I had been almost certain I should find him still behind his counter. Sergeant Schuster, you told me you were buying land near Offenbau. He had been my servant, my companion in most of my American soldiering, and was himself the veteran of a hundred campaigns. I had lodged at the inn years before when his father kept it. You swore you would be a farmer and put city life behind you. He lifted up the flap of the bar and came to meet me. We embraced. I heard they jailed you in France, Captain. Almost, said I, but they were outguessed by a matter of hours. I skulked from Paris like a cur with a stolen chop. And why aren't you behind a plough? You said you'd have enough of your father's trade. Oh, my father retired while I was still abroad. When I came home, I found he'd brought himself a farm, and I leased the inn, moreover, to a useless dullard of a gentleman, Taverner from Hungary, who upset all the customers, drank all the cellars dry, and lost his wife to a passing ape of a lancer on his way home to Hess. What ignominy, eh, Captain? So my father begged me to take up the management of the inn, at least until trade and goodwill were restored. Gradually I came to like it. A couple of years back my father gave me the whole thing, lock, stock and barrel. So, here I am. Sergeant Schuster insisted we have a stein of beer. Best beer, there and then. He called over his counter for assistance. Pretty girl of about fourteen in local costume, and with her blonde hair plaited on top her head, came into his vacated place. This is Ulrike, he said. He was proud of her, my eldest daughter, the others two years younger, but Maria's a lazy kitten and falls asleep the moment she's called. Ulrike, my girl, it's my honour to present Captain Monfred von Beck, hereditary knight of Saxony, hero of Saratoga and Yorktown, Deputy of the French Republic. You have heard me mention him, eh? He has as many decorations as he has scars, and may yet become a marshal in somebody's army. He's one of the world's last real soldiers. Your father's that, said I, as witness his Munchausen exaggerations. Schuster, Fräulein Ulrike's not interested in my military career, but I'm delighted to make your acquaintance, madam. I bowed to kiss her little hand, and she blushed. Honoured, sir, said she, and curtsied. 
I complimented them both on her manners, and then asked Schuster if he had any rooms to spare. <laughs> I'll build them if I haven't, Captain. And he led me up the black wood of uneven stairs, which had on their whitewashed walls a score of his own mementos, symbols of his warlike career. Here was a captured Turkish banner. There, Prussian epaulettes, a Dutch drum, and the old French flag. A Yazoo warrior's battle shirt, together with portraits of Washington and Lafayette, and an English captain's spontoon. Here, too, were the spurs I myself saw him take from the half-Indian renegade Mingava, whose savages had ambushed us four or five miles from Georgetown. Schuster was all babbling reminiscence and pride in our prowess, and I sank easily into the pool of his recollection, glad to speak of what was, for me, a simpler and nobler time. He told me word for word what General Steuben said to us when we were captured, when we captured Yorktown, and how I had wept, so tired were we, when General Washington made a special detour through the ranks to congratulate us. He knew our names, remember, Captain. He said the cause of liberty went beyond any immediate concerns of self-interest. That while he and his friends fought for the right to rule their own land, the likes of us were there solely because we believed in just republicanism and the rights of man. It was to us he felt most responsibility, to ensure the six colonies would be the foundation for a new kind of government, which gave free speech to all and law based upon every soul's undeniable right to justice. And Schuster stood before the portrait of Lafayette and saluted. There's one who remained true to himself and the revolution, Captain. A great man. Did you see much of him in Paris? Well, for most of the time our paths did not cross. He had many duties. Another pause before a silver-mounted scabbard with English markings at the hilt. I grinned, linking my arm in his. And do you remember, Schuster, who that belonged to? <laughs> I do indeed, sir. To Captain Muldoon of His Majesty's Muskets, the most honourable prize of all. We laughed heartily at this, for Schuster had won Muldoon's scabbarded game of playing cards the day after Saratoga. But are all those things we fought for truly lost? he asked, as we proceeded along the dark landing to a door at the very end of the passage. These are my best rooms. It's where my married sister and other relatives stay when they visit us. The door was opened onto a fresh waxed furniture smelling of bee roses and linseed. The bed must be prepared and so forth. My wife will see to it. He opened carved shutters which creaked as he folded them back and in came the silver light of a misty Mirrenberg winter's afternoon. I looked down at the cluttered little square with its time-worn buildings. On the left side, some traders were setting up market stalls with pretty decorated awnings. By some old agreement with their fellows, they were not allowed to begin before, do before noon. Dogs and children ran through the cold on their usual intense, mysterious business. Old men, clad in long gowns and bearing gongs, struck their instruments from time to time, crying the hour. Thursday afternoon and the wind's freshening from the east. When not banging and calling, they were employed by the town to give information to whomever inquired, 
so they could be seen pointing this way and that into the spokes of the wheel which were alleys leading out of Mlodotta Square to all the other parts of Muremberg. The square was said to be at the exact centre of the city. Now, Captain, said Schuster, cutting himself short, what have you eaten today? Nothing? We'll give you our special jugged hare and some rotkraut, a gospel custard to follow. Where's your horse? Well, it's already in your stables. And your bags? With the horse. I'll send a boy, boy to see all that. There's other mews we hire in Korkzehiragasa, which has slightly better accommodations. Would you like to use it? I'll leave it to you, Sergeant. My one concerns for my panniers and musket, as well as my other etceteras. Yeah, the boy will bring them to you. Will you eat downstairs with us? Gladly. You must tell me what brings you to Muremberg. We descended again into cheerful tumult, for which he apologised. This will subside in a few minutes, when the cathedral sounds her one o'clock bell. And sure enough, as I sat myself at Schuster's long kitchen table, where several nearby fires heated an assortment of pots and cauldrons, where various meats turned on spits, all of which streamed with delicious scents bringing saliva to my mouth, the noise was suddenly drowned by the tolling of an enormous bell which shook the entire building. A single stroke, but it reverberated. When the echoes died, there was a sudden upsurge of benches, scraping, feet running, coins rattling, and then, quite suddenly, the inn returned to a tranquillity better suited to its age. Next appeared an army of maids and potmen, already preparing the ordinary for that evening's business. At the table, Schuster joined me with a plate of cold chops for himself. As I ate my own delicious hare and dumplings, I gave him part of my tail. A little, unsmiling face was bent forward in interest as he listened to me. And you say this Duchess, who might not really be a Duchess at all, travels here to Muremberg? Do you think she's related to the Duke? Well, that's a guess, but I have only guesses. Their business here remains a mystery. Alchemy, said Schuster firmly, without question. I was surprised by his certainty. Why so? The Duke's mightily interested in the art. Besides, gold makers from across the, gold, uh, from across the globe congregate in Muremberg this week. Half the inns are full of them. Ask any taverner. No, I won't have that kind of trade. Not with young daughters in the place. Most are respectable enough, but some are not. The great part of them recently arrived from Prague, where they originally gathered. And they're not banned from Muremberg? No, you mean the law against secret societies. They have circumnavigated that. They're not in actuality a society, but a convention of individuals. There's no law that says they must open their debates to the public. However, it's at short notice, this shift of locale, and nobody knows why they uprooted themselves so suddenly from Prague. Not an innkeeper of the city was forewarned of this until a few days passed. They'll get no prejudice here, at least, he smiled, save from the likes of me. Why, well, I fail to see why you've taken so hard against their profession. Well, because half of it's made up from charlatans, Captain. Captain, fairground piss-gabblers who will use their tongues instead of their swords to steal whatever they can, and use their pricks if all else fails them. I'll not take a chance on them. 
no more than I would with tinkers. He was easy with me, peppering his language with canting words, for we were both familiar with the language of rogues. But why, I mused, would they have come here to begin with? Nothing drove them from Prague. Well, I don't know anything about their law, but it would seem the most obvious reason was astrological circumstance, said Schuster. At first they might have judged their proper destination Prague, and then discovered fresh auguries. Well, it's true there seems to be astrology figuring large in this, from my own intelligence, I agreed. Both La Harpe and Karsovin had said as such. Some rare configuration in the heavens. Well, sir, said Schuster, licking his fingers and setting aside his chop bones, there's no business of mine. I'll leave them be if they'll leave me be. I'm surprised, mind you, at your interest in such stuff. Well, unfortunately, those I seek seem to be embroiled in it, and I can only guess where to find them by getting some idea where, what they're here for. I doubt if the Duchess herself is an alchemist, but her friends may well be. Should she be an impostor, seeking perhaps to cheat the cheaters, she could have heard of this congregation and dashed for it, like a bee to a field of flowers. Well, you describe her excellently, Captain. I'll pass the word amongst my fellow tradesmen to tell me if she guests with one of them. If she's here, they'll soon have her flushed for you. In the meantime, you must stay here for as long as you wish. We raised our steins in a toast of friendship, as though, as through the doors came the daughters and the maids with dirty crockery piled high. At bowls, two boys carefully poured hot water from gigantic kettles, filling the kitchen so full of vapour it was almost impossible to see Sergeant Schuster a foot or two away. He added, What's more, if she's not staying at an inn, but privately, we'll know that too. We all have friends and relatives who are servants at the great houses. Twenty-four hours should get you the news you need once she's arrived. Now, Captain, drink another pot of ale with me, for old time's sake, and if you've no other business, get you to bed for an hour or two, for you're looking mighty weary. I'll take your advice gladly, Sergeant. Meanwhile, you're expecting, I gather, a gentleman named St. Audrin. He helped me on the road, and I think he must recently have gone through Prague. Can you make sure he has a good room? Now, we've had his letter from Prague, as you say. Aye, we'll treat him well, never fear. He shall have the chambers next to yours. You have a good heart, Sergeant, and I clapped him on the arm. Captain, this is friendship. We're old comrades, and you were always true to me. Equality under the law, and the rights of man. You taught me what that properly meant. You transformed my understanding. I laughed, raising a hand to stop this gush. You'll swell my head, Sergeant. We were always equal. You were a captain yourself when we met. <laughs> Acting. A day later I lost my commission. The thin little lips, which so belied his generous disposition, broke once again into a shadow of a smile. For dueling, remember, with that peacock of a Frenchman. At least I had the pleasure of pinking him before we were nabbed. I had not witnessed the duel, but I knew its details. I had forgotten the incident until now. That peacock's now my pursuer, I said. Monsauvier's an important man in France. I swear he still means to have my life. He's following you. Well, through Austria, at least. He might have given up the chase. He's older looking now, though still a handsome dandy, even in his revolutionary costume. 
I'll recognise him if he comes through my doors. Now, sir, look you. You nod off as you sit there. Here's Martha, a woman who seemed scarcely older than her girls, with ruddy complexion, dark brown hair and smiling features, returned with a curtsy my kiss upon her hand. She made a dry joke about her husband's tall stories being reduced to truth at last, and begging me laughing not to give details of every drunken ball brawl which he now retailed as a duel or a historic battle. Assuring her of my discretion, I went soon up to soft, sweet sheets, having washed away grime inside and out, and as I lay naked in the linen, enjoying the sensation, my head gradually filled with unwelcome thoughts. Would I ever find Lugosa? Would she agree to acknowledge me if I did find her? Would she reject me out of hand? Did she have an amour? Now, jealousy made itself monstrous fat on my uncertainties. No matter how I reminded myself, the lady had given me no assurances, and merely helped me escape, one who wished to kill me. Drifting into sleep, I conceived the crazed notion that I must discover who my rival was. The Duke of Crete himself, perhaps? But even this fresh discomfort could not keep my eyes open for long. Soon I heard a snort or two from my own nose as I drifted into exhausted slumber, utterly dreamless at first. I recall waking and noting that it was dusk. My window revealed a darkening sky. Well, then I had returned to sleep. But now I began to experience the most barbarous dreams I had ever known. The awful emotion of terror which filled me was unlike any previous fear. And the images which beset me were also unlike anything in any previous dream I could recall. I was besieged by malevolent creatures of unsurpassed ugliness, menaced by something creeping, insidious and completely evil, which alternately chuckled and snarled and had me in its power. The supernatural pack waits only to choose its moment before sucking my soul and the marrow of my bones into their fetid, misshapen mouths. I walk through tunnels with no beginning or end. Somewhere a beast is panting. Somewhere he stamps with cloven feet upon the ground and pounds at the walls with massive fists. Is it Satan himself? Now he wields a great stone club. It is a bull. It is the bull, and he rages against me alone. I am naked and helpless. I am a child. I am a girl. I can obey the bull, or I can perish. But surely I shall perish in obeying him. I awoke, shivering with a chill, but also perspiring so badly I had soaked the bed linen clean through. Before I could think clearly, I had tugged on the bell rope, but it was no servant who came. It was Ulrika. She was alarmed when she observed my face, my shaking body as, with sheet about my waist, I leaned against a tall chest. There were still voices in my head. The creatures spoke in the tones of cultured old men. Old men, jealous of my vitality, greedy for my youth. Look, I hear one say, as if at my shoulder, I told you he would behave like this. I warned you. I turn and there's naught but a shuttered window. Ulrika had closed it. 
the yellow light of candles spread from the taper in her pretty little hand. She had lit them to ease my mind, but they cast shadows, alarming me. I took grip on myself, for the frightened girl's sake, as well as my own. What is it, Captain Von Beck? Do you have the malaria? Another friend of father's who was in India suffers from it. A nightmare, child. I'm healthy enough. I'm not much prone to bad dreams, so it came on me with some surprise. I made some attempt to laugh it away, but she was not impressed by my poor play-acting. You've nothing threatening you, sir, in Muirenberg, surely? Well, not at all, I smiled, and I bowed. Thank you for coming so swiftly, Fräulein Ulrika. I apologize for my stupidity. Her little face was grave. You are safe with us, sir. Well, that I, that I believe, but the reassurance is welcome, and so's your company. Pray stay here a minute while I get my bearings on reality. I attempted to laugh, but it was impossible as she continued to look at me with honest concern. I let a minute pass. The nightmares gradually faded from my mind, and the shadows became merely shadows. The flickering movements were candlelight and candlelight alone. When next I smiled, I met her eye, and she smiled back. Recovered, said I with a nod, and I thanked her again. A passing fever. Exhaustion of the journey, I suppose. Well, then I'll return to my duties, sir. I had been selfish. Of course. Again, I apologise. The anxieties and questions of my recent days had bitten deeper than I had realised, and come out, I was sure, like a bursting boil, all at once in a horrid rush, given bizarre shape in my imagination. I have discovered in the course of my adventures that fear is an emotion which will seize upon any image and make of it its own. The more one refuses to acknowledge the true sources of one's terrors, the more one becomes prone to reasonless panic until finally madness ensues. Yet I was intrigued by the image of that horrible beast, the bull. It could only be the minotaur, and myself some Theseus in the labyrinth. I made an association in my mind with Crete, no doubt. When Ulrika had gone with a message that I would be down soon to join the family at its supper, I washed with the water in the bowl and sat upon the edge of my bed to track the nightmare to its source if I could. It was plain I feared the power Lobusa exercised over me. I feared the vulnerability of my condition. Was I becoming addicted, as some grow reliant upon laudanum? A further thought came into my head. A drug can never become its own antidote. Common sense told us so. Was I doing the wrong in pursuing Lubusa in that way? Was I like a drunkard who said he intends to give up wine, but for a while must frequent the grog shop in order to know what kind of wine it is that harms him? I made up my mind to curb my pursuit of a woman who clearly had little interest, me or interest in me, or would have sought me out before now. As I completed my toilette, I was determined to forget her and return to my original purpose in the city. If I craved sensual adventure, I could find it readily enough in Muirenberg's whorehouses. 
Yet, I knew I was in love, though the nature of my love was unfamiliar. Then I must reconcile myself to sadness in the matter. I should re-embrace comfortable cynicism as swiftly as could be. I must find something to engage my mind and, if possible, my emotions. A business enterprise. I must plot a fresh course, then lash my rudder and keep on. I would borrow funds from Schuster so that I could go that night to a brothel I knew nearby and there purge Eros from my body and soul. The money was willingly loaned, the address confirmed, and after dinner I slipped off to taste the pleasures which Mrs. Slinney's inventive whores provided. Yet here came another coincidence. Shortly after I had exhausted my lechery and was emerging, carrying half my clothes and tucking in the rest from an upstairs, uh, and tucking in the rest from an upstairs room, the house was tall and somewhat narrow, and the stairs curved tightly. So I must step back hard against the wall to make room for another gentleman ascending. He offered me an elaborate bow and grinned at me. For a second I did not recognise him in that discreet light, and then I found myself returning his grin and his bow, for it was the Chevalier St. Audrin. Magnificent in golden silk and black linen, his hair lightly powdered and tied, his long aristocratic features assuming a haughty, almost amiable expression, and his eyes languidly hooded, he was a fine rival to Casanova. Sir, says he. Sir, says I. We are lodging, I believe, sir, at the same establishment. I arrived tonight, just after you had left. The landlord told you of my destination. I was surprised at Schuster's lack of tact. Oh, not at all, sir. This is a regular resting place for me. Well, I commend your taste, sir. Thank you, sir. Well... He paused with his left hand upon the banister. The other raised to his chin. I'll be going. And I'm off down, sir. I trust you'll consider my suggestion we combine our resources, sir, said he as we passed. One carriage or one horse is all we need between us, since it's plain our orbits become virtually identical. I smiled at this apposite jest, acknowledging it with a gesture of my head. Think upon it, sir, I pray you. He passed into the upstairs room, and the door closed to hide his golden figure. I was greatly delighted by the coincidence. The Chevalier St. Audrin might prove to be the devil himself, but he promised to be excellent company. I felt that the very best way of taking my mind off its unwelcome obsession might be to form the partnership he suggested. In a hired diligence, I returned to whistling. To my rooms at the martyred priest. Chapter 5 I embark upon a business career. The prospect of a flying navy. The coming of the new age and how we plan to exploit it to our advantage. We begin to raise capital. Next morning, as I sat at my breakfast, into the tap room came St. Audrin. He wore a blue nankeen housecoat to his ankles, a Chinese brocade cap, 
and oriental slippers, making him look for all the world like some successful mogul returned home with his fortune and bearing not a scrap of similarity to the mercenary rogue of his own description. His demeanour was that of an amiable English buck, some overbred but not undereducated frequenter of whites or goose trees, a crony of the Prince Regent. I had met this type and its colonial imitators before and had learned not to underestimate the English dandy. The dandyism at its best pretended a bored and foolish foppery which disguised sharp wit and resolute courage. While I was in America, I had heard them dubbed macaronis on account of their taste for exaggerated foreign fashions, and even Washington had had a touch of the style. So here he came, with a hint of lavender and rose water, into the tap room, where Frau Schuster served hot chocolate, cheese, ham, sausages, boiled eggs, gingerbread, and anything else one desired. St. Audrin had the good manners to refrain from asking for one of those dishes with which the English ensure the bad temper of their fighting men, in much the same way as berserker Northmen were given strong mead, or certain Polynesian tribesmen are said to be insulted and humiliated by their wives on the eve and morning of an important battle. The English, I now know, eat mashed fish and deviled sheep's hearts to guarantee a bad digestion and consequent irritability. It is their abominable cooking which has given them half the world as their empire. My friend was a veritable encyclopedia of little bows, graces and gestures. A smile here, a brace of nods to myself and Schuster. A few legs made in the general direction of a skirt or a mop cap, and then, seated across from me on my right, he praised Herr Schuster's militaria, expressing interest in the copper plate, which Ulrika, it emerged, had watercoloured. Upon the panelled walls, and asking if the landscapes were like the trophies of specific memories, he listened carefully with half-bent head as my old sergeant listed the scenes and his own recollections of them. St. Audrin was impressed, he said, by the wide extent of this veteran's travels. He smiled gently. Most Waldensteiners seem to feel little imperative to go beyond their own borders, perhaps because they know already that the rest of the world is unquestionably less perfect. One thing perfection brings her chevalier, said Schuster readily, and that's boredom. To grow up in the certain knowledge one shall never know serious threat, nor yet much discomfort, or has its own innovating influence. We Muhrenbergers send our sons abroad as often and as soon as we can. Similarly, our daughters are generally given the better education. We're proud of our traditions, but there's danger and complacency, and we seek to avoid decadence as best we can. Happily, since our population's constantly replenished from abroad, we keep our stock pretty healthy, while many Muhrenbergers remain in the service of foreign nations. And then there's our standing army, which is of considerable strength and resources. While it's kept entirely for our defence, it's made up of men like myself, who have experienced war in all its evil forms, and would not have him foul our own homes. Yet we never involve ourselves in the struggles of others. 
Thus, no potential enemy ever considers it economical to attack us. At the same time, they know they need fear nothing from us, so long as they're left in peace. Uh, truly the triumph of reason, said I, half jesting. A state run upon such rational principles shows an example to the whole world, said the Chevalier. Yet one wonders by why her example is not followed, or by England, say. Well, I believe it's a question of acreage, sir, I proposed. Waldenstein's an ideal state because she's an ideal size. Once a nation grows to the size of my native Saxony, her proportions dictate not merely the use of her resources, but also her method of administration and so forth. Kings and governments look upon expansive conquest as a means of increasing both wealth and security. But the larger their domain, the more problematical are their decisions. For this item must be balanced against that. One's part at one party's interests against another. And all this involves a plethora of promises and compromises. The small state need hardly consider compromise at all, and debate is therefore more welcome, while solutions are sooner arrived at. So you would recommend the breaking of large states into several smaller ones, a general reduction of empires? St. Audrin shook his head as his chocolate cup went down on his saucer with a rattle. It would mean the end of our civilization. It would mean the end of these bloody struggles for territory, said Schuster. But it will never happen, said I. There's no suitable rhetoric, no vainglorious posture, no material justification for the backward step. And since progress, the quest for justice and reason, is identified in all minds with the steady gaining of territory, we shall forever be in the position of knowing the solution, and aware that while our race follows its present logical methods, it can never solve its problems. Therefore, half at least of its hideous injustices will continue to be perpetuated, while colonial conquest is celebrated, and we vie, for, vie with one another to paint as much of the map in our own colours. Look at what happens in America. Having rid themselves of imperial rule, the Republicans already spread the rule of might by their gun and sword throughout the Indian nations, a children's parlour game in which each decision results somewhere in the death of thousands and the enslavement of millions. And moreover, while we continue to judge ourselves in terms of our power, the lot of women will remain as miserable as ever. Ha! cried St. Audrin in delight. Wollstonecraftism! Then his face clouded, and he was no doubt thinking of his native heaths. Not only could you convince no one in England of the virtue of your argument, sir, he said with a sigh, raising from his chair, but if you attempt to put it into action, as they did in Scotland fifty years ago, you're called traitor, rebel, and worse. Your people are tortured and executed. At best, they're driven into exile, while as for the woman, sir, they're worse treated than ever. Women and children are hounded like game by brutal soldiery. Raped and mutilated, killed, allowed to starve, and your very houses are burned to the ground. I hold no brief for the Stuart cause, and Charles Edward's name will forever in my mind be linked with Northumberland's. Fine words cannot find a battle. A mere wish for kingship is not an ideal. They were piled, those corpses, one upon the other at Culloden, and still they ran, unarmed little boys, towards the English guns. Prince Charlie's as much to blame for their deaths as anyone. During this passion, his drawling manner fled him completely, and instead he pronounced his German with the fierce, rolling accents of Hibernia, and then he sank back in apology, 
fanned his face with one elongated mandarin sleeve, flourished his hand and smiled. Pray forgive me, a self-deprecating gesture to the ladies, an inclination of his head towards us. Then the familiar expression was resumed, and he was saying, Blood, but the large shall ever feed upon the small, the strong upon the weak, and we must not quarrel with our Lord's will, nor indeed with his majesty. There was some trace of a sing-song in his tone, as if he mocked some childhood guide. He smiled suddenly and put a piece of cheese into his mouth. "'Tis a pretty day,' said he. "'And what of your aerial ship, her chevalier? Shall you fly her this afternoon?' I was eager for a taste of the upper atmosphere, for it would distract me, possibly help maintain the objectiveness I hoped for, and which was already threatened by images of her beauty coming unbidden to my mind's eye. All the whorehouse had done, as I might have realised had I not still floundered between the dictates of mind and senses, was to alert my body to the possibility of real pleasure, of the profound satisfaction which I had known in just those minutes of Lebus's company. I still believed it would be more wonderful to spend an hour with her than to be all night amongst the artful whores of Mrs. Sliney's. And then... There I had already begun to logic myself back into a trap when St. Audrin said, This morning I'll assure, ensure the civic authority has no objection. By two o'clock this afternoon I shall have my Montgolfier on the little field, you know it, the public garden outside the west wall, by the Mirojny gate, and be ready to make a demonstration by means of a tethered ascent. And thus he rescued me from morbid self-absorption. Marimberg shall see our craft rise into the air, said St. Audrin, with an elegant sweep of his long hand, and so shall we establish our credentials as aerial navigators in the popular mind. If our reception seems generally favourable, then we shall surely find it an easy matter to interest the wealthier citizens in the prospect of a company formed to build a larger vessel. Her chevalier, said I, in some amusement, Aren't you assuming some manner of agreement between us which has not yet been made? He looked surprised, rocked back in his chair and fingered his jaw. Blood, sir! I'd thought us partners, and that your wish to try out the ship was demonstration of the fact. No hands been shaken on it, no terms debated. True, sir. Well, you know my proposals, I think. I recall what you told me of your own schemes at the Hackmesser Pass. And on the stairs last night? A couple of words, sir. I proposed an alliance. Well, it's true, you did. So, naturally, I assumed. I laughed openly. By God, St. Audrin, I can see the machinery of your tricks, yet still they succeed. And I admit I'd considered throwing in with you before last night, so let's shake a hand on it hard and fast. The ritual was completed, and he beamed. Your literary skills are required first, Captain. We need a handbill to distribute from the air. New territories... Gold, wealth of all sorts to be easily gathered. He frowned. But whether we should make reference to your secret chance as yet, I'm not sure. And would it be deemed heresy to mention the grail? Hold your horses, sir, I cried. What's this? It's all news to me. The Von Beck family legend, sir. Money in one's purse where this sort of virtue, vir venture is attempted. And the respectability of the Von Beck name, of course, well known in Mirrenberg, as you're aware, 
A sober name, sir, and a pious one. Upright to a fault, you might say. Sir, said I. He grinned frankly at me. Well, sir? Do I understand you wish me to exploit my family name? St. Audrin, you ask too much. And as for that damned legend... Being damned, no honours lost if you make of it. Hmm, well that's true. I hesitated. No need at all to consider that part of the business now, he said generously. Why not simply add a poetic flourish to the handbills, and we'll see how we fare. Well, there was nothing to lose from that suggestion, so I agreed. St. Audrin was on his way about the town as soon as he was properly and perfectly attired, and I remained at the martyred priest drafting out advertisements, which we should in good time scatter as messengers from the sky. I was not required to be specific. Choosing between Zeus and Jupiter as titular drivers of our flying chariot took up more than an hour, and finally I rejected both and decided upon Donan as most apt for Nordic climbs, though I believe Svetavian gods were, a still, were of a still grimmer Slavic persuasion and had names like Grak or Kog. Sergeant Schuster took an interest. He asked if I'd ever witnessed the Parisian balloon flights, and I was bound to admit that I had missed them all, though, of course, other balloons had been used strategically during the conflict. He himself had seen a vessel in flight only once, he said. It was meant to go from Salzburg to Basel, but the wind had changed. He heard the aeronauts were eventually found in the Bulgar Mountains, though every scrap of the balloon's bright silk had been stolen by brigands, and the aeronauts themselves were shivering, mother naked in their basket. An abnormal knowledge of the paths of the wind, greater than any seaborne navigators, must be something of a necessity, he said. I agreed that it seemed likely, but St. Audrin apparently had methods of steering as yet untried. I held up his notes. The large ship he plans will have appropriate mechanisms. I realised I was doubtless already acting as a megaphone for the British swindler. I had no means of telling how much the Chevalier drew the long bow, and would have to bide my time before I found out. Moreover, I could not say much abroad of St. Audrin's schemes, lest I betray his confidence. So I held my tongue. Sergeant Schuster, however, had plainly noticed something odd in my manner, and went on to talk about the fears expressed in a Viennese, Viennese journal that a French flying army might at any time attack the city. In those days, of course, the French were thought to be masters of the air, and nobody had any clear notion of how such a fleet could be built, and, if built, how it might be resisted. It occurred to me that St. Audrin and I would do well to play upon that misconception. What else would make a mortal Muirenberg stronger still but the construction of a flotilla of aerial men-of-war? St. Audrin, returning from the Staatshaus in some elation, displayed his license, a mixture of printing, ornamental script, decoration, in five colours including gold, and several seals and ribbons. It was our permission to hold our demonstration. Now, he said, we would have to canvas prominent burghers and drum up a popular crowd besides. The time seemed too short. Now, the time seemed too short, I said. No, said St. Audrin, we have brushes and ink. A brief notice is always best on a wall. Paint this, Von Beck, if you will. And he writes with a flourish in large letters. Little field today. Airship ascent. 3pm. As many times as you can. 
Within an hour, I'd a stiff wrist and a hundred posters. St. Audrin was long since gone to make all arrangements. It was noon. Sergeant Schuster's Martha had boiled us up a huge pot of paste. Armed with this and the bills, we attacked every blank wall we could find in Muremberg. Church, school and public building, none was safe from us. Then it was thirty minutes past one o'clock, and urchins followed us here and there while large crowds were assembling in our wake. I was mightily pleased at the attention. St. Audrin was already at the little field, and as soon as our work was finished we raced to meet him. The day was passing in a whirl. If only, I thought, the same pace could be maintained for a month or so, then I would be the more confident of Labussa ceasing to tempt my thoughts. This pining was repugnant to me. It was demeaning. I was like a schoolgirl panting after the first man to kiss her lips, ready to give up honour, dignity, ambition, and furtherance of a senseless passion. It should not be so. Then we were off, up the wide Mladotta steps into Grunegasse, Schuster and me running like boys on holiday, taking the shortest route through the covered alleys, lanes and passages to reach the west gate, the Bull's Gate of Alaric III, the Morozhny Gate, and out through evergreens down a long grassy slope under a wonderful hazy winter sun, misty with melting snow, to where a monstrous brazier burned, copper and iron, red as rubies giving forth a blast of smoke and flame, like the voice of Siegfried's dragon. Two lads in wool coats and sheepskin hats with mittens on their hands held the white brass hoop of the balloon's neck close to the hot air, while the silk rippled and bubbled and slowly filled. Up behind us the walls were already crowded with every class of townsfolk, some few had spyglasses, and these were passed swiftly from eye to eye. Used to addressing such gatherings, but not used to being observed like an ape at a fair, I became embarrassed, and wondered if I should make a speech, or at the very least salute, salute the crowd. But this, I suppose, would have been in poor taste, for the balloon was the chief performer, and St. Audrin her keeper, her trainer. The Scotchman's full attention was upon the filling up of the vessel with hot air. Distant cries issued from the crowd, doubtless expressing its curiosity, asking questions. A few little boys and their dogs dared come closer, but were sternly waved back by a dignified St. Audrin. On the far side of the growing canopy, and attached by stout bell ropes, was an ornamental wooden and wicker car, gilded, tasseled, a trifle on the threadbare side, with head, wings and tail of some fabulous creature. This was the cockatrice, no doubt, which my friend saw flying over Prague. To me, it resembled a griffin, more. It was brightly painted, if chipped here and there, and resembled the kind of thing Indian princes used to decorate their shrines, or place upon the backs of their ceremonial elephants. As the balloon took shape, St. Audrin gestured for Schuster and myself to join him. "'I'm much impressed, gentlemen, by your crowd-gathering skills,' he said cheerfully, as he took a hefty pair of bellows to the brazier, and made it roar with an intensity which seemed to me unnecessary, but which pleased the audience. They clapped and whistled, sending little clouds of steamy breath into the cold air." The sky seemed sharp blue and with no hint of snow. Nearby was St. Audrin's emptied cart. 
his mules cropped the lawn. Two members of Mirrenberg's militia stood by, guarding the cart, fingering their muskets and asking bored, unsophisticated questions. One of these guards, a confirmed and noisy atheist, discoursed on how the wind, which progressed at different speeds according to the height one achieved, must eventually be charted so that we should be able to move along its courses, much as we presently moved on highways. His main theme, however, was on the subject of heaven and how the airship would not find it, thus revealing as balderdash the religious tyranny to which our race had been subject for nigh twenty centuries. That's why the church wishes to abolish such vessels, he confided. The canopy bulged and was restless as the hot air slowly filled it. The Charlier, St. Audrin said, was easier to fill and to fly, but the inflammable air, the hydrogen gas which lifted her, was also very dangerous and liable to ignite at a spark. The canopy lurched upright and ropes tightened on the griffin. The crowd, amongst its scientists and bureaucrats, which stood upon the wall, gave a great cheer whenever it seemed the, filk, the silk filled another significant inch or two. All we were missing was a municipal orchestra and a few words from the mayor. Meanwhile, the wall continued to be crammed at its top and at its feet with all manner of folk. From well-to-do ladies in bonnets and crinolines to barge captains in their oilskins. All the rivermen had arrived together, drunk and pretending they were taking an official holiday, each with at least one bottle, one stone bottle of gin or aquavit upon his person. The militia stared coolly at the bargees as if challenging them to do anything even mildly destructive. The rivermen all removed their hats at once and leaned dutifully towards the growing balloon, pursing their lips and widening their eyes in so comical a display that even St. Audrin was forced to laugh at them. He looked up at his balloon, cocked his head on one side, squinted, ran his hand across the tightening silk, and meanwhile pumped furiously with his remaining arm at his bellows, forcing the hot air into the envelope until his long face cleared in relief. Either a leak he suspected was not there, or it was still too small to be of much significance. Still the crowd grew bigger. I began to think entertainment must be hard to come by in Muirenberg. I recognised half the whores from Mrs. Sliney's, looking more like gentlewomen of the Beaumont and beaver hats and fine shawls, and not generally seen for what they were, save by certain embarrassed gentlemen who shook their heads when their wives inquired after this unusually large group of single women. Then, with a lurch, the canopy was up to full height, rising swiftly to halt suddenly and strain on her tethering rope with the green, gold, red, blue and white gondola swaying below like a captured beast from mythology. St. Audrin was quick with his ropes, testing each one to ensure it was securely anchored, bowing to the good-humoured spectators like some circus lion tamer who had accomplished a particularly daring trick. The canopy rose high above my head, and I, like the people on the walls, gasped in awe. I had never realised the thing could be so huge. It was the size of a building, and it shone green and gold and scarlet in the bright winter light. 
felt I was witnessing an authentic miracle. Suddenly I had a profound respect for St. Odrin, who no longer seemed a charming rogue, but an engineer of genius, since few had ever learned the techniques of the unfortunate Montgolfiers, one of whom was now dead while the other continued to enjoy the disfavour of a revolutionary government identifying him with the king who had patronised him. Secondly, I knew some measure of pride in my native land and its contribution to this miracle. The Montgolfiers always acknowledged the writings of Albert of Saxony, the 14th century monk whose treatise on flight inspired them to begin their own experiments. Albert, so family legend ran, was an ancestor to the von Becks. Well, now St. Odrin was on the move, lifting his tall hat in recognition of the crowd's applause, bowing this way and that, checking his machine in all its details, testing the pegs to which a single thick coil of rope were attached. Then he signed to me. There was room for at least four in the gondola, but Schuster would not be tempted. He hung back, a look of pale terror on his little face. So I smiled, clapped him on the shoulder and joined St. Audrin at the rope ladder we must climb. The Scotchman was chuckling and full of himself. I shook his hand enthusiastically. Overhead the silk blazed and strained. Donan's chariot must fly to greet tomorrow's dawn. St. Audrin went up first, moving rapidly as the ladder swayed. I imitated him more self-consciously, attempting to keep at least a semblance of dignified balance as I followed him into the car, with which within resembled a large rowing boat. The vessel itself, once boarded, was surprisingly steady. One might hardly have been airborne at all. There was a large picnic hamper fixed under a seat, books and a glass box, scientific instruments and all manner of blankets, quilts, clothing, weapons, indeed what was probably the entire contents of his wagon all carefully stowed. St. Audrin leaned out as I walked to the far side to help balance the car. The stern was equipped with a large oar, and there were monstrous bellows too, also a ship's anchor giving the whole contraption a parodically nautical appearance. St. Audrin cried, Let go! to the lads below, and I sensed a tiny jerk, but no sensation of flying, so I assumed we were not yet ascending. It was only when I stepped to peer over the side, I saw the ground rushing away below at terrific speed, that I realised we were leaving Earth behind. I could not hold back my exclamation. My stomach spun like a treadmill, and I was close to vomiting. Then I recovered enough to watch. Within a minute or two, when the balloon was some... Three hundred feet into the air, I could look down upon the walls and places of Muirnberg and see little white faces all staring upwards. It was possible to imagine the power one would feel should one be in command of the large vessel St. Audrin imagined, with mounted cannon and a brave crew one could achieve more than any army. I began to think in terms of aerial piracy. An entire city might be taken as the bandits of the high seas once took single galleons. Base though the emotion was, there was no denying I felt at least a demigod as we listened to the tiny voices of the crowd cheering while we were borne upwards, standing as it were upon a balcony in a palace of the skies. One moment I was Mercury, the next I was Blackbeard. There could 
be no defence at all against a navy able to anchor overhead and rain grenades or whole barrels of gunpowder upon the rooftops. Under the leadership of some new Attila, some purifying scourge which came not from the east but from the regions of heaven itself, a world revolution might indeed be possible. Here was an instrument of relentless justice and infinite destruction. My recollection suggests that my ascent, upon 300 feet of tethering bell rope by aerial ship, was the first moment I truly realised the world had embarked upon a radical new course, in which mankind's theories and dreams could now be made reality. Not by philosophical persuasion or example, but by mechanical means, we were at the threshold of a millennium whereby we should steadily increase our mastery of the natural world, whether and all the elements would eventually come under our control, so too should we master our own sensibilities by the power of volcanic mesmerism, if not by the power of our wills. Near drunk on all this, I waved again to the little upturned heads, St. Audrin began to unfurl flags here and there like a sideshow conjurer. A reader might reflect upon the irony of my situation at that moment. There was I, a veritable king of the air, admired by a crowd which would not be so impressed had Frederick of Prussia himself risen from death and come a-visiting, borne up, it seemed, by distant cheers from below, and swelling with unearned pride, in spite of being naught but a passenger, supported upon a platform hanging from no more than a few yards of silk, a little hot air, and, of most significance, the application of a scientific theory some four hundred years old, preening and strutting and symbolising, for myself at any rate, prospective conquest, not of other nations, but of the world of intellect and spirit, while, at the same moment, looking into the immediate future, I foresaw a treasure in gold and silver coin, which must surely be the tribute paid to us, the prophets and profiteers, of this quintessential monument to a dawning age of science. Yet, planning a flim-flam, a confidence trick, a share bubble of the lowest mediocrity. At last, it seemed, I discovered the secret of financial success, of retaining authentic idealism while, without apparent contradiction, turning a handsome gain. The future was not to be Rousseau's natural kingdom, nor yet Paine's utopia, after all. It was to be the creation of men who would labour in iron foundries to give flesh to the dreams of Arkwright, Smeaton, Watts, Trevethick, and other engineers who'd become to the 19th century what Voltaire, Burke, and Kant had been to the, our 18th. It was at this point I thought I'd ask my elated companion when we might expect to return to Earth. The chevalier scratched his head, looked to the horizon, wet a finger, and hold it to the wind. Crossing rapidly to the side of the gondola, swayed suddenly and set the whole vessel to rocking, apologised as I clung to a rope to stay upright, stared at the darkening sky, studied the western mountains, stroked at his chin, frowned upon his watch, patted his neckcloth, tapped a foot on the boards of the vessel's bouncing floor and shrugged. What well, depends, Captain, upon the weather? It seemed we would have to wait for the air to cool. 
then we should slowly descend. The Chevalier explained in some embarrassment that they were that there were perfectly accurate means of controlling the ship, but for this exhibition he did not have time to install every piece of equipment normally utilised. He would explain, he promised, as soon as we were on the globe's surface once again. Thus I witnessed from that gondola a magnificent sunset. The stars grew bright and clear in the darkening sky. The cold wind brought, out, brought the sharp scents of snow, and inch by inch, it seemed, our vessel gradually dropped earthward. At last we clambered from our basket to be greeted by Sergeant Schuster, together with two shivering boys of about ten years, their mangy poodle, the resentful militiaman, an old woman wanting to sell us a charm against, she said, vultures, and a thin, long-nosed clerk from the partnership, he said, of Hohenheim, Plesner, and Pulaski. We're dim near frozen, sir, said the Chevalier, rubbing at his hands. Is your business so urgent? We're advocates, sir, said the clerk, and when the Chevalier offered him a blank look, a legal practice, sir. The law, you know. We are lawyers. Aha! With an aggressive movement, St. Audrin accepted a card and squinted at it hard in the light from the brazier, which, for, their, for our own comfort, the militia had maintained. Too dark to read. Bailiffs, eh? Leave it with us. Ten o'clock tomorrow morning, sir, said the puzzled clerk. Something to your advantage, I believe. Advantage, hmm? The tall chevalier's manner changed suddenly, and he put one arm around my shoulders, the other around Schuster, and stared up at Muremberg's exquisite silhouette. The moon was by this time quite high. He murmured to me, A bite, I'm certain. Say nothing. Then, more loudly, he added, Come, friends, we'll celebrate our success with wine. From the darkness, the clerk wailed his bafflement. Shall you be there, sir? The chevalier paused. He was grand even haughty. Very well, tomorrow, but it must be eleven, he spoke as if an ill-bred child. Eleven, sir, yes, sir. Behind us, the aerial ship, guarded now only by the boys, swayed, creaked, and sighed, its canopy-forming bumps, distortions, and ripples as the air slowly escaped. "'Tis a question of weights and counterbalances, said St. Audrin, of simple ballast, too. In a larger vessel, or one with a metal gondola, for instance, are the brazier's carried, which is damped until the need for hot air arises, to keep one aloft, you understand. But it did not seem wise to introduce such an instrument today. One goes up heavy, using ballast to lighten, and comes down cold. What do you think, Von Beck? Did you enjoy the adventure? Are you with me? I've already given you my hand, sir, but I'm still curious as to how you believe I'll be handy to your enterprise. Handy? Dim, man. You're essential. Who would give a Scottish soldier cash before the job's completed? But a Saxon? A Von Beck? Ah, that's a different tale. We returned to the warmth of the martyred priest, and when Sergeant Schuster had gone off to explain his long and inconvenient absence to his wife, we sat together in the ingle nook, smoking good, cool church wardens and toasting our boots against the fire dog, knowing something close to contentment as we continued to discuss the coming of the new age and how best we might enrich ourselves by it. Then we went to our suppers and immediately thereafter to our beds. 
for the first few hours I slept undisturbed, only waking just before dawn, hearing a noise from Ladotta Square outside my window. I rose and turned down the lamp I had left burning, so that I might clearly look through the glass upon deserted, flagging cobbles and statuary. Waning moonlight presented yet another aspect of Mirrenberg. Two figures stepped rapidly from the eastern corner to the western. Both men wore swords and held scabbards against their thighs as they walked in the manner of soldiers. The pair doubtless went to duel, almost certainly near the Redotta Bridge which spans the Rat. It was the traditional meeting ground for such encounters. I envied them the simplicity of their conflict, which would be concluded in an hour or two without appeal. A little snow danced against my window, and the thin light came swaggering up the sky from behind a black line of steeples and eccentric roofs. A cold wind entered the room, and I hastened back to bed to lie for a while in a reverie of melancholy and dramatic rhetoric. The consequences of my own vanity. How I longed to see my labusa again. At last, impatient with this, I was up to the water bowl and splashing hastily before dragging on my clothing and homing like a cat for the warmth of the kitchen stove below. Disconcerting the maids and Frau Schuster, who would not usually expect to see me for another two hours, I retreated into a quiet corner with a cup of warm milk and brandy, claiming it was a headache which affected me. Watching those hard-working people go about their business, preparing stoves, food, beverages, cleaning all that must be cleaned in a thriving hostelry, drawing up inventories, planning what must be brought, and doing all with a fair grace, even cheerfully, I felt divorced from ordinary life and jealous of their apparent tranquillity. I had spent my youth and manhood largely in the service of enlightened causes, save for my Russian years, and this devotion to politics, to campaigns and strategies, to the general warfare, had left me in some ways ill-prepared, even naive when it came to viewing the concerns which these women, for instance, took for granted. There was an attraction in grand designs, for they frequently allowed us to ignore the daily matters of domestic drama which surrounded us. I imagined myself Ulrika Schuster, that friendly, good-hearted girl. If I were she, would I not, by her age, already have felt half my current disappointments and be expressing almost none of the resentment which I, by sex and position, brought up to take power for granted, currently suffered? This observation, while improving my moral state, did very little for my pain. When St. Audrin came down, he was dressed like a forester or a country gentleman, in hunting green, with a brown waistcoat and top-turned riding boots, a costume my father might have worn to visit the pastor on a weekday. And indeed, the Chevalier wore his outfit, he said, in order to create an impression of himself as an unostentatious aristocrat, someone with land wealth. He had the actor's gift of responding accurately to whatever disguise he adopted. He smiled at my lifted eyebrow. I'm a carpenter and a smith who must be induced to it. I've a carpenter and a smith who must be induced to allow me credit. They would supply a landsman what they'd refuse point-blank to a popinjay in dandy's threads. 
So the Von Beck name shan't be used yet? Used, he said, but not abused, and he winked. I presume you shall not take me with you. He shook his head. You are needed, my friend, for the prospectus. It must be written in a properly educated manner. He drew some folded documents from his tail pocket. Here are all the saliencies of my aerial men of war. Make her a merchant craft instead. Put a literary and fanciful touch to her particulars while I'm out. Then meet me at the lawyer's in Königstrasse at eleven. You require the whole prospectus by then? I'd be obliged, I. He drank a rapid tot of hot grog to prepare him for the weather outside, and then stood up, plucking his heavy cloak and his stick, his gloves and wide-brimmed hat from the bench beside him. I'll take it to the printer this afternoon. By tomorrow you'll be ready to begin. Wear whatever you fancy for yourself. You have an old name, which can always carry the newest fashion. Those of us with shop new names must endeavour by our waistcoats to suggest antiquity. And with a wink he was gone out into the awakening street. Having paid my respects to Sergeant Schuster, I returned up the stairs, passing Ulrika coming down. She greeted me pleasantly and asked if I intended to stay in my rooms that morning. And when I told her I'd be writing there, she said she would light the stove in my little parlour. It was too cold, she said, for thinking and shivering at the same time. I was touched by her thoughtfulness. I wondered how I should have fared in Mirrenburg had I arrived there without friends and my obsession still upon me. Soon, in the easy warmth of my parlour, I had composed the following. An Aerial Expedition The Latest Intelligence of a Modern Columbus but recently reported in the English press the return of a remarkable aeronautical navigator, Le Chevalier Colin James Charles Gordon Cowie Le Corky St. Audrin, nobleman of Scotland and Luxembourg, lately in the service of the Emperor Frederick of Prussia, was celebrated with great rejoicing in London and Edinburgh after the Chevalier's absence of nearly a year aboard his aerial schooner, the Danos. In his address to the Royal Exploration Society at Greenwich, the Chevalier spoke of new lands discovered beyond the Antarctic continent and of the astonishing variety of creatures and peoples he had found there. And at the end of his address, he displayed gems of unique size and purity. These were subsequently loaned to the Crown agents, who are yet attempting to assess their monetary value since. Nothing of their like has ever been seen before. The Chevalier de St. Audrin, who was both a hero of the East Indian campaigns and a knight of St. Leopold, informed the society of his intention to found an aerial navigation company, which would equip a larger vessel to journey by air to the newly discovered regions, and return with examples of both flora and fauna together, with further examples of those precious minerals which he himself saw in considerable quantities. Venality of the English Parliament This noble scheme has been threatened, however, due to the English government insisting, in spite of considerable public outcry, that the Crown receive half of any cargo so discovered. 
Subsequently, the Chevalier de Saint-Audrin departed in his vessel from England, and it is rumoured that he journeyed to his estates in Africa, which may be only reached from the air. Intention of his visit to Muremberg On the eve of his departure, the Chevalier expressed his hope of meeting more confidence and less greed amongst the continental nations. He expressed the intention of visiting the enlightened city of Muremberg, which is the capital of Waldenstein, whose people are famous for their generosity and positive curiosity. There, he would solicit interest in his newly formed Para-Antarctical Aerial Navigation Company. I will admit I was singularly proud of my literary invention, for the past few years I had written nothing but speeches, and their high-toned rhetoric, it now seemed to me, was better suited for the form of commercial advertisements. In this time of revolution and discord, I went on to say, it was wise for men of property to invest their capital in more distant lands, not yet settled by civilised peoples with radical notions. The Chevalier Saint-Audrin possessed charts, made by himself and other explorers, of lands as yet unmarked upon the familiar globe. It was his intention to have built a great aerial frigate, armed with the latest in weaponry, and with a complement of seasoned veterans of good character, and thus equipped, embark for these lands, claiming them, claiming them in the name of the company or any nation which should commission him. Any commissioning body or individual should have the honour of assuring one of the noblest ventures in modern times, and, moreover, be enriched by a profit many degrees greater than the original investment. I went on in this vein for a while, making reference to the drawings, which were excellently done, of the projected frigate herself, which would consist of an oval-shaped canopy with a wooden hull, and upon this would be mounted an assemblage of sails and wind oars, as well as various forms of ballast. The present director of the company was none other than Ritter Monfred Manfred von Beck, of that great and noble Saxon family, whose name had been associated for many centuries with ventures of only the most reliable stability and provenance. The Ritter's experiences in France, where he stood against Robespierre and defied the mob in his valiant defence of the king and his family, were now common currency, I wrote. These events impressed upon the Ritter von Beck. The urgent need for fresh colonies abroad where the mistakes of the past could not be repeated. To ascertain himself of the Chevalier St. Audrin's absolute integrity, he himself accompanied the explorer on his most recent voyage to the idyllic territory, free of disease and out discord of any kind, which St. Audrin had named Quasi-Africa. The drawings and the figures were the work of Ritter's own hand and displayed the wonderful tropical world, its riches and its fruits, together with its natives who were gentle and friendly, and whose simple costumes included headdress and harness of emeralds, sapphires and diamonds, which they dug from the floor of a certain valley not two miles from their capital town. As for vegetation and beasts, these consisted of many edible fruits and vegetables and various animals, most of which were not dangerous. The largest was a kind of ostrich with multicoloured plumage, used for ploughing and for pulling carriages by the natives, as well as a kind of ocelot whose coat resembled that of an ermine, 
though it was of a pinker cast. In danger of carrying myself away by these flights of fancy, I forced myself to stop and, hearing the cathedral clock strike ten, rolled up my best copies, tied them with a ribbon, drew on my topcoat and was off to the lawyers via Radoskia Avenue, where I made inquiries at a tailor's after a new suit of clothes, so impressed had I become by the promises of my own prospectus. Early at Messrs. Hohenheim, Plesner and Pulaski, I was shown into a waiting room, lit by a large bay window with a view of the Felfnesalli, busy and wide. Below and beyond it, the river was so crammed with the morning's traffic, the water was hardly visible. The room was sparsely furnished, containing a set of high-backed, uncomfortable chairs, a map of Muirenberg on the wall, a long, brightly polished bench, an ornamental stove in black and blue tiles, giving off a parsimonious warmth, and a framed testimonial that in the year 1732, Isaac Hohenheim passed with honours the high examination of the Royal Veldenstein Legal Council. The room smelled of beeswax and old parchment. The firm was a rich one, doubtless with aristocratic clients. There was a Turkish carpet on the floor. The uniformed beadle asked if there was anything I required while I waited. I told him there was nothing. I was content to breathe this wealthy dust for a while. Soon the beadle was back, ushering my partner into the room. St. Audrin was very much the busy owner of estates come reluctantly into town on business. He displayed the suggestion of a wink to me as he handed his outer garments to the servant, hovering in the shadow of the beadle's worsted and braid. Another minute while he went through my handiwork, praising, grunting, considering a phrase, and then the beadle was back and we were on the move again, through panelled passages, past libraries of mysterious books and offices where perched clerks at high stools and desks, like so many captive flamingos, quills squeaking on vellum, until we came to a great cabin, a throne room of a prince of law who had a circular window set near the roof. Through this window a massive sunbeam entered, piercing the ever-present dust and falling at last upon the bust of some 17th century lawmaker in a fluted wig and a gown so trimmed with stonework lace I thought it must surely crack at a touch. His white, unsmiling face was at odds with all his frippery, making it seem someone had played a practical joke upon him and dressed him in his costume while he slept. He seemed, however, sublimely unconscious of the deception. From the room's far shadows now stalked a figure whose face not only bore a striking resemblance to the elaborate bust, but was almost as pale. He was in cream-coloured silk, only the bright eyes, clear and without expression, had colour. The thick lips moved ponderously to utter a "'Good morning, gentlemen,' and then to introduce himself as Herr Dr. Lawyer Hohenheim Plessner, junior partner, and sixty if a day, and to ask our names. We bowed, announced our titles, and took his proffered chairs in front of his desk as he moved to a seat which had doubtless shaped his body over most of his life. I am, gentlemen, representing a client, and the matter requires your assurance of complete discretion before we continue. 
He fluffed and patted at his cravat while he spoke, and while he folded his hands to listen, he fixed the speaker with unblinking turquoise eyes which, on their own merit, must have won him the majority of his cases. We gave him our word on our silence. Satisfied, he picked up a folder to consult while he continued his deliberate discourse. My clients, a person of quality, are resplendent of this city. For reasons which cannot as yet be divulged, my client wishes to commission your aerial ship. Holy commission her, do you mean, sir? said St. Audrin, in some surprise. The existing ship? The existing ship, sir. Sir, we plan to build a better, more sophisticated vessel. Well, I shall inform my client, sir. Thank you. Well, then, St. Audrin frowned. Which ship do we discuss? Either, sir. I believe that to be immaterial in this particular case. Well, a great deal of money is required to equip her, said St. Audrin. I am able to inform you that money shall be forthcoming, as much as as appropriate. I could tell that the lawyer was anxious not to make large promises to us, but it was also clear that his client was not troubled by any shortage of gold. Both of us could scarcely contain our greed. Our scheme was progressing more swiftly and smoother than we had dared to hope. Are we to know anything else of your client, sir? asked Sir St. Audrin carefully. As I am sure you are aware, we are ourselves men of principle, and nothing, sir, nothing underhand, sir, is proposed, the lawyer pursed his pale lips. Of course not, sir. My client proposes to underwrite your entire expenses and to place only one condition upon your company. Sir, that my client have first choice of the ship's destination and purpose for the maiden voyage only. Thereafter, it is your affair where you sail her. St. Audrin, who had no intention whatsoever of completing the proposed ship, pretended to consider this carefully. Then he said, And we are not to know this destination and purpose. Not until you are ready to depart. A single voyage, and then the ship is wholly ours. Wholly. It's an attractive offer, sir. With an element of mystery and risk which whets my appetite, I must say. Yet, according to the vessel's destination, there will be things we shall have to know. The climate must be prepared, prepared for, and so on. My client understands. <coughs> my client understands as much. Now, gentlemen, do you wish to accept the commission, or shall we simply shake hands and go our separate ways? I'm tempted to accept, sir. But here's a problem for you. We are in the process of talks with investors interested in shares of the larger ship. Indeed, a prospectus is in preparation. Would it not be wiser for your client to wait until the prospectus is ready, to read it, to make suggestions even? There is a problem of shareholders already committed and so on. Money has already been spent in certain quarters. We can reach financial agreement, I am sure, easily enough. All my client wishes is that the first voyage be determined by them. Shall I tell my client that you are planning this new ship and that you'll send me a prospectus as soon as you have one? If you would, sir. And where are you lodging, sir? Lawyer Hohenheim Plessner made a note of our address. 
I shall send the message as soon as possible. Perfection, sir, said St. Audrin, much obliged. I, I hope we shall meet again, sir, said I. Hohenheim Plessner paused as he made to rise from his desk. He seemed a trifle embarrassed. Uh, excuse me, sir, but the name von Beck's more than familiar to me. The Becks I know are from across the border in Saxony. I had the honour to represent Graf Rückert von Beck in a business matter some years ago. My grandfather, sir. Hohenheim Plessner was suddenly ten times more affable, which was to say that a fraction of him relaxed. He was as close as he could be to enthusiasm. Now my hand was shaken, almost warmly, amid the doctor-lawyer's murmuring courtesies. I was highly impressed once again by St. Audrin's judgment. The family name was worth cash after all. I told my client that I thought you were Saxon von Beck. I foresee very few difficulties, my dear sir. The lawyer's offices vacated. We walked up the Vleskstrasse in the cold air of imminent snow as cloud formed from the east. St. Audrin was cheerful. All necessary business had been accomplished in the matter of smithery and joinery, and he was optimistic about attracting wealth from all quarters. Hohenheim Plessner, a most cautious old gaffer, is won over, that's obvious. If we can impress a man like him, the rest of our task will all be oil and Billy Griffin. He had a tendency to use the obscure catchphrases of Glasgow and Newgate when ebullient. Mm, but I was suffering qualms. My family name was a trust. One day I would be head of our clan. Beck and honesty have been synonymous for generations. I was involved, I feared, in too many lies already. Yet, why should a name alone have meaning? Better to betray it, I insisted to myself, and show the world how innocent and foolish it could be. I had learned, after all, to trust neither religion nor politics, and to put my faith in the realities of metal, wood, and steam, in practical engineering, whose rules could neither be changed nor made to the subject of morality. So why should I show reverence for mere antiquity? These fears were, to a degree, put to rest by St. Audrin's insistence that he take me to a large chop-house near the Mladota Bridge, from where we could watch the hurly-burly of the city. The bridge was crowded with horses, oxen, tumbrils, carriages, cabs, diligences, donkey carts, and all manner of men and women from every walk of life. Dim near as crowded outside as in, said I. We were jostled by waiters as they danced between the tables with smoking trays of Kolbshaxe and Eispine, and a variety of cutlets, half-cabbages, bowls of potato soup, and hunks of black bread. St. Audrin was familiar with the place, and soon had service for us. We toasted our future in strong Muirenberg stout, and after downing one full stein, I remarked upon my uncertainties regarding one of use of my family's name. St. Audrin was dismissive, dabbing delicately at his mouth with his sleeve, and leaning over the table toward me. Wealth's always a fair substitute for virtue, von Beck. I mentioned your name to an acquaintance this very morning, a clever old fellow called Protz, who's dabbled in supernatural studies, but earns his livelihood by producing lineage charts for the Nouveau Riche. He says your family's reputed not merely to have sought the Holy Grail, but to be its hereditary guardians. <laughs> what? 
The Becks are Fisher Kings, I laughed heartily and spontaneously, with no connection to that myth at all. Half my ancestors were this side of being atheists, and the other half were practical Lutherans. With a tradition of intellectual rather than religious inquiry, why there's more evidence of us being devil worshippers than grail keepers. Well, it's generally thought that your ancestors came from, or were intimately acquainted with certain mysterious lands bordering on our own, yet invisible to most of us. The middle marches, some call them. Potts says that there are 50 accounts in his reading alone which suggest that the Von Becks were more than a little familiar with supernatural beings. Well, I was uncomfortable with this. The old romances attached any name to their tales, as you must know, St. Audrin. Doubtless by chance a Von Beck appeared in one of those, and from that beginning. Well, the romancier did the rest, eh? If you were to believe all the old degenerate German legends, there's a grail in every castle, a Charlemagne or an Arthur under every mound. There's not a noble house without at least one werewolf offspring, or a younger son who's made a pact with the devil, an uncle practising the profane arts of alchemy, a vampirical grandfather, a mad monk, a ruined abbey in the grounds where witches meet, an incarcerated lunatic or heiress or both, an infanticide or two and a patricide, and of course a family ghost. I grew up with such stuff, though my own father always dismissed it. St. Audrin I'd be happy enough to see the end of all such superstitial, superstitious gibble-gabble in Germany. It's the bane of reformers. Even if it's presently fashionable amongst young romantics who celebrate the Teutonic past, thanks, I suppose, to the reborn popularity of Fortunatus and Nibelungenzaga, the extravagances of Goethe, Schiller, and all the other Stürmers and Drangers who followed him, now seeking out occult experiences... Not only do I lack interest in such things, my dear sir, I possess a positive instinct for reason, a distaste for myth, legend, and the German reverence for antiquity. I am old-fashioned enough to be a supporter of Nikolai in literary matters, but this fascination for mouldering tapestries and rotting tombs is one of the chief reasons for my leaving Saxony in the first place, and Saxony is far more enlightened than many other places." St. Audrin was disappointed by my scepticism. You sound like a canting Methodist, he said, and sniffed. There's no harm in a little fancy, surely, to give colour to dull lives. Your family legends are famous enough in Muirenberg to be of considerable use to us. My maps shall now be partly taken from your ancestral collection. To certain people, and this city's full of those young aristocrats you so despise, ever ready to join some new coven or discover a receipt for the elixir of life, they'll be of the greatest importance, and a touch or two of romance in our scheme will mean the sale of many more shares. I sat back as my meat arrived. I was silent. A great cloud of melancholy engulfed me suddenly, and I stared out at the bridge, wondering how I could have strayed so far from the course I set for myself when I put Castle Beck behind me and rode east. My radicalism in those days had not been sophisticated. It had been little more than a faith in reason, a belief in somewhat abstract notions of justice and an honest understanding that, by appeal and some small demonstration, Everyone could be made to realise how self-interest was synonymous with a rational altruism. 
My experience of Catherine's court, where many men of intellect gathered to debate these very issues, had served more to baffle than to illuminate, and my two years with the Tartars had given me little opportunity for philosophical inquiry. It had been in America I had begun to develop my sense of the complexities which go to organise the modern state, and in France I had attempted to balance those complexities in a practical experiment. At least, I thought glumly, my actions and words were then united. Now I was discovering I could be an accomplished liar when I chose. The understanding gave me no sense of pride. Moping again, Von Beck, said St. Audrin. Is it that woman you told me about, the Cretan? She'll come chasing you when you're the toast of Muirenberg, as you sh soon shall be, at this rate. In his own way, I believe he honestly tried to ease my pain. He ordered more stout and encouraged me to eat as he babbled of his plans, the eminent people he hoped to attract to our scheme, the possible identity of our would-be backer. He asked for the draft prospectus I had made and poured over it while he un uncharacteristically consumed an entire beef pudding, nodding and exclaiming, You're a literary genius, Von Beck. This is excellent stuff. It has just the right ring to it. Have you written for publication before? I denied it, though. In truth, I was already the author of a handful of broadsheets, a couple of treatises against slavery in America, which I had hoped to abolish. But while Washington offered a patron's argument for the institution, I supposed it would be some years before the rights of man were judged to extend to those whose freedom was not of economical benefit to the nabobs and landowners who only a few years before had cried, Freedom for all! It now emerged they'd wanted freedom only to improve their profits and not pay English taxes. I had also written a volume of radical poetry, a verse romance, long since vanished in its only edition, and called Chickenorpoo, or The Pastoral Utopians, which had been suppressed in America. And of course I continued to keep my journal, since partially published as a memoir, I would never again be so foolish as to draw my sword or wield my pen in what proved to be a rich man's cause. As the friendly stout softened moral argument, I informed St. Audrin that I was tired of being deceived by others. For a change, I would be the deceiver. Thus I quelled my conscience, and maintained my progress as a capitalist. Soon, by the drawing forth of anger and attaching it to past resentments, I was able to grin suddenly at St. Audrin, give wild acquiescence to all his proposals, and, with horrid savagery, set upon my cooling chop. Chapter 6 Bargains are struck, and work of a sorts is begun. My young radicals again. A further mysterious endowment, a challenge accepted, callers in the night, discomforts of a charnel house wagon. My beautiful Duchess had still failed to arrive in Muremberg, and while the Duke of Crete was said to be abroad from time to time dealing with the visiting alchemists, even going so far as to let several guests at his house, I had been unable to gain any further knowledge either of her movements or of his. Meanwhile, the lawyer, Hohenheim Plessner, had received our elaborate prospectus, passing it to his anonymous client, and requested a further interview. News of our mysterious backer, 
rumoured to be none other than the prince himself, inspired many Nuremberger worthies to press us into accepting their gold, and soon we had a box full of the stuff hidden in the gondola of St. Audrin's balloon, in case, he said, we needed to depart suddenly from the city. St. Audrin became so euphoric, he said he was almost tempted to try and fly, the, to build the flying frigate he had described. It was I who was forced to remind him that we had designed a swindle, not a genuine expedition, and that even if we built the ship, we could certainly never find the fabulous lands we claimed to be familiar with. Our shareholders were either greedy or foolishly romantic. One woman of middle years, the Landgräfin Theresa Wilhelmina Krasnaya Baderhoff Miroshnitsky, a cousin by marriage to the prince, hoped that by investing in our ship we might sail it into the middle march and find her missing husband. We accepted her fortune, though we know what, although we knew what she did not, that her husband, though given to dabbling in sensational melodramas involving the black arts, had actually died in the arms of one of Mrs. Sliney's whores. To avoid scandal, the Land Griffin's nephew, it was said, had seen to the body's disposal in the rats. Since he was due to inherit his aunt's wealth, he also said to was said <clears throat> he was also said to be furiously resentful of her bestowing money on a quest for her missing husband, yet ironically was no longer in a position to reveal that his uncle was dead. In the main, however, our investors were of the usual greedy merchant sort. Back in the lawyer's office, gloomy now that no sun shone into it, for the sky was full of seasonal snow, we were quizzed with a list of questions prepared by Hohenheimer Plessner's client. Since we had no great need of further backing, we cheerfully answered, knowing that we could only double the fortune we should take away with us from Middenburg when our balloon sailed. About halfway through this interrogation, which was perfectly friendly, the pale advocate held up an old book in a tattered binding. Van Brod confirms all you say, and I have discovered other evidence in support of your claims, which frankly, gentlemen, I thought a little fanciful myself, though of course I am not the principal here. Uh, what's the book, sir? asked St. Audrin. It was passed over the desk to us. I read the title page. A Treatise Upon the Discovery and Occupation of Occult Worlds. My guess was that the lawyer had been loaned it by his client. In there, gentlemen, is von Brod's description of the world he called the Middle Place, which lies, he thought, between our own and heaven. I also have a sheet from an old journal acquired by one of our agents, which gives instructions for entering those worlds, while... Here's another description from the 14th century monk, Augustus of Nierstein, who, where he has interviewed a warlock and a witch who visited what the monk names the world between. I was amused by all this. It was as if he assembled evidence for a trial, and, satisfied that there was a case to prove, was now prepared to believe every lie we invented. He even seemed excited and I knew a pang of guilt. A few leaves, he continued, from the records of Henry Alaminos of Danzig, a famous alchemist of the 15th century, again upon the identical subject, 
a fragment from a letter written by an unknown husband to his wife, describing an expedition into what he termed the Geistveld. I listened patiently, with a mixture of boredom and discomfort. Having never encountered such stuff before, the old man did not know how easily such evidence could always be accumulated. It was a question of the specific selection one made from the vast whole of the world's information. But now he paused, and his enthusiasm for our scheme came clearer. And here's something, Captain Von Beck, of interest to yourself. Perhaps you have heard of it before. It is a letter written by Brother Wilhelm of the monastery at Orenschel to a fellow monk at Olmutz. It is dated June 1680. Do I make a familiar reference? I shook my head, whereupon he handed over the following modern copy of a parchment, which he said was still in the hands of his client, and the chief reason, I was led to believe, for the said client's interest in our enterprise. I reproduce the thing here, as I acquired it later. I am presently embarked upon the strangest of tasks, which is the copying of a confession made by our patron lord, the Graf von Beck, whose good works are well known. I cannot, of course, describe the confession itself, but he has already made considerable astonishment. But he has already caused considerable astonishment and consternation amongst our fraternity, and speaks of exploring lands which lie somewhere beyond our earthly perceptions, being neither heaven nor hell, but in some wise of this world, and which he calls the Middlemarch. Brother Oliver takes the confession direct, and it is only my task to transcribe it. Yet my pen shakes in my hand sometimes as I record his story, and I must pause frequently to bless myself. Sometimes I pray the Graf raves in a fever, or lies to us, or is mad, but he seems as sane as always and in full command of himself, though weak from his illness. He describes land wherein the most fantastic beasts and races dwell, more strange than anything found in the old romances, and which seem in us seem in no wise unusual to him. However, it is the import of his tale which chiefly distresses us. Pray for us all, dear brother, and I beg you pray additionally for me, that I may not go mad from this task. Well, this was the second unwelcome reference to my family's legend in recent days, and when the lawyer looked significantly, my, I was forced to pretend an intelligence I did not feel, for by now, of course, I was committed to the role of Saint, committed to the role that Saint Audrin had imposed on me. You will know, of course, which ancestor is referred to," said the lawyer respectfully, folding the paper when I handed it back to him. My paternal ancestor, my grandfather's great-great-grandfather, I believe, sir. I felt a fool and a rogue. Well, sir, you know well enough where he travelled. You have been to those regions yourself with your partner. Of course, sir, said St. Audrin, you have seen the maps and such. Which convinced my client. These other questions you will appreciate are merely those drawn up by myself in my capacity as a lawyer. We're a cautious breed, more cautious than adventurers such as yourself, and... I believe he attempted to utter a laugh. The deception was growing less and less to my taste, and I was divided between making my own confession, and so betraying St. Audrin, or keeping silent, 
Needless to say, I kept silent and felt myself a worse coward. Some silly nobleman, no doubt, had collected a great many old books and cobbled from them a theory which could be disproved by a rational argument in a flash. Well, who was I to destroy their dream, I argued. They would learn their own folly when I disappeared with their gold. Aha, aha, St. Audrin chimes like a cathedral steeple. The Middlemarch, just so, and that's why the expedition shall require the building of a new ship. Our old vessel, the aerial boat we flew the other week, is neither large enough nor strong enough for the journey. I understand, sir. I was about to come to the question of capital. First I must know how long the ship would take to build. Well, it depends, sir, upon the craftsmen employed. For the hull, the best are in Bremen. The canopy should be made in Lyon. The rest can be constructed here in Mirrenberg, but it will take, as you'll understand, a matter of months. You would be ready, say, by September of this year? Very likely, her doctor lawyer, but the craftsmen of Bremen and Lyon will require money in advance as proof of our good faith. I understand. And how would the money best be sent abroad? By draft? By note? I have not inquired, sir, but could have that information for you within a few days. <clears throat> they are the best, these Bremen builders. <clears throat> as, <clears throat> as good as my native Scottish shipbuilders, I, and it would not be practical to deal with those at present. Hitherto, of course, the Bremeners have only built for the sea, but the lines of our ships are ideal for aerial voyaging. The air must flow, a mysterious gesture with both hands, so the airs must pull thus, a kind of paddling movement, and the sails have to be rigged on leaning masts at an angle of at least 45 degrees, so a geometrical representation palm to palm. And then there are all of the subtler engineering problems, though we're fortunate in having the services of an ideal architect who has worked in his time for both British and Dutch navies. He's at present on the way home from America, where he has been advising the government there on the most suitable designs of ships for their needs. And so St. Audrin peeled on in this by now familiar mode a musical invention, which built upon the simplest of melodies to provide dazzling complexities stimulating the listener's imagination. In other words, the listener's own picture was painted in the shining colours. The colours St. Audrin provided. By seeing what they wished, they also saw what he wished them to see. They are the orchestra, he had told me earlier. I am merely the conductor. When he had completed his performance, I was almost as impressed as the sober-faced lawyer across the desk. St. Audrin assured the lawyer doctor that our ship would not only sail into the middle march, crossing barriers impossible to negotiate by land or sea, but would be ideally equipped for any eventuality. He made sly references to the illustrious gentleman and your noble client, as convinced as I that Mirrenberg's ruler was the person giving us this backing. Why the prince should outlaw secret societies dedicated to similar claptrap as we were selling, and yet be impressed by our claims, I did not bother to question, on the basis that frequently it was possible for an enthusiast to embrace one ludicrous notion while vehemently attacking another which was quite as ludicrous. Human nature explained everything for me in my mood of cynicism. 
As we returned to Mladota Square in our new hired carriage, St. Audrin had the weary air of a great actor who had satisfactorily given a difficult part to an appreciative audience. The launching of our society is to be easier than I'd guessed, he'd said. For my part, I had grown anxious. It was one thing to cheat a burger or two, but quite another to cheat an illustrious prince. I believe that it was from then that I began to experience a recurrence of my nightmares. Thus my nights were once again spent in the dream company of my duchess, with a bullman snorting his heart into my face, and the labyrinth growing more complicated, and the whispering voices threatening, while daily St. Audrin was producing more and more fine forgeries. Letters of reputation, together with a whole variety of other testimonials and documents, ostensibly emanating from the shipbuilding firm of Linder and Linder in Bremen, offering to construct a hull for the Aerial Exploration Society at a cost of some 27,000 talers, with T9,000 down, T9,000 to be paid on a completion of the mainframe, and T9,000 to be completed for the, on completion of the hull. For 10,000 talers, Messrs. Vingler and Piedmont would weave and make airtight a silk envelope of the specifications given. They had worked for the Mongolfiers, but required half the price in advance. They could charge extra for any insignia, flag or coat of arms which must be incorporated before the final varnishing of the fabric. Mr. Marquess, the naval architect, enclosed plans and looked forward eagerly to beginning detailed work upon his return from America, and so on. The more elaborate St. Audrin's swindle became, the queasier I grew and the worse my dreams. If discovered, we should be exiled at best, but probably executed. There would be nowhere in the civilized world we should be able to travel. I had planned to make my fortune with smaller deceptions, more traditional strategies, Yet now I was in too deep to escape without betraying St. Audrin and revealing the extent of my own roguery. Oblivious to all morality, to all consequence, my friend continued to sink deeper into this morass of illusion. In further conversations with the lawyer, he regrets the lack of inflammable air for the powering of our new ship and wonders if this too might be purchased. The lawyer makes notes. Contracts are drawn up and at last I must put my signature to them. I feel I am selling my soul to Satan. I can scarcely believe St. Audrin's light and easy attitude to the whole thing. The money we stand to accumulate is too much. I had no ambition to attract the wealth of a nation, merely the fortune of a widow. And so the time fled by as unreal to me by day as it was by night. I took to drinking more than was wise and to stalking the streets in the faint hope that I should come upon my duchess. The winter grew colder. I felt that my spirit was dying within me. I had never experienced such a bleak unhappiness as I knew then. Frequently I thought of taking my horse from the stable and merely riding away from Muremberg as much a pauper as I had been when I arrived. I longed for Beck, for peaceful Beck and the security of my family. Yet stubborn, pointless, destructive pride kept me in Waldenstein's capital that and my misplaced friendship for the Scottish rogue. On paper our great vessel began to take shape, 
St. Audrin even went so far as to draw elaborately coloured sketches of the ship's progress, and this contented the more nervous shareholders. I did not dare estimate the amount of money we now stored in our box, and only reluctantly at my partner's insistence went out to the little field when he visited the shed which had been erected to shelter the old balloon. There, laughing to himself, he deposited the latest bag of tailors, seemingly oblivious of my misery's origins. This cold weather depresses you, eh? he said. No matter. Warm your hands against that gold. We made to return to the city. He sang out a cheery word to the guards. Protect my ship, gentlemen, as if it were the treasure of El Dorado. The little field lay deep in snow, and snow was piled thick on evergreens, on the ornamental shrubs and trees, on the marble statues on our wooden shed. The sun was thin ivory. Mirrenberg was before us, her white walls and towers shading imperceptibly into the general whiteness of land and sky. St. Audrin wore a red cloak and hat, but I was in the black I had grown to favour. As we trudged back towards the gates, a carriage came rolling through, and from the window we saw the fur-swathed figure of one of our patrons, the landsgräfin Teresa Wilhelmina, all lurid paint and wild, despairing blue eyes, waving to us and calling for us to be comfortable, of, to be careful of the ice underfoot. We heard learned that she was moved by whims connected with the predictions of her astrologers and clairvoyants. The whole family was touched by the same disease. Her husband, when not a devoted whoremonger, had dabbled in the mysteries. His mother had been, scandal said, a full witch, and her sister a bestialist, while her nephew was known to run with a set, mostly younger Austrian bloods who affected to practice Satanism. But our Landgriffin had no interest in the wilder reaches of the superstitious ocean. We bowed and lifted our hats as she went by. Much of the gold in our coffers was hers. As we turned to watch her carriage go by, I saw to my surprise four riders approaching. They looked as if they had been on their horses all night. I recognised them almost at once as the young radicals who had saved me in the flight from Montsorbier. I was delighted to see them, and wondered what had befallen the rest of their party. Good morrow, gentlemen. Do you remember me? The four were scarcely able to lift their heads, so weary were they. Stefanik looked at me from the depths of a haggard face. Aye, sir, of course I know you. His voice was almost a whisper. A flight of crows spread themselves, croaking and complaining into the sky, and scattered, their noise all but drowning his words. There was no time for conversation. I directed them to the martyred, pri martyred priest with the suggestion we dine there together. They were glad of this and, proposed to do, and promised to do as I proposed. Their company was now too short and their clothes and weapons no longer so neat. Indeed, only one of the Poles, Stefanik himself, still had his brown bess. It had taken only a matter of weeks for him to be robbed of his air of innocent enthusiasm his youthful superiority. Doubtless they had gone to Paris and found all I warned them of to be true. They rode on ahead of us, St. Audrin looking a little disturbed, wondering aloud if perhaps it was good that we should be seen in the company of radicals, now that all the sheep of Muranberg's bordes were beginning to bleat for their chance of acquiring grazing rights on our bubble. 
I dismissed his fears. With each successful fraud, St. Audrin grew more cheerful, more sure of himself, for he estimated his worth according to his ability to deceive the world. For my part, I was merely astonished at how men and women would throw off all sense when confronted with an appeal to their inner selves, the prospect, no matter how unlikely, of their dreams being made concrete. Promise a man a cheap interest in a timber mill, and he shows instant suspicion. But promise him immortality, eternal fidelity from his mistress, a glimpse of El Dorado, and treacherous hope will always trap him. Thus, old men are turned into fools by clever doxies, and widows into wet-eyed girls by handsome rogues. Yet, these are the same who count their change in the button shop, and study a servant's accounts to the last fraction of a fennig, who are sceptical of the existence of the next valley, let alone the next world, and doubt the need of a blind beggar in the street. Indeed, it's fair to say that the more cautious and miserly the person, the more easily they're lured into a greater folly. Pausing at the Chevalier's breezy insistence to celebrate our successes with a glass or two of gin and water in a riverside ordinary, we made our way finally to our headquarters. In the large tap room of the martyred priest, my four young friends were warmer and less travel-stained than earlier, and I cried hello, for I was slightly drunk, and brought forward St. Audrin to be introduced. They were rueful and a little shy, for they had lost more than two of their company. They had also lost some of their enthusiasm for the commune, and had to say that my warnings of Paris had substance. But they were otherwise remarkably undaunted. They'd find their utopia yet, they said. Where? asked I. South America, replied Krasny, the native Muranberger. Peru, St. Audrin wanted to know. Colombia, what do you hope to find there? We mean to begin a new civilization, sir, based on fair principles. All you'll find, boys, is disease. And dying Indians. She's short of gold, moreover, the subcontinent. Not what she's cracked up to be at all. He said this most feelingly, as if the entire land had once conspired to betray him. We're disinterested in gold, sir, the pale-haired von Lutzow, grown gaunt since his adventure began. You'll not be after a year, promised the Chevalier, munching a trotter. What Sylvania, what golden paradise shall bloom amongst the deadly vines and monstrous snakes? the swamps and unnavigable torrents, the strangling forests and gigantic birds of prey, where Indians lurk in the shadows of your stockade, ready to kill you for the colour in your kerchief, with little poison darts you neither hear nor see, nor yet even feel until you're threshing. You're rhetorical, sir, but unspecific, von Lutzow was offended. Specific enough, muttered St. Audrin, and fell silent. By what means shall you travel to South America? I asked. By ship, sir. Probably from Venice or Genoa. We'd charter your vessel and go by air, but I doubt we can afford it, young Stefanik spoke. You've heard of that? In Prague, and here, of course, where the whole town has the news. I feared that the more the world heard, the sooner it would understand our fraud. The road back to Beck was narrowing. Soon it would close for me altogether. 
I attempted to cauterize the pain in my own heart. It was like a surgeon who must open up his own body, trying to retain objectiveness as he took a scalpel to his infection. What continues to push me in this direction? Surely it must be more than it seems. Or is it just a fascination for the unexplained permutations of my own character, as if I'm carried along by the plot of a sensational tale, mesmerized by the progress of my own destruction? Sergeant Schuster had joined us halfway through this exchange. He made a motion with his hand, wanting my attention alone. I excused myself and crossed to his counter. He had a sealed letter addressed jointly to St. Audrin and myself. I asked him who brought it. A street boy, he said. My wife received it. The hand was educated, foreign, a little familiar. Perhaps it was from the Landgriffin. I broke the seal. The note inside was simple enough and was not signed. The inflammable air you require for your ship is now available in this city and shall be supplied to you whenever you wish. No price is asked save that you agree to provide a short passage to the donor and the donor's servant at the time of their choosing. A messenger will call for your reply tomorrow. St. Audrin came up, still expressing impatience with the young idealists. What's this? When he read the letter, he frowned. Hydrogen! What excellent fortune, von Beck! He meant, of course, that we should be able to make off with our stolen money in even swifter time, for the gas was as easily used to inflate our existing ship as it was to fill the one as yet unbuilt. I knew the outlines of his plans, but not the details. At some time we should make a practice ascent and become lost. We must accept this offer, he said. Who proposes it, I wonder? Merenberg's presently as full of alchemists as fleas on a dog. It could be any one of them. He turned the letter this way and that. Only a master would have both the equipment to manufacture that volume of the gas, as well as a means of storing it. He's probably easily identified. Johannes Carathanos, most likely, who's also very rich and has his own estate ten miles upriver. Or Marcus van der Geet, who came here twenty years ago from the Low Countries. Like many, he chose Valdenstein because of her traditional encouragement of scientific inquiry. Or it could be one of those who visits the city for this mysterious conjunction of theirs. Oh, whoever he is, said I, you had best write our answer. I'll abide by it. But I dislike the idea of making vague bargains with anonymous alchemists. And the bargain suits me, since the gas shall be delivered before we are called to keep our side. It's all to our advantage, von Beck. I shrugged. The Scot was the steersman on our voyage into deception and damnation. My will had been left behind somewhere between Paris and Prague. What remained of my resolve was used to keep me sane when the nightmares assailed me. I feared that uncontrollable chaos might result from St. Audrin's euphoric decisions. I was fearful, while at the same time, in some wise elated with myself, as if I welcomed the inevitable consequences the vengeance which fate must bring. Meanwhile, our quartet of idealists continued to discuss the immorality of war, the natural goodness which the invention of money and private ownership of land stunted and corrupted in us all. I felt near jealous of them, regretting the loss of my own innocence while wishing I had possessed some measure of St. Audrin's pragmatism when I had been their age. Then perhaps I should not have swung so easily from one pole to the other, 
and found myself in my present moral predicament. Suddenly I realized I was trembling, close to swooning. I felt as if I had been poisoned, but more likely I was merely the victim of sleeplessness and disturbed conscience. I decided that I must try to rest and was about to bid goodnight to my young friends when I looked towards the door and saw something which made me fear that I was indeed going mad, making phantasms from my own imagination. Framed momentarily in the white glare, surrounded by grey smoke which rushed to escape from the taproom, banging snow from cape and hat and stamping mightily upon the floor was the tall, slender figure of my nemesis. Had Monsorbier followed my quartet of romantics all the way from Paris? Had he read reports of the balloon enterprise in the foreign press? Or was he now, like me, a fugitive from the treacherous tyranny he had helped create? I came up straight, alert as a weary mohawk, and stared directly at him while he advanced slowly with his usual elegant and attractive stride, almost a wolf's lope through the crowd, glancing here and there about the tables as he recreased his huge bicorn hat. Swinging his cloak off his shoulder and over his arm, he revealed a sword and a single long-handled pistol in his sash. Thin, well-formed lips were curved as usual in the suggestion of a smile, and the piercing eyes had a veiled, deceptively amiable expression. His hair was tied back and fell to his shoulder blades. His frock coat was perfectly cut, his boots and breeches as exquisite as ever. He remained the revolutionary dignitary in all aspects, whether he had renounced his politics or not. I found that in a strange way I was strengthened by that familiar danger. I inclined my head in his direction, inquiring after his health. Improving, thank you, citizen. And yours? His voice was sardonic. These winters bring a little fever, you know, but otherwise I'm in capital condition. You're too far from Paris, sir. Do you not find the weather here inclement? Oh, it's devilish cold and sharp, but that's always suited me, citizen, in season or in steel. Yet sustenance is hard to come by, eh? Not so hard, citizen. My needs are spare and I am amply satisfied at present. Then I'm mistaken, sir. I thought you survived by sucking on a he-wolf. At this reference to Robespierre, his eyes became angry for a split second, like a sudden squall at sea, and then they returned to a deceptive tranquillity. How did you learn I was a Muremberg? I did not. I have other business, you see. I am invited guest, part on a mission. I'm an envoy representing France. But of course I've welcomed the opportunity to renew our old association. I have been in Muremberg for two days. How is your friend, the woman who styles herself Duchess of some remote rock in the Adriatic? You speak in code, sir. You would oblige me if you could be more direct. Are you here to arrest me? I've no authority here, Von Beck. What can you mean? He lifted his dark brows. I could not believe him suddenly free of hatred for me. Even now there was some suggestion that he coiled to strike. And sure enough, his next words clarified the matter. 
It's a personal dispute which must be settled now, he said. I trust you've kept a trace or two of your honour since you become a man of business. You take my meaning? Perfectly, sir. I shall leave the choice of weapons to you. I shrugged. And the place? I'm told it's traditional to use the wool yard at Mladota Key by the bridge there. I'll say swords, I said in a murmur, not wishing to be overheard by my friend. Sabres? Your choice. Sabres, since we're both so equipped. What time, sir? I'm easy on that, sir, but dawn's traditional. That would bring us to the bridge by about seven. Tomorrow being a Sunday, we should be undisturbed. Dueling was frowned upon in Muirenberg, and sometimes there were heavy penalties inflicted on those who resorted to the practice. It should not take us long, I think, said Monsorbier, signalling to Sergeant Schuster, who was busy at the far end of the counter. I hope not, sir. I've much to do. He was almost grinning with pleasure, anticipating his satisfaction. I had had little experience at swordplay in recent months, but I believed that we were evenly matched. Neither of us could have stood against a master for more than five minutes, but we were both fair steelmen nonetheless. This would not be his first duel, nor mine. Somehow this challenge had come at a perfect moment for me. I felt relieved by its simplicity. By the promise of resolution, Sergeant Schuster came up at Monsorbier's signal. The Frenchman's eyes narrowed as he recognised Schuster, but could not place him. Schuster, on the other hand, began to frown. Monsorbier became uncomfortable. Suddenly he turned away from Schuster and bowed to me, and then he began to stride rapidly toward the door. Tomorrow, sir. I would need St. Audrin and Schuster as seconds, so I informed them that I had accepted my pursuer's challenge. St. Audrin at once began to scheme a method by, of besting Monsorbier by a trick, remembering a duel he won by such a means in Prussia, while Schuster offered me the use of himself as an exercise partner, for which I was grateful. I recall the Frenchy's style, said the sergeant, having fought him before, as you know. All I lost then was a commission, but you stand to lose your life, Captain. Yeah, but what shall I do for a partner if you're killed? demanded St. Audrin in genuine alarm. Reality had provided an unwelcome break in the brightly coloured clouds which had come to shroud the terrain of his thoughts. I smiled. Perhaps Monsorbier will join you, should he kill me. I need the name, said St. Audrin reasonably. Your name, not his. Well, before I go to my appointment, I'll draft a letter to my brother outlining your proposals. St. Audrin then betrayed a sudden, genuine sympathy. I'm serious, dear friend. Well, I shall not be if I'm extinguished tomorrow. However, I expect to win. I've had more direct experience at defending my life than I suspect has Monsorbier. Why do you not write an answer to the mysterious donor of inflammable air? He hesitated, glanced at Schuster then, with parchment in hand, climbed the stairs to his rooms. For my part, I had welcomed Monsorbier's challenge though I now grew cold with that category of fear which provided me with what had often proved a false sense of objectiveness, yet which nonetheless successfully lifted my spirits. That evening the tap room was emptied early. My four young friends were weary and went to Krasny's family home to sleep. Sergeant Schuster saw that benches were cleared back. Then, with our sleeves rolled up and our knees bent, we addressed each other's sabres, while St. Audrin, 
returning from above, bit his nails in a corner, and Ulrika and her mother watched with troubled eyes from the gallery above. I was pleased just to be active. Very rapidly my skills came again to me as we fenced back and forth over the sawdust, with Schuster grinning his pleasure at the sport. But this single day was to be the pivot on which all our future fortunes would depend. There were many further events ahead of us. Even when we were through with all our feints and gambits, there came a tapping on the door. Sergeant Schuster signed for Frau Schuster to respond. It cannot be the watch, said he, but for caution's sake we set our swords behind his counter and snatched tankards in the place. Frau Schuster took her comfortable bulk to the entrance, lifted up the bar and then staggered backwards as the door was driven violently inward, and a dozen men, their faces masked by scarves, pushed brutally into the martyred priest. I thought at first they were Monsorbier and his party, but they were dressed wrongly for Frenchmen. These bully boys now pulled great pistols from beneath their dark greatcoats, levering some at Frau Schuster, the rest at Ulrika, who was fierce with anger. The woman die if you resist, said the muffled leader. He had the coarse, impatient tone of one who was a professional at this work and had, moreover, a vocation for terror and torture. Had Monsorbier turned coward and hired a parcel of footpads to save himself the trouble of rising early? I was unable to believe it of him. Well, then who had sent them? What other enemies had we in Muremberg? Your St. Audrin, asked the leader of me, gesturing with my barker. I made no reply, and he looked towards my partner, who was feigning carelessness, still in his corner. Oh, aye, he drawled, and what can I do for you, gentlemen? He stood up and looked down his long nose at them. Gaz, you're a big healthy fellows. Are we off to a prize fight? Then this will be the other, said the leader of me. He sucked an ear and blew it out suddenly through his muffler. Good. We were surrounded. My only handy weapon was the sword I had hidden behind the counter. Sergeant Schuster and his family were helpless. The sergeant looked towards our secreted weapons, but I shook my head slightly. We could not risk the lives of the woman. He contented himself with a snarl. What is it you want? Money? It's already gone from the premises. The watch will be passing here within ten minutes, and if I do not respond to its signal, you find yourselves fighting half a score of trained militia. You'll leave now if you have if you've sense. But the leader of these invaders was unimpressed. He motioned with his pistol. We've come for these gentlemen. They're safe enough if you don't interrupt us in our commission. His voice remained coarse and sinister, and you'll say nothing to the watch innkeeper, or you'll find this pair skinned and gutted before morning, with apples in their mouths trussed for the oven. Not one of his crew laughed, or otherwise acknowledged his morbid jest. Silence dropped like a winding sheet upon us all. For a moment the scene was completely still. Then the leader signalled again, and St. Audrin and myself were roughly shoved, made a stumble towards the door where in the snowy darkness a box wagon stood waiting, its doors open. It was the kind of covered cart used for transporting cows to market, to bringing butcher's meat from the charnel house, and it stank of just such recent use. Do not jeopardise your family, Sergeant, I said. We'll send news to you if we can. Get inside, ordered the chief rogue. St. Audrin hesitated, his manner theatrical. Dem, he said in drawling English. I do believe the fellow's not joking. 
Old friend, we're captured for no special merit of our own. The butchers run short of pork. We has become contents of a pie. He led the way into the stinking, blood-spotted hold, crying out for all the world like an impatient aristo. Drive on, man, drive on, tis a cold night, and we've no topcoats. Chapter 7, in which we discover a little of what lies beneath Mirrenberg's surface. A dangerous farce. Lucifer's name taken in vain. Conversation regarding the Antichrist. A supposed acquaintance of my family. An invitation to dine in hell. I accept. With so few clothes upon our backs, we were indeed near to freezing by the time the van passed into what, by the echo, was a courtyard. A gate was locked shut behind us, and we heard whispers in the darkness outside. This stink is dreadful, complained St. Audrin. Do they mean to stifle us to death? Almost as if we had been overheard, the doors of the charnel wagon were opened, and we gasped gratefully at the purer air. Three men entered the van. Two held pistols at our temples, while the third tied our hands behind our backs and blindfolded us, for all the world as if we were prisoners on our way to execution. Perhaps, thought I, Monsorbier had prepared this death. Did he possess his own guillotine? Might he not, in his fury, believe that I must not cheat the machine? But why manifest his vengeance on poor St. Audrin, who had given him no offence, save in the bearing of a title and an aristocratic lisp, albeit both recently acquired? Now we stumbled, boots upon rough paving, from van to doorway and into somewhat warmer air, though damp, down steps on which we slipped, grunting and falling, shoulder against shoulder, no longer caring to protest since we had no answers as yet and would possibly never have any until we were finally in hell. Down still further, echoed drops of water from high vault to flooded floor, and further, natural rock, stalactites and fungus, the sound of viscous liquid and a stink as if a sewer emptied nearby. Cover my nose and not my eyes, I beg thee, gentlemen, said St. Audrin desperately, perhaps by way of a joke. The rufflers pushed us on, sliding and staggering, down another level at least. Could there be anything below the very sewers? Were these Svatavian catacombs, where Christians hid from pagans and then vice versa? Where Ritter Igor von Miroff slept awake if his name city were ever subjected to the rule of tyranny? I'd once thought these caverns fanciful legend, borrowed from Rome or Constantinople. But here they were for certain, and I told myself that no one could mean to kill us out of hand, or we should have been dead by now. Such white thuggies as these are too lazy for overmuch caution or for considered finesse. I had become almost hot. I felt, in fact, a fire's heat on my face sensed a flickering brand. Footsteps retreated. A door was closed. There was the smell of sulphur in the air, 
a stink more reminiscent of chemicals and retorts. Could it be he who had written us the note about the inflammable gas? A benefactor with a savage's sense of humour? We were pushed by invisible insistent hands back until we reached a wall. The stones were smooth. Something snapped around my ankle, and chain was slithering now. We were manacled. The blindfolds were taken away from our eyes, but the bonds remained. I could see only glaring flame, then red baskets of coal swinging from the roof, then a huge bloated face. And the whole charade was suddenly explained. We were surrounded by the banalities of a theatrical stage, the kind of scene one finds everywhere in the modern playhouse where a multiplicity of mechanical devices is used to affect the public sensibility, to make folk swoon with terror for want of being moved by poetry of honest drama. Here was the setting for a Satanist coven, if ever I'd seen one, and sure enough the men and women who stood in the shadows of this grotto were clad in monastic habits, cowled and masked. I was convinced now that this was not of Monsorbier's engineering. From behind the great goat-faced screen came a diminutive red-robed abbot with splayed feet. He spoke in that sing-song all such people prefer to substitute for ordinary speech, archaic and somewhat immoderate in its use of adjectives. Out it rushed as if a suddenly unblocked privy, Wretched, reckless, rebellious rogues, you dared reject the warnings of our malevolent king, and now you must suffer our ruthless revenge. Horrid, wriggling worms, your heresies make you hateful in the eyes of hell and her unholy host. All this affected by the speaker's difficulty in pronouncing the letter R and substituting for it the familiar W. How plead you in your perversity? Can you reasonably claim your crimes have not made you wipe for Lucifer's righteous revenge? Gad, said St. Audrin, still in English, a worse fate than this is impossible to imagine, Avon Beck. We've fallen into the clutches of a demented juvenile with a penchant for poor alliteration. You and I shall discover no wit here, I fear. You'll speak in a civilised tongue, sir, squeaked our captor, or suffer to have it remove completely. I had now I recognised the speaker. I had met him before at our Landgrafen's. It was her devil dabbling nephew who had so resented the largesse she had thrown our way. Doubtless he was already counting his inheritance. My dear Baron, said I, tis easy to tell you're piqued because your aunt favours our enterprise over your expectations. But don't you think even your friends here would agree your reactions a touch exaggerated? Mock not this terrible tribunal, lest ye be judged instantly and condemned with neither indictment nor defence. We have gathered, miserable man, to try out in the matter of your disobedience to the dictates of our sinister master, lord of the infernal realms, ruler of rulers, commander of the infinite legions of the damned, his most satanic majesty, Prince Lucifer. You defy the dictates of hell by intruding into that disputed territory of the upper air, the realm already claimed by our master to which man is forbidden. 
that the arch-usurper Jehovah had already claims this Ouijan as his own is well known, but that men should interject their prideful designs into that dispute is unacceptable either to hell or to heaven, for the war is soon to be fought that shall decide the struggle, the stars condoin. St. Audrin raised a well-trimmed eyebrow. Well, I must congratulate you, Herr Baron, on your most splendidly elaborate disguise. He spoke bravely enough, but I must say I find your speech a trifle confusing. His words came out a touch blurred with a tremble to them. He knew as well as I that we were in the hands of a small-minded degenerate. This Baron sought only the mildest excuse to commit the most hideous acts of torture and murder. There was no appeal to such as him, as I'd already found in France. One's only appeal would be to God, and God had long since been abolished from my universe. St. Audrin, however, would call on any aid, whether he believed in its existence or not. He there and then flung back his head to shout, O oh, my patron! O oh, Lucifer, prince of the morning! Make these ignorant people aware of whom they persecute! Well, the baron was baffled for a second by that. He hesitated. He cleared his throat. There came a murmuring from the congregation. How many used their Satanism to release their carnal lusts? How many at least partially believed in the power of Lucifer? How many were faithful converts to his cause? Well, I did not know, but St. Audrin had found our only argument, and again I was impressed by the facility, if not the morality, of his wits. Lucifer, hear me! bellowed the clever Scot. Your name is used in vain, master, and turned upon your son. The red robe made an agitated, flat-footed swirl to address the throng. He lies. He's no adept. Adept, says St. Audrin, gathering into momentum and pushing forward his small gain. True, I'm no adept. I am Thog Magoch. Count of the fiery pit, and Lucifer is my father. I am his emissary upon earth, the sole vessel of his power and wisdom. I shall be called the beast. He had his audience captured, whispering amongst themselves while our baron is trapped midway, a rogue sphere between sun and earth. Now do you know me, foolish dabblers, St. Audrin bellowed. Now do you know me? The echoes of the catacombs amplified his voice. He had their properties finely judged. His skills of play-acting were being fully utilised. Even I might have believed him the son of Lucifer. Release me! I release him, cried one of the cowled fraternity. Charlatan, shouted St. Audrin. Villain, tis you, sir, who's the heretic. I am come here to reveal the truth to you all. This body is sacred. If you slay it, you release in me all my vengeful glory. Hell shall visit earth in all its howling horror. You rob yourselves of privilege and bring upon yourselves my father's wrath. The little baron... Von Bresenvortz is his name, attempted to hold them back, squeaking at them in most undignified manner. He's not the beast, I assure you. He is not the beast. I am the beast and the lord of the city of the world. I am the avenger. I am the fire that shall lay waste all that man treasures. I am the sword which shall execute my fated task. I am the scythe. 
You are an impostor, shrieked the baron. You deceived my aunt, and now you seek to deceive my followers. You shall be doubly punished. No, sir, tis you who will be doomed. I broke in now with the voice of one used to rally frightened troops. Hear me, people, this is Thog Magok. I swear upon my soul. He allowed himself to be brought here so that he might address you. Kill him and you shall be forever damned, for he is our, the one destined to be the Antichrist. I babbled such nonsense, seeing no harm in taking our claims a step or two further. You lie so, said the future minute, miniature, the furious miniature baron. This is the Chevalier, St. Odwin, Charlatan, and Twixter, a thief who, condemned to death in England, exiled from Berwin, wanted as an outlaw in Vienna, and you, sir, are the son of a Graf von Beck, who renounced your title and inheritance to follow the Kingslayers of France. At this, a thin man stepped into the firelight. He was tall gaunt, his face more nearly a fleshless skull than any I had ever seen. He was dressed in black like a Quaker, and had a Quaker's wide-brimmed hat upon his grey locks. He had no age, this man, but he had burning, tormented eyes which had witnessed everything, from the world's creation perhaps to its end. The white lace at collar and wrist, at knee and ankle, was emphasis for his bloodless face. You cannot be the Antichrist, he said reasonably to St. Audrin, for the Antichrist is already chosen and shall soon begin to reign. I was inclined to believe that sonorous skeleton. He had more authority than any I had heard in all my life before. His voice was as old as time, and though empty of all feeling, it was weighted with a terrible wisdom. He wore no masquerader's weeds. His clothes were his own, severe and familiar to him, he and they were of a single piece, and all the while I regarded him there was some kind of recognition stirring in me, as if he was the creature of my deepest dreams, taking flesh before my eyes. "'You claim knowledge of us, sir,' I said, "'but we do not know you.' "'Ah, uh, I know you, Von Beck. I know all your ancestors. First, there was Ulrich, the cause of my great distress more than a hundred years past.' I knew him very well. Surely your family's archives take note of me. The baron was defeated and lost. This man was his superior and was acknowledged as such by all present. You must tell me a name, sir, before I can answer that. Who are you, sir? I was once what St. Audrin claims to be. Do your histories record me? He seemed almost anxious on the matter. I am Klosterheim, who turned against his powerful master... Do they speak of Klosterheim, who almost held the grail? That is who I am, sir. Do they recall me as evil personified, Von Beck? Do they make a story of me to frighten children around the fireside? I am Klosterheim, and now I am opposed to God and Satan both. Now I serve mankind. I am known as the ambassador of the stolen future and the unremembered past. Did the tales of Klosterheim chill your boyhood nights, Von Beck? With every question, he took another pace towards me. St. Audrin, pale and puzzled, looked from his face to mine, from mine to his. I was not facetious when I replied, for my legs were weak and I was sweating. I have never heard of you, sir. Read nothing of a Klosterheim. Is there no book which calls me Satan's steward? 
Nothing at all in the libraries of Beck? Well, nothing, sir, that I know. His eyes grew almost sad. So my name is gone, too, from the world, he said. Too much is fading. He looked at me with a momentary expression of agony. I have much hatred for the name von Beck. I cannot be satisfied by killing you. Moreover, our destinies are too tangled even now. What's more, I lack courage for it. Do you know what damnation can be, sir? It can be a state of permanent caution, making one chronically unable to risk anything, even a risk which might save one from extinction. Not that extinction would be unwelcome, I suppose. He spread his white hands before him and stared at them. I hate you, Von Beck. Musingly, and to my utter horror, he reached to stroke my cheek with his dead, thin fingers. Yet I suppose I must love you too. At least you have a meaning for me. I wonder now if your ancestor and I were not unconscious allies, part of the same design. Would you be my ally, Von Beck? Would you love me? I turned my head. Sir, I said through clenched teeth, you terrify me and I dislike the sensation. What do you want of me? He seemed puzzled and dropped his hand. Well, nothing is yet. Von Bressenvorts is adult. I lodge in these catacombs. I have lived in them for more than fifty years. Do you believe me? You're mighty well preserved, sir. The air down here might be conducive to immortality. It is, he answered without humour, choosing his next words with slow care. The Graf Ulrich von Beck robbed me of my birthright. He accepted a commission in Lucifer's service. It came to me that this poor creature was mad. Sir, I've heard nothing of this, he was disbelieving, nor of the grail which Ulrich brought to Satan. I beg you, Herr Klosterheim, let us go, we offer you no harm. I serve mankind, he said. There'll be no wanton murder, because a little popinjay of a baron feels out of sorts. He has misused his power. Klosterheim's voice was a frozen whisper. I serve mankind now, he said again. Do you believe that? Sir, I believe, said I, humouring him any way he wished. But as for the rest concerning my ancestor, I regret I did not see him die. Do you know, young man, how Von Beck's soul sought its reward? Once more I was urgently sincere. I know nothing of any of that. My ancestor died a natural death, I believe. He nodded slowly. Klosterheim was mad, but in a far grander and more impressive way than anyone else in those vaults. Will you dine with me? He whispered then, without waiting for my answer. He turned and glared at the others. Bring a key, you vermin. My master tolerates stupidity only in the humble. You are too proud, all of you. Kneel. Everyone save he who has the key. And they fell at once to the rocky floor as though a single creature. Thus, Klosterheim demonstrated his power to me, while a female in a white robe which split to show scabrous naked flesh turned open first one padlock and then the next, and a knife parted our bonds. Well, Von Beck, will you dine? Did I imagine a hint of some terrible yearning? Did he trick me towards my death or some worse enslavement? And what of my friend, I asked, what of St. Audrin? He can go free at once. He raised his voice to address his kneeling servants. See that the chevalier is taken back to his lodgings. 
He put a cold hand on my arm. Dine with me before you leave. I was devilish afraid of the man, yet I was curious. I know not why, and I almost felt sympathy for him. I hesitated. Sir, I must rest tonight, for I have a duel to fight at dawn. He turned away with such a hopeless sigh, I found my mouth moving before my brain. Very well, Herr Klosterheim, I accept your invitation. I am obliged. He strode to where the red robe made obeisance. He lifted up the trembling chin with the sharp toe of his boot. You shall never act again without my express instructions. You are vain and foolish. You do not deserve the power I allow you. One more transgression and I shall take you. He points with his thumb. Down there. Von Bresenvorts attempted to beg forgiveness, but he was gagging on his own bile. Klosterheim dropped the chin. Farewell, Monsieur le Chevalier. Be assured, be assured, the Ritter von Beek shall follow in due course. St. Audrin made to resist this plan, but I raised my hand to show that I was satisfied of my safety. With a murmured farewell, I followed Klosterheim past the goat-head screen and into the narrow passage, illuminated by brands giving off unusual silvery light. Those men and women wait the coming of the Antichrist, said Klosterheim without looking back. They know the birth, the place, the time. They believe they will be chosen for positions of power when the Antichrist's rule begins. They're a large and common herd. Each carries the mark of a pagan godling branded upon its rump and believes it's thus especially favoured. They're of use to the Antichrist, I suppose, but they are ignorant and poor company. No more than field beasts, do you see? His confidences were unwelcome to me. We turned down a short flight of steps and into a large stone chamber, lit by more of the silvery flambeau. Here was a Spartan room furnished with desk, two chairs, a table and a few old volumes and parchments together with a steel globe. A chest of drawers stood against one wall, near a truckle bed. There was no heat. Klosterheim crossed to the chest and from it removed a dish containing some white bread and two good-sized cheeses. On the dish he placed a knife. He poured water into two glass goblets and his meal was ready. As he drew the chairs to the table, he removed his hat, gesturing for me to sit. He looked curiously at my face, pushing cheese and bread toward me in an awkward movement. He seemed to think me an animal whose behaviour he could not fathom. I cut a piece of cheese, took a goblet of water and waited until he had served his own miserly portion. He was looking beyond me as he chewed. His eyes appeared to follow the movements of invisible armies, and I was tempted to glance over my shoulder in case I should see what he saw. As he watched this illusory panorama, he said to me, Some hundred and fifty years ago you and I sought the same thing. I cleared my mouth. Not I, sir. It was as if I split unnecessary hairs. Oh, your ancestor, then. The same blood, same name. We sought the Holy Grail. Are you aware the Antichrist waits only possession of the Grail before beginning to rule? Well, the man was crazier than I had originally suspected. No, sir, said I. I thought the Antichrist a faded fashion. The Grail was once given into the hands of my master, as he was then by your ancestor. Thus I was condemned to this existence. 
It came the grail from the forest at the edge of heaven in the middle marches. However, as you must know, the geography of the middle march is ever unstable. Now the forest can go no longer. <clears throat> now the forest can no longer be found. My master sought to placate God and offer the grail to mankind as the sign of his good faith. But the grail is... It is itself. It vanished once the gesture was made by the master. It is lost to us. But you could find it again, Von Beck. I did not intend to deny anything or make any gesture which might anger the madman. I let silence be my agreement. You think the Grail's still in the Middlemarch? Uh, <clears throat> you think the Grail's still in the Middlemarch, Herr Klosterheim? Surely that's a place of damned souls, not holy cups. Klosterheim frowned. So it was, but now because of the truce between God and Satan, there are no damned souls. We live in an age, sir, where sin has no consequence. Do you find that heartening news, you who sought to create paradise in Paris? I do not. Well, we're agreed on that. He cut carefully at his morsel of cheese, but did not eat it. So you serve the Antichrist. So you serve the Antichrist, eh, Herr Klosterheim? Thus I must take it that Lucifer's your master still. I did not say so, sir. The Antichrist is neither God nor Satan. The Antichrist would rule the territory they've renounced, as would I. Our interests are therefore the same. Is there a record in your family concerning the Grail's present location? Well, I have some vague idea of that. I, I wish to learn more, and so do not want to, do not want him to think me ignorant or inclined to contradict his fantasies. Vague. It is common knowledge in occult circles that the chief purpose of your aerial expedition is to retrieve the Grail. I was greatly surprised to be told so certainly of my plans, yet again I held my tongue. How did they guess, I asked. Your name, sir, of course. Is it so famous? The family legend. Those who concern themselves with things mystical and supernatural say you also possess... The Paracelsian sword. Indeed, sir, whoever had possession of these two objects of power, both the cup and the blade, would rule earth and challenge the authority of heaven. Klosterheim pushed away his goblet. My hatred for you is profound, von Beck, though you offer me no direct harm. But you exist because my enemy, Ulrich von Beck, succeeded over me. He looked beyond my shoulder again. I shivered and refused to follow his cold glare. But perhaps you're not so casually acquainted with a hatred as constant and as intense as mine, eh, sir? I think not, sir. He frowned, returning his gaze to the table. He spoke almost to himself. I am divorced from so much. He drew a deeper breath and looked at me directly again. Well, sir? Well, what, sir? I did not know what he expected of me. Will you join the quest, sir? Or rather, will you allow me to accompany you on your own expedition? And have you kill me at the end? I would not otherwise dissuade him from his misunderstanding. We could lose nothing by it, I reasoned. It seemed everyone but myself and St. Audrin had absolute faith in the reality of our fraud. Klosterheim was astonished. Why kill you, sir? Well, your hatred, sir, the hatred you recently mentioned... 
He shrugged, close to amusement, or whatever resembled that emotion in his cold, miserable heart. What use would be served by killing you, sir? Death is nothing. That which follows death is of some importance, however. Do you take me for a, for a petty revenger? He spoke distantly, his voice fading like ice, ice turning to vapour. Again his eyes followed invisible dramas. Well, sir, will you make a bargain with Klosterheim? I'll guide you through the middle march and can rally aid of several kinds. Then we take an equal share of all that's gained. I'm a little unsure of what you're offering me, sir. Wisdom. Guidance. You have not journeyed there before, I know. All manner of intelligence, and of course ultimately true power. Greater power than ever before. A territory upon our earth wherein you may work any experiment you wish. Your disappointments in France could be rectified if that was what you still dreamed of. It's an attractive prospect, sir, said I, becoming somewhat light-hearted as the fantasy grew out of all sane proportions. But I fear I lack the other object of power mentioned. What's the sword? The sword of Paracelsus. I respect your discretion. He shook his head. It's safest wherever you keep it now. The greatest danger will be in the subsequent struggle, and that could be easily fought in this realm. I gave up any attempt at following his reasoning. You know a deal of secrets, Herr Klosterheim. He was almost apologetic. I am no longer omniscient. His eyes seemed to look back at a time when he had command of millions. He began to speak of a life which perhaps he had dreamed when he was Hell's captain and had led an army against Satan himself. A great rebellion. An attempt to achieve a further revolution. Now he was condemned, he said, to perpetual exile and eternal doubt. He, like Lucifer before him, had failed and been cast out, but his punishment had never properly been revealed to him. He had devoted himself to what he termed the triumph of man, and waited for the day when he might again challenge both God and Lucifer. The man's ravings were so grandiose and his tone so matter-of-fact that I could do nothing but listen in silence. The alliance he proposed would, had I believed in such things, commit my soul to immediate damnation. He was mighty convincing, however, for a madman. I agreed with whatever seemed politic and set my lips closed on anything which might alarm him. At length he subsided. I have kept you late, sir, but the meeting has proved rewarding to me. I'll guide you back to the surface. He led me back through the catacombs to the outer world, still speaking somewhat repetitiously in the manner of a man who has received a great blow to his spirits, in the death, for instance, of some beloved relative. His voice soon blended with the other noises in the tunnels. Then he stood with me in a narrow doorway, and I looked in apparent bemusement at the white dawn sky. I yawned. "'You're tired, sir,' said he. "'A little, sir,' he nodded, his head slowly. His brow slightly furrowed as if he understood intellectually, but had no memory of a time when he himself needed sleep. "'I'll send a message when I hear your ship is ready,' he said. And then with the air of a wondering child, he pointed at a tiny swirl of snow which blew from a nearby roof. He held out his finger and with an introspective narrowing of his eyes, waited until a flake settled at last on the tip. He sighed, but his breath did not materialise as mine did. 
I first thought he intended to make some remark. Then I realised he merely wanted me to look at what seemed strange to him, the snowflake. It is winter, he said dreamily. Of course. But the snowflake did not melt. Coatless and shivering, I bid him farewell. I ran through the streets until at last I found the Lodotto Bridge. I looked for Monsorbier down on the old wall quay. He was not there. It was only an hour past sunrise, and it was conventional for one adversary to wait another for at least that long. The paving stones of the wall quay had a light covering of snow. No one had been there since the previous night. Puzzled, I ran on until I was at last banging gratefully upon the tradesman's door of the martyred priest. I was admitted by Frau Schuster, who gave a multi-gulp of relief and took me immediately into her plump and comforting arms. Chapter 8 An Unkept Appointment Further Dreams St. Audrin's Solution to Our Promised Embarrassment News of Our Inflammable Air A Cretan Nightmare My Bafflement more horrid discoveries, a cowardly decision. As I entered the tap room, I heard a great galloping noise on the stairs, and then St. Audrin, all thigh-booted military man with pistols in his pockets and powder at his belt, led our four young friends, also armed like picaros, down to the main floor, giving orders as he went until he fetched up in comical surprise a nose-length from me. Deuce! You're rescued already, he was almost aggrieved. Released, I said, her Klosterheim's madness is at once more elaborate and subtler than that of the Landgrafen's nephew. I went to sit in the nook by the old iron stove. I was still shivering. He's been talking to me all night. You have had word from Monsorbier? God's blood, I'd forgotten. He'll be waiting. He is not. He never was. St. Audrin's long face clouded. Monsorbier's no coward. He must be dead or down with a fever, at least. The four radicals stood awkwardly at his back, as disappointed as my partner in their expectations of adventure. Someone should be sent to his address, he frowned, but as I recall, he gave none. Well, doubtless he'll find us, I accepted the spice wine from Frau Schuster's hand. Did the Baron himself escort you home? He sent two of the ruffians who'd originally captured us, but before I left he'd recovered his spirits a little. He let me know that tragedy would result if we continued to drain his inheritance from his aunt. He'd disobey Klosterheim. He's bolder than I guessed. Or more stupid. He's the kind who'll take his master's literal meaning, but will count himself a cunning villain if he conceives a plot avoiding the exact letter of Klosterheim's law. He'll be shocked too if accused of it. He still plans to murder us, you think? He'll try to arrange our deaths more likely, clumsily, St. Audrin smiled, loosening his sword belt. I'm more curious about Klosterheim. Why should he save us? Did he say? He seemed familiar with your name. My friend, he's another who demands a passage on our aerial frigate. He, like the Landgrafen, believes the Middlemarch exists. St. Audrin sat himself down on a bench and began to untie his jabot. Perhaps we should, after all, build the thing. We stand to make as large a fortune, at least, from selling berths aboard her. <laughs> and follow one of your fanciful maps, too. 
I began to laugh louder than the joke deserved. Where should we go, St. Audrin? Into Klosterheim's imagined worlds? Into the Middlemarch to look for the Landgrafin's husband? And what of our mysterious backer? Does the prince wish to create an empire in the netherworld? And he who gives us the hydrogen gas, where does he wish to fly? The land of cocaine? Breakfast was beginning to accumulate on the nearest table, and at Frau Schuster's urgent gesturing, I rose to put my legs under the board. Then I'd fainted on St. Audrin before I knew it, swooning with what was probably no more than fatigue, yet dreaming of Klosterheim's beak presence, of a sword with a bird trapped in a glowing pommel, of a radiant cup, and I dreamt of the mistress of my heart. Lobosa stroked my breast and breathed into my ear, making me helpless as a snake in a swami's basket, and I woke in the familiar swamp of my own perspiration. Where was Monsorbier? Had the duel been fought and was I wounded? I could not tell where the dream and the actuality divided. Moonlight ran into the room as the clouds broke above Muranberg's delicate towers. I sat upright, pulling off my wet nightshirt, washing my body in the cold water, which was silver in the china bowl. And I remembered that Klosterheim talked at me all night, and Monsorbier failed to meet me for his satisfaction and sent no seconds to apologise. Some alchemist or natural philosopher had promised us hydrogen gas for our aerial bark, all in one day. Yesterday? My instinct shouted conspiracy but my head reasoned coincidence. When such conflict occurred, I heeded neither, but stayed on a middle course, if that were possible. Yet when I drew on shirt and breeches and went to visit St. Audrin in his rooms, the Britisher also thought some conspiracy against us was afoot. His rooms were bright with lamps and candles, littered with diagrams and charts. Some of these were unfamiliar to me. I suspect all our enemies conjoined to achieve our ruin, he said. Though we planned to winter here, my friend, I think it would be wise if we met with an accident very soon. St. Audrin, said I grimly, you've mentioned no accident before. Well, I keep so many possibilities in mind, dear friend, I cannot always express them in words. Our method of escape has been forming in my thoughts for the past few days. Shall I enlarge? I'd be grateful if you would, sir. Then here's what I foresee. We announce a further demonstration of our existing ship using, if possible, the proffered gas. The balloon shall slip her tether, a frayed rope. We'll shout for help. We'll agitate the gondola. We'll make a great hullabaloo of despair. And the wind will do the rest. With hydrogen to lift us, we can go higher and faster than ever. We'll be a hundred miles away in less than five hours. With the right wind, we'll be in Arabia before we need to land. With gold and our ship, we'll find dusky patronage among the Eastern Ottomans, the independent sultans, or even the Chinese, changing our names to whatever takes our fancy. And then, in a couple of years, we return to Europe with a good tale which serves to explain our absence and our wealth. None shall condemn us, and only a few shall mourn. I was willing enough to accept escape on almost any terms at that junction. Klosterheim had frightened me to my bones, but as for the gold, I said, how shall that be explained away? Robbery, he said. Those villains who kidnapped us will do. A plot against us. We'll broadcast something of that in the next day or two. 
Other money's banked in Germany, by the by. I'll go to the Landgrafin this morning and tell her of her nephew's bid to crush our venture and murder us. He'll be suspected of any foul play. And as for the French silk weavers, their perfidy can be explained by revolution. Meanwhile, I'm writing to our mysterious bestower of inflammable air, asking for enough of the gas to test the handling of our present craft so that we may redesign our steering mechanism and enlarge the size of our gondola. We'll know tomorrow if that's granted, and then we'll announce our intention of testing the gas. We'll choose a time when the breeze is blowing its best, and after that, it's merely a question of deciding which continent we wish to land upon. All this was given in English, so... It should not be understood if overheard. In the same language, I said, well, the balloon cannot be steered. True, but wind can be gauged, and we can control our drift with simple sails. I admit we'll be somewhat helpless, somewhat at the wind's mercy, but not completely helpless. There are no complexities in this, you'll note. It shall be a simple plan, simply realised. Well, I was beyond moral scruples at this stage. I wished only to be free of nightmares and nightmarish events of a man who claimed to have lived for more than a hundred and fifty years and a female will-o'-the-wisp who haunted every hour of my days. This gives you gold, and Beck too if you want it, said Satodron. Beck regained with a lie I thought could not be Beck at all. The consequences of habitual deception and lies, Goethe tells us, are the loss of self-trust the loss of true love, and the loss of goodwill of one's fellows. But the balloon escape, though cowardly, might lift me from Lebus's lure and allow me perspective, release from my madness. Thus my panic easily conquered my conscience. My only concern was that we should not come down in some land where I was not already outlawed. The image of our craft entangled upon a Kremlin onion gave me an ironic pleasure which the reality would certainly lack. St. Audrin reassured me. He was already, he said, anticipating our voyage, the adventures we should have in Arabia, India, China, and some unknown islands in the South Seas. Well, you surely cannot steer so clear a course, I said. No, indeed. But I can gauge the taste of a public which presently finds any sensation preferable to reality. The fictions with which we ease our daily burdens, you know. I'm planning how we'll retail these adventures which explain our absence. Our recruitment, for instance, to the wild Bedouin. Our discovery of the elephant's graveyard. Our witnessing of the dance of the dead in Cook's land. Our capture and subsequent escape into the hands of white devil worshippers in a hidden valley deep within the Saharan vastness. We shall never know poverty, Von Beck, do you see? And St. Audrin winked, disarming all my arguments. There is only one thing less resistible than a charming and subtle rogue, and that is his reminder to you that he knows better than anyone what his rhetoric is worth and does not for a moment deceive himself. Later that evening I bundled up in a huge four-caped coachman's coat, muffler and woolen gloves, and went down to the river to walk to the middle of the Mladosha Bridge, the Bridge of Kings with all its great monarchs set in stone at intervals along great balustrades. To achieve the solitude I felt I required while I reviewed my thoughts and considered my experiences of the past 36 hours.
Klosterheim remained the most memorable. I wondered at his undoubted familiarity with my great ancestor. His insane tale of revenge and magic spoke of a poet's imagination, for it turned all accepted theology upside down. Surely mad, if he actually believed I could find the Holy Grail, or possessed a magic sword, or could wander at will into shadowy worlds, which he described as a mirror to our own. He spoke of marvellous creatures and beasts, and peoples reported by travellers down the centuries and entering the general consciousness through the medium of legend and fairy tale. The more likely logic was that the lands of his description were no more than a reflection of his own profound need to believe the truth of simple romantic tales. In simple lands are found simple solutions to mankind's ills, so what was Klosterheim but a poor lunatic and retreat from ambiguity and baffling subtlety? I shrugged as I looked down into the dark, fast water of the Rat. I answered myself aloud. He's more than that. He was, I was certain, far more than a common madman in quest of common resolutions. Yet he could not surely be speaking in anything other than elaborate metaphor. I looked up at my surroundings. Mirrenburg was a dreaming city now. Pale clouds, moonlit, peered in his sky like a malleable geography, as yet unfixed by a creator's command. Was all the earth but agitated gas and molten stone before she was born? And was she founded all of a sudden by some galvanic thought, which itself existed only for a split second? Did God truly build and populate a small planet for his own purposes, perhaps merely to relieve his boredom? Could God and Lucifer, as Klosterheim suggested, truly be locked in a permanent debate as they attempted to decide the terms of their truce and eventual reunion? I had no talent for abstract theology. My chances of learning an answer to the last question were as good as mine convincing Baron von Bredenvorts of the wisdom of buying shares in an aerial exploration house or giving away his inheritance to the closest arms house. I walked back towards the right bank. Looking down, I saw the wall key again, still silent and the snow now frozen on the flagstones, near as unblemished as when I went that morning to meet Monsorbier. Against the demands of all reason, I had the growing conviction that indeed there were forces presently at work which were larger and more powerful than anything I had previously experienced. Logic continued to lead me towards the supposition that these forces could be, at least in part, supernatural. It was time, I decided, to return to the inn for a glass or two of grog before retiring. I prayed I should sleep more soundly than of late, but I had little hope my prayers would be answered. In bed that night my thoughts returned often to Klosterheim and his references to our mutual destiny, my family's special gifts. I had always thought of us as a modest and respectable line of Saxon landowners, diverse in most interests, rarely in agreement on any subject but the most fundamental. It struck me that perhaps my Duchess of Crete had also seen me in the role of some Parsifal or other, and had consequently saved me from my enemy. 
At this she returned to me, as I crossed the border from waking to sleeping. I imagined that her lithe, pink body was soft against mine, while she told me what my character was and how our destiny was shared. Had my own faith in my own imagination become so weakened, I could be prey to other fanatical minds? Detecting the innovated condition of my spirit, did they seek to impose their own dreams upon mine, hoping that thus I would become what they desired me to be, some kind of questing hero? I must, I thought, escape from all of it. The prospect of our flight grew more attractive to me by the moment. I am von Beck, said I defiantly, lying naked on my bed and touching chest and head and thighs, those familiar contours and textures. Then, but I must know. I must know, Labosa. I must know you. Why do I have it in my mind there's a revelation to be discovered in your Greek blood? That somewhere within your name lies the secret, the foundation of all your other actions. I pant as if in the first blaze of a new passion. My whole body is mobile, though I make every attempt to lie quiet. At night I cannot deceive or distract myself. I am enchanted still. The minotaur rages in a labyrinth, furious at gods who made him neither beast nor man. And Daedalus flies free of this island, while Icarus, elated in his first experiment, lifts himself too close to the sun and is destroyed. On Crete, a blue sea sends white breakers upon a yellow beach. The rocks are worn to shards, resembling the ruins, almost as ancient, built upon them. A black sail on the horizon disappears. Now beautiful Theseus stands upon the shore, looking towards the city of the bull. Time has not yet begun to be recorded. This is a scene painted in unclouded primaries. From somewhere, a bull's voice rages, its thickened speech complaining and challenging, as if it utters the poetry of distress. Theseus brandishes a hard, polished club. There is a green cloak upon his wonderful shoulders, a helmet with a great crest of purple horsehair upon his perfect head painted sandals upon his perfect legs, yet he has the breasts of a woman and the genitals of a man. Hermaphrodite challenges the old mad beast, the raging monster whose uncontrolled passions and appetites shall threaten his existence, our own future. He must be slain. The youth woman begins to stride with easy athletic steps up the beach towards the city of the beast the city of the labyrinth, in a time before history when man first came to value reason over sensibility and gave combat to the hairy halflings which ruled him. The cloven hooves dance upon the pavements of the maze. A great spiked club is beaten upon the earth again and again. The beast snorts and fumes in the darkness, its anger and its pride demanding sacrifice, the tasting of blood. Theseus pauses at the entrance, her chest rising and falling in conscious rhythms, half willing even now to kneel worshipping before the enormous vitality of the mindless bull. Theseus 
grits his teeth and rubs the head of his club against his leg, letting his jealousy and his fears build themselves into bloodlust. The rich stink of the minotaur is in his nostrils, and he must call upon his own warlike skills and courage. She summons a spirit of determination few have ever needed. This Theseus, my Theseus, advances. The sword of his youth had a bird beating inside the crystal pommel. A hawk flinging itself again and again in inaudible fury against its glassy prison. In Byzantium, the art of alchemy became European. Here lived Maria the Jewess and Zosimos the Egyptian, who sought to understand the bonds making mankind one with the universe, for surely each was mirrored in the other, each was contained within the other. The alchemists reduced the elements to a single tincture into which all was concentrated. All matter, all human aspiration, all time, all knowledge. A pill the size of a pea brought the gift of transmutation, for it was one, and therefore the same, and a means of perpetual restoration, both physical and mental. The great glass beakers, the stone retorts, the brass pans and tubes, the smoking elemental potions, had all led towards that end, the creation of a human being, Herm Aphrodite, self-reproducing, possessing the sum of all knowledge and virtue, an harmonious and immortal creature, neither master nor slave. Both male and female, the being described in Genesis. This self-contained creature springs light-footed across the landscapes of my dreams, and I see it from without. Yet sometimes I myself am that creature, joyous in my power and freedom. In me is Eve and Adam combined. My mind is clear, my senses alert, as I breathe the new minted air of an earthly paradise. Then Klosterheim is speaking, and his voice is like a wind from limbo, singing of death, cold ashes, and a nostalgic ambition to reawaken those hopeless, envious legions of hell, so that he might again command something, even though it be an army of wretches only capable of cruel destruction and the reduction of human aspiration. The quest for a reawakening of sensibility, the likes of von Bresenvoort's. Yet it is true sensibility which shall, by definition, forever be denied those who desire power over others more than they desire the delights of their own human sensuality. Hermaphrodite sniffs the dangerous breeze. Should she fight or should she flee? Again I was awakened in a midnight flood as my own juices sprang from every pore. I was godlike. I was afraid. Could so much truly be at stake? The very future of mankind? Until morning my reason was locked in a struggle with what I must describe as my instinct, but without resolution. I felt as if some version of my past and some potential tomorrow battled within me for my present loyalty. I feared to resort to the laudanum bottle at my bedside, placed there in all kindness by St. Audrin, but at length I 
sipped a drop or two and fell back into dreams where my actions I felt at least had no effect upon my ordinary existence. I was awakened by my friend hammering upon a door I had inadvertently locked, perhaps during the course of my Cretan nightmare. He told me that he had heard our inflammable air was to be delivered that morning, and he went to supervise its arrival at the little field. In my dazed condition, I scarcely understood him. He was also, I gathered, off on some half-described business with the Landgräfin. I fell back into my stupor, and it was midway through the morning before I found the strength to rise, perform my toilet, and enter the world of common reality below. St. Audrin returned to the martyred priest with snow on his hat and more than a little concern in his eyes. He found me in the kitchen where I listened to Ulrika reciting her dissertation, which she was due to present on her return to the gymnasium the following week. He was impatient to speak to me, but did not interrupt. She concluded, sentimental, youthful stuff, echoing the rhetoric of our young utopians who would leave soon for Venice, and I applauded. Ulrika darted a look at the chevalier, who bent a knee in empty recognition, for he had not heard a word, and she rolled up her pages. You'll move the whole school to high-minded aspiration, I told her. But she desired criticism, so I mentioned a clumsy phrase here, a muddy notion there, and all the while the St. Audrin tensed his fingers and did everything but pace or cough. At last she was satisfied, and I turned in some impatience to chide my partner for his unusually poor display of etiquette when he said, low and horrified, The land griffin is murdered. I led him from the kitchen to the public room, which had only a few rural travellers in it, here to buy ploughs and weaving machines. They had been drunk since last night, so were unaware of their own boots, let alone we two. You've just come from there? Questioned by a beadle for two hours, held by militia, then questioned by a major. First she was stabbed, then her room was fired by servants, extinguished the flames. Uh, then her room was fired, but servants extinguished the flames before they took firm hold. She was naked and had been tortured. Money stolen and the servants say some books, but many of her papers were burned or charred beyond recognition. The servants vouched for me finally, and I had no reason for wanting her dead. I was released, but both of us are required for a further interview and shall be called as witnesses at the inquest. Von Bresenvortz is whom they suspect. He claims to have been a country to have been at a country estate while the crime was committed. Their descriptions of the corpse was unsparing of my feelings. Two or three symbols had been cut in the flesh, suggesting black magic. But why torture her? I had been fond of that good-hearted widow. Von Bresenvort's inherits, anyway. Had she changed her will or dictated an appendix? Why kill her in a Satanist rite which would make him suspect? His dabbling's famous. Ah, oh, they believe they derive power from such rituals, and doubtless, stupid as he is, he expected the house to burn down. The likes of him believe that the violence of the sacrificial death is directly in proportion to the strength gained. These are mad people, von Beck. Their reasoning is rarely penetrable. Ugh, I pray the monster's hanged. Well, he could escape. The Major, 
and advocate investigating the crime must prove him directly responsible or capture accomplices who will give evidence against him. His devil-loving friends, clearly, were tools or aides. The prince has learned the whole city has ordered the whole city alerted for his cousin's murderers. There's a fair chance they'll be caught. They could escape into the catacombs. Major Vuxmuth has every detail of them that I could recall. He seeks Klosterheim too. So thwarted of our blood, he takes his aunts. Klosterheim will not be overpleased by his minion's folly. Von Bresenvortz was drooling to slaughter someone. Perhaps he plans to accuse us of the murder and so solve all his problems at once. Or are there more depths to the matter, do you think? St. Audrin answered with slow sobriety. I'd say there were extra complexities. Aye. But I have no trust in my judgment at present, for I am still horrified by the bloody nature of the crime. Tis hard to credit the evidence of such perverse evil. And can it all be for the sake of a few hundred talers donated to us when his aunt possessed millions? Now maybe he does not wish our ship to sail, or visit the Mittelmarch, which he believes in anyway, even if we don't. What if he did not truly see us as a pair of charlatans, but think we actually possess supernatural secrets? Maybe even the key to immortality? Did he feel threatened by the prospect of his aunt's eternal life? We're reckoning, I think, without his credulity. St. Audrin accepted this theory, but lifted his hand to stop me speaking further. I'll be frank, Von Beck, I've discussed such things for half the day, and no amount of debate pushes away the image of her corpse or improves my spirits. She's dead and we cannot resurrect her. The sooner we're gone from Muranberg, the better. Too many lunatics focus their dreams through us. Had I known this city contained so many morbid seekers after arcane lore, I would not have suggested this swindle at all. I became aware suddenly that St. Audrin was profoundly terrified. Well, at least now we had fear in common, I thought. I would suggest, said I, that we try by conventional means to free ourselves from our contracts, return most of the monies at least, and then be on our way. I'd arrived at the same conclusion. I could read from his eyes that he had never been closer to despair. But we have contracts, and as far as the law's concerned, von Presenvortz is a primary shareholder. I've read those papers every way, and we're committed, mainly because of that damned lawyer and to all kinds of penalties. We've promised passages. Will Klosterheim be pleased when we announce the venture cancelled? Our lives are at stake, my friend. In brief, we're back to putting our trust in high winds, frayed ropes, and the gullibility of our backers, both anonymous and all too famous. St. Audrin was badly affected by our Landgrafen's fate. He drank more brandy than he would normally allow himself. He displayed more emotion than he had ever shown, even when it seemed we were to be filleted at the devil's pleasure. Yet I understood that he could not easily voice sentiment in the matter, for it would be a sort of hypocrisy since he had planned to steal from the murdered woman. St. Audrin was the kind of man who tested his wits upon the world like a gambler at the card table and was moved as much by love of his game as by the prospect of profit. He lifted his bumper in a toast, he said, to the memory of a worthy player, the Landgräfin. I would gladly have joined him in this excursion into maudlin escape, but 
Some instinct kept me wary, so I sat with him and suffered his mourning as a friend must. And then as the tap room filled with its evening trade, I helped him in his bottle to his rooms where he loosened his neckcloth and the buttons of his breeches, eased off his stockings and pumps and continued his ritual litany. He revealed all his fears and courage that night, his love for the human race, his wounds, his amours, the origins of his stylish foppery and his taste for disguise, a duelist's conscious guard rather than the entrapping armour of the mounted knight. Words were used to hold back and contain the attacks of the world, for he had a hatred and a horror of violence which I could comprehend without fully understanding. And mysteries, he told me. I'm afraid of all these shadowy people who give us money and materials. Why, Von Beck, we're in too deep, man. Then he fell sweetly to sleep, a seraphic child. I kissed his unwrinkled brow and drew a blanket around his body, but did not at once leave the room. I was possessed of an innovating melancholy, and had no desire to return to my own bed in my unsettling dreams. Most of my life had been spent in my own company. I had rarely maintained a regular mistress, let alone a wife, and had never envied those who did. Presently I had a dim sense of being incomplete, of being only part of a divided soul. I had a yearning for what I could only describe as unity. What had I lost that was mine? Were we all in some way like poor Klosterheim? Satan, murmured St. Audrin in his untroubled sleep. I watched the lines of terror gradually return. His lips moved rapidly. Beneath their lids, his eyes were agitated. Dead. I leaned forward as if he were an oracle whose words were unlock or, would unlock all my own mysteries at once. He took short, panting breaths. He struggled in the darkness, and his right arm came free. Brandy, he said, and then sank again into peace. I sat in a ladder-backed chair, reading through his neatly drawn maps. Some showed continents which did not exist. Unfamiliar groups of islands. A familiar map of France with additional territories named and marked. Or Germany magnified to three times her proper area, yet having on her borders the same countries. Here, for instance, were Grunewald, Halbenstein and Alfersheim, all bordering Saxony. St. Audrin claimed he had all the maps, some of which were ancient, kept together on oiled rag or varnished onto wood from one collection. A drunken monk had sold them to him at a Bavarian fair, begging a gold mark for them and saying they were beyond price. Certainly they were the work of different hands, or else done by a master forger. I rolled those not damaged into his leather tube. The case was worn and frayed, and the brass fittings were pitted and dull. The others I placed carefully one upon the other. St. Audrin began to snore loudly. My vigil had run its time. I extinguished the lamps and both candles and trudged up the passage to my bed. The room around me seemed to sway. I was so fatigued. The candlelight added shadows in the corners of my eyes, and I could almost smell the presence of a woman. She was not there, but it would take more than a careless dismissal of my fancies to free me. I desire no other. I still burn for her. 
It is with Labusa of Crete I must be reunited. I checked myself from further folly and instead offered up a prayer to a god I did not believe in for the survival of my own non-existent soul and that of the poor murdered woman. Major Vogtsmuth had my blessing in his search for evidence to convict von Bresenvords. If jailed, the Satanist would have his effects frozen by the state. He would find it hard to command his horrid flock without money to pay them. I looked out again into the Mladotta Square, which gleamed black with rain. Two men hated me enough to want my life. Another hated me, but disdained to kill me. A woman remained hidden from me, yet had saved my life. Were these people in any way connected with one another? My only allies in this city was a veteran sergeant and a foreign trickster. I decided I must do as St. Audrin suggested and leave, wind or no wind, balloon or horse. I felt in greater danger than any I had known in Paris. I felt that my body's very essence was threatened. Fearing sleep, I found myself writing letters, one to my mother, waxing, sentimental and nostalgic, another to Robespierre, begging him to be moderate, to Talleyrand, asking him to encourage policies, not mere stage trappings, masking the procedures of the old regime, to Tom Paine in jail, advising him to accept any humiliation if it meant his release and passage to America. You were my mentor, dear Tom, as was Clutes, for all the madness of his anarchy and world rebellion, a most marvellous fancy, but a hopeless practicality. I yet retain great affection for him, but yet you must recall your own common sense, and, seeing the world as she is and how she may be improved, do nothing else which might result in your own prolonged imprisonment or even death, for this age needs a cool eye upon it now more than ever, and there are precious few of those currently to hand. Another letter was written to Labusa, Urganda, Cressida, Cartagena, y Mendoza, Chilperic, Duchess of Crete, in which I proclaimed my love and offered a complaint. She had shown me too much of paradise to deny me at least the hope of earning a key. I yearn to fling myself into infinity, says Goethe, and float above the awful abyss. O oh, madam, I would be at your mercy, trusting you with the care of my entire being. I would be your servant, and so forth. The letters were sanded, folded, addressed, sealed with my von Beck crest, the sign of the cup. Was that cup actually the grail? Or was it, as I suspected, the cup which gave rise to legends of our connection with the grail? The last letter I would leave with Sergeant Schuster, not knowing my lady's whereabouts. I became eager for the dawn when I intended to sleep. I feared the dark and my dreams. I wrote a further letter to Monsorbier, whom I presumed returned to Paris, informing him of my respect and offering him satisfaction should we ever meet again. It was at this stage that I realised I was writing as if certain of my own imminent death. However, I wrote a note to Schuster, enclosing a few talas, thanking him for his kindness hospitality, the goodwill of his family, and asking him not to think ill of me should my departure be sudden. Another note was addressed to my young utopians, telling them that their hearts were purer than the world they beat they beat in. They must remember South America could not be tamed by reason. 
Reason could only tame the beast within us. Even a letter to St. Audrin was written, containing what was not far short of my own memorial. I aspired to roguery, but was thwarted by circumstance. When we think ourselves close to death, how desperately do we aim a little of our substance towards the living, as if they are spars and boats from a wreck to carry something of us onwards towards the shore? Another letter to Muirenberg's prince, describing in detail the circumstances of our capture by the baron, and begging him to abolish, in law and deed, the folly of Satanism and occultism, which is naught but infantile, witless, ignorant, dangerous, inhumane, cruel, and deleterious to the well-being of his great city. I wrote to my brother Rickard, telling him something of my enslavement to lies and romantic lust, but assuring him I could yet judge right from wrong, though my choice be dubious, for I have become as uncertain of my past virtue as I am of my present vice. It was dawn at last. The rain was all gone, but a thin white line upon the horizon crept like distant cavalry in a flurry of wispy gases up to the sky and over the rooftops, bringing snow. I put my final letter upon the pile and then took to my bed, and a dreamless sleep from whence I awoke, a newborn optimist, with St. Audrin's slurred voice in my ears, crying, See them for a moment, your young utopians, your seekers of the grail. They left for Venice, I remembered that morning. I sat up. Enter, dear friends. I was glad to see their stern, embarrassed faces, scrubbed and ready for a further stage in their explorations. I hoped in private they would find a diversion before they reached Peru. I handed them their letter from the heap. Our ship puts us down at New York, or maybe Baltimore, Krasny said. From there we make our way south, either by ship or land. We'll go by land, was my advice, so that you may see for yourselves what the millennium has offered others before you. He was puzzled. Sir, I do not follow you. See Washington's rebellious nation, I said the first in modern times to build her constitution upon a genuine faith in the power and virtue of law. A gentleman's country, you will like it, and it will not disappoint you as badly as France. I sensed I was speaking inappropriately. Well, whatever you decide, young masters, I wish you good luck. Well, sir, said Krasny, we are honoured to have met you. Honoured also, my friends, I wish you a satisfactory journey through the new world. St. Audrin interrupted with mock gravity. Your money would be better spent on an aeronautical voyage, but follies the privilege of youth as it's the punishment of age. Then they were gone. Four sons, it seemed to me. Four princes from an Arabian tale, riding across our world in search of the non-existent cure for all human woe. I made St. Audrin sit down on my bed. We must leave tomorrow, I told him. Or tis my guess will be dead. The hydrogen's delivered to the little field. Its donor expects a passage, as does Klosterheim. But if we follow our plan and describe the ascent as a mere preliminary experiment to test the gas's power, we should be able to give them the slip easily enough. However, my friend, I warn you now that if there is indeed a plot to kill us, you must understand that inflammable air burns quicker and faster than anything known to man's science. Should we catch fire on board, we'd be charged before we touch ground again. But ain't ye being a mite too fretful, Von Beck? Are you still not sleeping well? 
Could be I've gone mad, St. Odrin. But if you will not take me from Mirrenburg, I'll go by any other route. Our enemies converge. On that we're both agreed, eh? But if we escape him now, we'll surprise him. They not anticipate such an immediate departure, I'm sure. Announce the demonstration, as you have proposed. Say it's to be in two days, but we'll leave in one. St. Audrin shrugged. I share your wish to be gone from here. Very well, I'll do as you say. At my request, he took another pile of papers from me. It was a kind of confession, and must, I said, be given into safe keeping. He would send it, he assured me, to Mr. Magagold, an English lawyer who for some years had represented his interests. When my friend had gone, I took all the other letters I had written, crammed them into my stove and burned them. I began to prepare. Our journey must not look premeditated. I used changes of clothes as packing for my few other possessions. Most of St. Audrin's goods were already gone ahead to the little field. He had repacked the gold, he said, into ballast sacks, distinguished by their green colour. Our swords and pistols were hidden in sea chart cases and leather tubes. The gas was with our ship outside the walls. Seven large Yerobomes, which, said St. Audrin, had to be handled with extraordinary care. Special hoses accompanied them. Through these, the element must be introduced to the envelope by means of an already existing valve. St. Audrin was grinning as he told me this. We shall never know, I suppose, who, from whom most of our gold came, or who sent us the gas, but I wish him good luck for the rest of his life. For once I had no inclination to question my conscience. I was too eager to escape. Admitted, it was a coward's panic. I was in a mood to say anything or do anything to be gone from that just and kindly Mirrenberg. For Mirrenberg's foundations, it seemed to me, then harboured maggots, which depended for their existence upon a steady progress of corruption. I grew disinclined to leave my room, yet remained too fearful to sleep. And when the time came to venture into the streets to make the journey from the martyred priest to the Danos, I was almost afraid to go from the confines of the inn to the carriage. Sergeant Schuster and his family bid us farewell, expecting to see us at supper that night. I knew further pangs of self-disgust at this. It was left to St. Audrin to coax me with patient sympathy into the carriage which took us all too speedily through Marenburg's great walls and out upon the little field. Chapter 9, in which everything's escaped and everything escaped is fresh encountered. In a condition of near delirium, I allowed myself to be borne to where, in muddy snow, our balloon was already swelling. Our escape, however, was not to be made in secret, for word was already out. Our vessel had been detected by the folk of Mirrenburg before she was half inflated, and the wall beside the Morozhny gate was so crowded with spectators the top was invisible. At the base of the wall, people stood upon the roofs of their carriages, the backs of their mules, the seats of their wagons. The street sellers had joined us. Red braziers glowed everywhere, both to warm the crowd and to cook chestnuts and potatoes. There were sweetmeat vendors, ginger beer sellers, broadsheet men, their standard rhymes and tunes suitably adapted for the occasion, gypsy woman selling charms and hot apples, and all in the space of the hour it had taken to connect our balloon to the hydrogen. 
the beau monde had made itself a kind of enclosure from red and white striped canvas and now talked, as always, as if the object of its visit was not there. St. Audrin's amused dismay, whispering to me as he waved in full fashion at my side, was somewhat cheering to me. Was ever an escape so well attended? I grew at once less nervous and yet more weary of sly attack. The sky was blue and so cold it might have been a single sheet of ice. A steady but only moderate breeze blew towards the south. Our balloon slowly took shape as the last of the hydrogen was pumped through one valve and into another. A barrel organ played the same banalities over and over, and the mechanical monkey its proprietor substituted for the reality had more life than the tune. Red-faced women leaned against the weight of their food baskets. Militiamen, their uniforms hastily tidied, stood on guard, muskets at the slope. They had more gold buttons and braid than any private outside the Turkish sultan's janissaries, and monstrous fine helmets, helmets which engulfed their heads and were moulded or engraved with an elaborate relish for classical motifs, topped with red and yellow plumes. Major Voxmuth of the militia was there, eyes narrowed as he peered up at that huge wobbling sphere of green and blue silk, at the undulating hose which hissed like a cobra as it passed gas from jar to ship. Elsewhere, half Muirenberg's aristocracy, many of her men and women of learning, wandered across the little field, their attention focused on the vast bulk of our vessel. The gondola was a proud and stern-eyed, if battered, bird. Most of our boxes now lay under a trapdoor between the double layers of the gondola's bottom, originally designed to carry the travelling galley required by King Louis's pastoral enthusiasts, when shepherd boy and shepherd lass, in honour of Rousseau, they said, picnicked in the arbours and grottoes of Versailles' new-fashioned Arcadia. There was room for us to sleep and food for more than a week. Once free of Muirenberg, we would merely drift until some suitable landing place was sighted. We waved again as we walked towards the gondola. St. Audrin had announced that we intended to ascend, tethered, to a height of 500 feet in order to test and demonstrate the properties of the inflammable air. The crowd grew noisy on the walls, cheering and calling out to us. The balloon thumped and tugged. She was almost filled to capacity. She lifted our gilded griffin about a foot off the ground, but he was still held captive by anchors, ropes and ballast. Nearby was the capstan, which would, as a rule, wind us down to earth, and on that winch, borrowed from a barge owner at the docks, a section of rope had been designed to snap. St. Audrin had rubbed at it in darkness for over two hours during the previous night. My partner opened the little gate, allowing us to step into the gondola. He winked at me as I closed the gate behind us. The griffin swayed. The canopy was caught by the wind and boomed like a flaccid drum. St. Audrin and I hauled at the first small anchor. The crowd cheered us again. Again, we waved. We were pulling in the second anchor when a carriage came in sight drawn by four dappled mares. I guess it was the conveyance of the prince himself. He wished to get some measure, I suppose, of his investment. 
Had it been he who had given us the gas? The coach stopped nearby, only a few feet from us, the horses blowing and skittish in the shadow of the great airship, and from it emerged the figures of two slender men, both swathed in fashionable black travelling cloaks and hats. Unrecognisable. Then, to my faint surprise, the man signalled for the coach to leave. The couple, surely the prince and his brother incognito, walked slowly towards our gondola for all the world as if they were expected by us. I looked to St. Audrin, he to me. Together we shrugged our mystification. Were we to be blessed? Were titles to be bestowed? Was some other ritual planned? Again the crowd began its wild cheering. I thought they had recognised their rulers. Well, we were helpless. St. Audrin murmurs to me. Let him inspect us. Let him make any request of us, then we'll warn him of the danger of ascending with untested gas. The taller man handed up the shorter, who steadied himself with a gloved palm against the side of the basket, offered me a faint bow by way of acknowledgement, then the other jumped in, panting a little. His face was revealed as he turned towards me. You can proceed, Captain Von Beck. We are ready to rise. I'm obliged to you, sir. I continued to haul in rope while below St. Audrin's hirelings untied tethering cords. But my heart was on a thump and my head was swimming, for our visitor was not the Prince of Muremberg. It was Klosterheim, and I knew he was there to hold me to my bargain. He went to lean with his back against wicker and carved wood, one hand upon a taut canopy rope, his features as expressionless as always. The other man's face remained completely hidden. He was too tall for von Bresenvorts, perhaps a little short for Monsobier. Could not be entirely sure of the latter idea. What's this, Herr Klosterheim? hissed St. Audrin under his breath. Don't you know, sir, this is no more than an experiment to try the lifting power of our gas? Klosterheim was joined by his companion, who wore some kind of domino mask. They stood together like two huge carrion birds, swathed in their black, and watched as we worked. Now all the ropes and anchors were free, save for the tether attached to the capstan. My heart was sinking. We had no choice but to continue and know that Klosterheim and his companion, a hired swordsman, they must be our passengers wherever we sailed. There was no chance of turning back. We rose with steady majesty above the little field, above Muirenberg, above the whole white world, and while the great crowd huzzahed and hallooed, our breath threatened to turn to ice in our mouths. The audience grew to the size of dolls, then insects, its cheering and applause a tiny sound. I remained aware of my miserable cowardice, no longer feeling godlike as I had done during my initial ascent. Everywhere was the great silence of the sky. Then the balloon had yawed and the gondola made a crazy, dangerous swing as if suddenly pushed from the side and we heard a vibrating musical noise. The rope had reached its maximum stretch. St. Audrin's stance suggested he would gladly push Klosterheim overboard at some appropriate moment. He took a step towards the gaunt intruder, and then the gondola had rocked wildly again and we were all flung down. The rope had snapped, as it had been meant to snap. We were drifting free. 
I had no sense at all of exhilaration. Now we were forced to give an even more elaborate, theatrical pretense than we had planned. St. Audrin and I regained our footing, rushed to the side, made a pantomime of distress for the benefit of the innocents below. We pretended to shout. We displayed panic. The ship was still swinging too much for my taste, and I was flung to the floor again. Klosterheim, steadying himself by the rope and the velvet tassels, designed for this purpose, running along the top edge of the gondola, looked down at me. Flying, he said. I turned my head to stare at his earnest skull. His lips moved as if he were seeking to frame unspeakable thoughts. He said no more on the subject, and the other man too was silent. He had a lithe, athletic way of keeping his balance, scarcely moving at all. It was not, I thought, Monsorbier. St. Audrin was forgetful of both at that moment. He was laughing like an ape and hurling ballast down, bag after bag, at an immoderate rate, his neckcloth whipping in the wind and his hair in wild disarray about his long face. He was careless of everything. He scarcely seemed aware any longer of the baffled Klosterheim and his close-mouthed opinion. Oh, von Beck, my dear, the plan succeeded. Remindful of our company, he turned, straightening his clothing as he hung by one hand to the edge and made a quick, unbalanced bow. Servant, gentlemen, he looked towards me. Get up, my Anne, what's wrong? I felt unwell. Slowly, after several false starts, I climbed to my feet and drew in deeper breaths. The air was a razor to my lungs. I opened a hamper and dragged out an old sea cloak Schuster had given me, and I dragged it about my shivering body. St. Audrin was oblivious of the cold. He was shouting at the sun, shouting at the pale gold and silver of the infinite sky. There was nothing else to be seen save the contours of white clouds in the distance, and mist above like a milky lake. The clouds were all that remained of the malleable landscape, of the unstable past. St. Audrin yelled in pleasure at the glittering canopy of our ship. A rainbow flashed across it every few seconds as the coloured silk gyrated in the sun's light. He was taking us too high, and at last realised it when the air grew distinctly thinner, and even he saw that his own skin was turning blue. So now he reached over to his valve wire and let out a little gas to drop us lower. I've sighted Africa, he was smiling, for he joked. Over there. Only Klosterheim looked. The wind had an odd relentlessness to it, neither strengthening nor weakening, neither whirling nor gusting. I had never known it so consistent on land or sea. It might have been generated by a machine. I went to our compass. Something confused it, for the needle could not be steadied. Light struck the glass, half-blinding me. When I looked back into the gondola, everyone was an unfocused shadow. Another turn of the griffin and the clarity was restored. Everything sharpened and the two black-clad passengers seemed a solid silhouette against the gilded wickerwork. St. Audrin now squatted nearby. He was like an overbred wolf as he stared at the pair. He addressed me. His Klosterheim made instructions. I shook my head. The gondola swayed regularly now, the gradual pendulum of some enormous clock. Well, shall you make instructions, Herr Klosterheim? asked St. Audrin, sardonically. 
Klosterheim considered this without any hint that he understood the implication. Then, not yet, he said. Was it you, sir, sent us our gas? The gaunt immortal shook his head and looked out at the sky. St. Audrin shrugged. He reached for his map case, smoothing the chart on the floor and trying to calculate our progress. We were travelling at a speed of some 20 miles an hour. The gauge showed us as a steady 19.7. We were heading due south and must soon, he thought, be over Italy, then the Mediterranean, and then, with a wild, excited look to me, the African continent. Plainly, he had decided to ignore our unwelcome passengers. Both of us spoke quietly together, wondering at their motive for joining us. I wondered if they might be the Landgrafen's murderers, after all, escaping Major Voxsted... Voxsmuth. At this, I decided to make a small test of my own. Klosterheim, said I, did you hear that von Bresenvorts had murdered his aunt? The... Pale lips formed careful words. I did not, but twould explain his anxiety to leave when last I saw him, and of course Monsorbier's already gone with the others. Is that the reason so many soldiers searched my catacombs? Yes, I suppose so. You know Monsorbier? I was on a fresh tack already. His brotherhood had dealings with von Bresenvorts. There was talk of cooperation. Their methods and goals are dissimilar, however. Monsorbier was lodging with Bresenvorts. Well, now the Republican's absence was explained. He had known me captured, guessed me dead, and so made no attempt to rise before dawn to keep his appointment at the Wool Quay. But unless my reading of his character was utterly topsy-turvy, Monsorbier would have had no part in our kidnapping, nor in the Langriffin's murder. Had he despaired of von Bresenvorts as an ally? In what? And returned to France? How were they in league? I asked Klosterheim. I pulled on heavy gauntlets to protect myself from the cold, but his hands, though clearly as frozen as my own, were naked on the rope he held. He replied in his monotone. They merely debated alliance. Well, why consider one in the first place? On account of the predicted conjoining. He was mildly surprised. Every brotherhood so confers. We must gather forces, share knowledge, abolish rivalries. It is necessary. Scientists? Occultists? Alchemists? The church? The Jews? The Muslimen? Who conjoins? For what? Oh, but you must know. He put a tongue to his lower lip. He looked towards his feet and then looked up again. His eyes were searching. He looked momentarily at his partner, but he did not respond. For many centuries, the various occult brotherhoods have understood that on rare occasions the stars appear in such an order in the heavens that the invisible universe intersects with the visible. Thus it becomes possible for adepts, or even those who are not adepts, to cross the geometry separating one plane from another, this momentous event comes infrequently. Sometimes a thousand years must pass, sometimes two thousand. Coincident with these concurrences are certain events in the histories of all worlds, 
when a watershed is reached and new realities established, sometimes because one world, normally hidden from another, influences its neighbours. And that's why the alchemists congregate, eh? said St. Audrin. The Baron mentioned some astral event, I recall. The future of our globe can be determined, continued Klosterheim, almost in excitement, for the next millennium at least. Shall the machine be dominant, or shall we have a planet where man's reconciled with his own nature? Well, you take an old-fashioned view, then, said I. I'm neutral on that. The alchemists in the main are against the mechanistic philosophies of Newton, Arkwright, and Tom Paine, said St. Audrin, which makes it all the more mysterious why one should supply us, he pointed above, with that. Klosterheim turned his head away. It's said to be a period for a gathering of power. Yeah. It's said to be a period for the gathering of power, I recalled, much as decided during the time of an astral concordance. Which tendency shall rule, for instance? Is that what you promised me, Klosterheim, when you promised me my own realm? You shall have it still, he said. My word was given, even if you plotted to break yours. So now mankind stands between reason and faith, is that it? I was openly contemptuous, between mechanical flight and the magic carpet. You think you speak rationally, Von Beck. But what if the supernatural regained control of the world? What if the Antichrist were to emerge? Would God and Satan set aside their discussion and go to war? Would man lift his sword against both heaven and hell, making a reality of revelations? It's nonsense, talk Klosterheim. The world slowly embraces enlightenment. The age of superstition has gone the way of the age of religious wars. The future belongs to Newton and his followers. There's a battle already taking place, said Klosterheim firmly. Armies are being drawn up. Great forces are at work everywhere. You must know this. You of all people have seen the evidence. I know only what you've told me. Warlocks and witches debate to determine how to make their broomsticks fly again. But how shall they ever come together in strength? Even if your ideas had any truth, they're so frequently, by their very character, at odds. Each claims to hold the key to the only wisdom. That's where natural philosophers who do not impose what they need to believe, or at least not so readily, upon the world, but analyse what they see, have the strong advantage. From the corner of my eye I saw the other man make a movement with his hand, but he restrained the gesture. Klosterheim could not raise to my bait, however. He was incapable of ordinary anger. Perhaps a deeper, hungrier anger burned like a volcanic stone at the core of his being. There have ever been momentary advantages and disadvantages to those viewpoints, he agreed placidly. But the astral concordance will decide the matter, at least for a while. Why, I wonder, are you such a spokesman for reason with a family history? A family destiny, indeed, more rooted in supernatural experience than most. Well, perhaps because I abhor the fictions which shape those histories as they shape nations. A myth to me, Herr Klosterheim, is no more than a fanciful lie, allowing men and women to deceive themselves and others with all manner of fine-sounding rhetoric. A legend, if called upon to justify action, is an excuse for murder, theft, rape, and genocide. 
any crime so long as it's committed in the name of a dead hero or some dignified pagan devil to whom, for political reasons, doubtless, you give the title saint. There may be less truth in the world than there are glamorous lies, Klosterheim, but I'll take a few scraps we have in preference to a basket full of your romance. Klosterheim had no interest in the discussion. He seemed both bored and mystified by my attitude. His deep-set eyes were fixed on matters singular to himself. The other man drew back his cloak to reveal a little to reveal garb resembling that of a Turk. He made a small sound. What was he, I wondered? Some oriental magus requiring a swift passage home? St. Odrin began to smile. Is it not time, Von Beck, to manhandle these two over the side and see if their magic helps them fly? I laughed, but I was battling uncertainty and fear again. St. Odrin dragged food and wine from our hold. The black-clad pair refused it. So the Scotchman and myself sat us down, cross-legged, to dine on that swaying platform, close to a mile above the world. As we completed our meal with some soft Waldensteiner flinzer, St. Odrin took one of the two matched pocket watches he carried and studied it. We must soon be over Vienna, he said, and at this rate we'll be looking down on the Adriatic by nightfall. I've never known a more regular flight. He was delighted by the wonder of his own machine. He took slate and charcoal from amongst his jumble of possessions and began to calculate again, every so often getting up to peer over the side. By heaven, Von Beck, there's no reason why, with a study of wind tides and air streams, we shouldn't be able to send any number of aerial craft about the world's business. I'm beginning to suspect there are different currents at different levels, as that guard suggested. Thus we're upon the main southern stream. By careful ascents, each ship could find its appropriate level and move from one current to the next at will. Do you know, Von Beck, it strikes me we could easily become legitimate merchant adventurers, the first to adapt modern aerial ships to regular commercial routes and entirely supersede the oceans. We must consider the possibility, my dear, of legally acquired profit and a place in history. All this was babbled heedlessly before the unspeaking couple who seemed to have no interest at all in us. St. Odrin's plans became increasingly grandiose the longer we were free of the ground. Soon he was describing vast flying cargo barges. These would be half a mile across. By the time we saw the sky turn a deep and gorgeous red, shading to myriad degrees of purple and blue, the colours reflected in the sleek material of the balloon's envelope, and everywhere in silence he was picturing a ship as big as a town. The beauty impressed him eventually and distracted his attention. I supposed even Klosterheim must be moved by the awesome grandeur, but when I looked at him he was studying the sunset and frowning, as if recalling a time when all the world was painted the colour of blood, in the days of his glory. Then, quite shockingly, Klosterheim's companion lifted an arm and with gloved hand pointed. Rising out of the south, black and jagged was a massive wall of cloud, so dense it might be a mountain range. Indeed, St. Odrin leaned forward with his telescope, unable to judge for certain what it was we were approaching. When he lowered the glass, he was troubled, placing a hand upon his chin. Back he went to consult his charts. 
we were without fire of any kind, so he turned the maps this way and that to get the last of the light. Klosterheim stepped up behind them and bent to read the, un, to read the unrolled linen. St. Audrin muttered to himself. Another chart was inspected, then another. They cannot be mountains, I said. There's no range so high. They are mountains, said Klosterheim, but they are not on those charts. Look for them upon your other maps. St. Audrin glared at him, convinced Klosterheim was quite mad. Be silent, sir. It is difficult enough to navigate without idiots informing me that mountains exist where Vienna should be. You're sailing away from Vienna, sir, said Klosterheim, perhaps in mild triumph. Look to your compass. St. Audrin squinted, and sure enough we appeared to be tra travelling due north when, not half an hour since, we sailed due south. Yet we would readily have detected so radical a change of wind. Klosterheim, said the Scot, newly grim. Tell me, man, have ye tampered with the compass? If so, it's devilish foolish of you, for our survival may depend on it. I have tampered with nothing, St. Audrin. The bloody clouds raced past us now on every side, like the rags of a retreating army. The black mountains came closer. There was no mistaking what they were. Jagged crags, too sharp to be the contours of clouds, grew by the moment. There were some stars behind them, but I did not seem but I did not immediately recognise the configurations. They seemed, presumably because of the distorting moisture, enlarged almost to the size of the moon. St. Audrin sprang suddenly for his rip valve. He meant to take the airship down. It was plain he cared not how quickly we descended, as long as we did descend. But now the other man, in the Turkish costume, threw back his great cloak to reveal quilted clothes designed to guard against the cold. There was a great horse pistol in his right hand. With his left he cocked the hammer. The voice was familiar to me. If flint strikes steel, gentlemen, it, it will not matter where I shoot. Stand away, Chevalier, if you please. Stand away, sir. Why, says St. Audrin, <coughs> suddenly recognising the figure, you're the young duke, are you not? Forgive me, Klosterheim's interjection was, as usual, clumsy and inapposite. Did I not introduce the Duke of Crete? But I was looking beyond the domino at those clear, sardonic eyes, so used to obedience. It is not the Duke of Crete, said I. I was firm on that. The figure holding the pistol began to smile, while the others looked at me in bafflement. Now I understood the source of all those rumours concerning the Duke, how he likes to dress as a woman and go out about town. I knew, too, why the pursuit of my Duchess came regularly to a dead end, as if she disappeared in smoke, frequently when the Duke was abroad. I gasped with a sensation close to ecstasy. "'An impostor? says St. Audrin, lifting an eyebrow. I shook my head. A delicious shudder ran through my entire frame. I bowed low. Good evening, my lady, said I, to the laughing Duchess of Crete.